Penguin Audio presents Small Favor by Jim Butcher Read by James Masters Chapter 1 Winter came early that year It should have been a tip-off A snowball soared through the evening air And smacked into my apprentice's mouth Since she was muttering a mantra-style chant when it hit her she wound up with a mouthful of frozen cheer, which may or may not have been more startling for her than for most people, given how many metallic piercings were suddenly in direct contact with the snow. Molly Carpenter sputtered, spitting snow, and a round of hooting laughter went up from the children gathered around her. Tall, blonde, and athletic, dressed in jeans and a heavy winter coat, she looked natural in the snowy setting, her cheeks and nose turning red with the cold. "'Concentration, Molly!' I called. I carefully kept any laughter I might have wanted to indulge in from my voice. "'You've got to concentrate. Again!' The children, her younger brothers and sisters, immediately began packing fresh ammunition to hurl at her. The backyard of the carpenter house was already thoroughly chewed up from an evening of winter warfare, and two low fortress walls faced each other across ten yards of open lawn. Molly stood between them, shivering and gave me an impatient look. This can't possibly be real training, she said, her voice quavering with cold. You're just doing this for your own sick amusement, Harry. I beamed at her, and accepted a freshly made snowball from Little Hope, who had apparently appointed herself my squire. I thanked the small girl gravely, and bounced the snowball on my palm a few times. Nonsense, I said. This is wonderful practice. Did you think you were going to start off bouncing bullets? Molly gave me an exasperated look. Then she took a deep breath, bowed her head, and lifted her left hand, her fingers spread wide. She began muttering again, and I felt the subtle shift of energies moving as she began drawing magic up around her in an almost solid barrier, a shield that rose between her and the incipient missile storm. Ready? I called out. Aim! Every single person there, including myself, threw before I got to the end of aim. And snowballs sped through the air, flung by children ranging from the eldest, Daniel, who was seventeen, down to the youngest, little Harry, who wasn't yet big enough to have much of a throwing arm, but who didn't let that stop him from making the largest snowball he could lift. Snowballs pelted my apprentice's shield, and it stopped the first two, the frozen missiles exploding into puffs of fresh powder, the rest of them, though, went right on through Molly's defenses, and she was splattered with several pounds of snow. Little Harry ran up to her and threw last with both hands and shrieked merry triumph as his bread-loaf-sized snowball splattered all over Molly's stomach. Fire! I barked belatedly. Molly fell onto her butt in the snow, sputtered some more, and burst out in a long belly laugh. Harry and Hope, the youngest of the children, promptly jumped on top of her, and from there the lesson in defensive magic devolved into the Carpenter children's long-standing tradition of attempting to shovel as much snow as possible down the necks of one another's coats. I grinned and stood there watching them, and a moment later found the children's mother standing beside me. Molly took after Charity Carpenter, who had passed her coloring and build on to her daughter. Charity and I haven't always seen eye to eye. Well, in point of fact, we've hardly ever seen eye to eye. But tonight she was smiling at the children's antics. Good evening, Mr. Dresden, she murmured. Charity, 
I replied amiably. This happen a lot? Almost always, during the first real snowfall of the year, she said. Generally, though, it's closer to Christmas than Halloween. I watched the children romping. Though Molly was growing quickly in a number of senses, she reverted to childhood easily enough here, and it did me good to see it. I sensed Charity's unusually intense regard and glanced at her, lifting an eyebrow in question. You never had a snowball fight with family, she said quietly, did you? I shook my head and turned my attention back to the kids. No family to have the fight with, I said. Sometimes the kids would try at school, but the teachers wouldn't let it happen. And a lot of times, the other kids did it to be mean instead of to have fun. That changes things. Charity nodded and also looked back at the kids. My daughter, how is her training progressing? Well, I think, I said. Her talents don't lie anywhere close to the same area as mine do, and she's never going to be much of a combat wizard. Charity frowned. Why do you say that? Do you think she isn't strong enough? Strength has nothing to do with it, but her greatest talents make her unsuited for it in some ways. I don't understand. Well, she's good with subtle things, delicate things. Her ability at handling fine, sensitive magic is outstanding and increasing all the time. But that same sensitivity means that she has problems handling the psychic stresses of real combat. It also makes the gross physical stuff a real challenge for her. Like stopping snowballs, Charity asked. Snowballs are good practice, I said. Nothing gets hurt but her pride. Charity nodded, frowning. But you didn't learn with snowballs, did you? The memory of my first shielding lesson under Justin Dumorn wasn't a particularly sentimental one. Baseballs? Merciful God, Charity said, shaking her head. How old were you? Thirteen. I shrugged a shoulder. Pain's a good motivator. I learned fast. But you aren't trying to teach my daughter the same way, Charity said. There's no rush, I said. The noise from the children stopped, dropping to furtive whispers, and I winked at Charity. She glanced from the children to me, amusement evident in her face. Not five seconds later, Molly shouted, Now! And multiple snowballs came zipping toward me. I lifted my left hand, focused my will, my magic, and drew it into the shape of a broad, flat disc in front of me. It wasn't a good enough shield to stop bullets or even well-thrown baseballs, but for snowballs it was just fine. They shattered to powder on my shield, revealing it in little flashes of pale blue light as a circular plane of force centered on the outspread fingers of my extended left hand. The children laughed as they cried out their disapproval, and I shouted, Ha! and lifted a triumphant fist. Then Charity, standing behind me, dumped a double handful of snow down the neck of my coat. I yelped as the cold ate my spinal cord, jumped up out of my tracks, and danced around trying to shake the snow out from under my clothes. The children cheered their mother on and began flinging snowballs at more or less random targets, and in all the excitement and frivolity, I didn't realize that we were under attack until the lights went out. The entire block plunged into darkness, the floodlights illuminating the carpenter's backyard. House lights in every nearby home and street lights were all abruptly extinguished. Eerie, ambient wear light reflected from the snow. Shadows suddenly yawned where there had been none before, and the scent of something midway between a skunk and a barrel of rotting eggs assaulted my nostrils. I yanked my blasting rod out of its holder on the inside of my coat and said to Charity, Get them inside. Emergency, 
Charity said in a far calmer voice than I had managed. Everyone into the safe room, just like in practice. The children had just begun to move when three creatures I had never seen before came bounding through the snow. Time slowed as the adrenaline hit my system, and it felt like I had half an hour to study them. They weren't terribly tall, maybe five foot six, but they were layered with white fur and muscle. Each had a head that was almost goat-like, but the horns atop them curled around to the front like a bull's, rather than arching back. Their legs were reverse-jointed and ended in hooves, and they moved in a series of single-legged leaps more than running. They got better air than a Chicago bull, too, which meant I was dealing with something with supernatural strength. Though thinking about it, I couldn't actually remember the last time I dealt with something that didn't have supernatural strength, which is one of the drawbacks of the wizard business. I mean, some things are stronger than others, sure, but it wouldn't much matter to my skull if a paranormal bruiser could bench-press a locomotive or if he was merely buff enough to juggle refrigerators. I trained the tip of my blasting rod on the lead, what's it? And then a bunch of snow fell from above in my peripheral vision, landing on the ground beside me with a soft thump. I threw myself into a forward dive, rolled over one shoulder, and came to my feet already moving laterally. I was just in time to avoid the rush of a fourth what's-it, which had knocked the snow loose just before it dropped down onto me from the treehouse Michael had built for his kids. It let out a hissing, bubbling snarl. I didn't have time to waste with this backstabbing twit, so I raised the rod as its tip burst into scarlet flame, unleashed my will, and snarled, Fuego! A wrist-thick lance of pure flame leapt from the blasting rod and seared the creature's upper body to blackened meat. The excess heat melted snow all around it and sent up a billow of scalding steam. Judging by the tackle hanging between the thing's legs, as the steam burst up from the snow, it probably inflicted as much pain as the actual fire. The what's-it went down, and I had to hope that it wasn't bright enough to play possum. The carpenter children were screaming. I whirled around, readying the rod again, and didn't have a clear shot. One of the white-furred creatures was running hard after Daniel, Molly's oldest brother. He'd begun to fill out, and he ran with his fingers locked on the back of the coats of little Harry and Hope, the youngest children, carrying them like luggage. He gained the door, with the creature not ten feet behind him, its wicked-looking horns lowered as it charged. Daniel went through the door and kicked it shut with his foot, never slowing down, and the creature slammed into it head-on. I hadn't realized that Michael had installed all steel, wood-paneled security doors on his home, just as I had on mine. The creature probably would have pulverized a wooden door. Instead, it slammed its head into the steel door, horns leading the way, and drove a foot-deep dent into it. And then it lurched away, letting out a burbling shriek of pain. Smoke rose from its horns, and it staggered back, swatting at them with its three-fingered clawed hands. There weren't many things that reacted to the touch of steel like that. The other two Watsits had divided their attention. One was pursuing Charity, who was carrying little Amanda and running like hell for the workshop Michael had converted from a freestanding garage. The other was charging Molly, who had pushed Alicia and Matthew behind her. There wasn't time enough to help both groups, and even less to waste over the moral dilemma of a difficult choice. I turned the rod on the beastie chasing Charity and let him have it. The blast hit him in the small of his back and knocked him from his hooves. He flew sideways, slamming into the wall of the workshop, and Charity dashed through the door with her daughter. I turned my blasting rod back to the other creature, but I already knew that I wouldn't be in time. The creature lowered its horns and closed on Molly and her siblings before I could line up for another shot.
I screamed. My apprentice seized Alicia and Matthew's hands, gasped out a word, and all three of them abruptly vanished. The creature's charge carried it past the space they'd been in, though something I couldn't see struck its hoof and sent it staggering. It wheeled around at full speed, kicking up snow as it did, and I felt a sudden fierce surge of exaltation and pride. The grasshopper might not be able to put up a decent shield, but she could do veils like they were going out of style, and she'd kept her focus and her wits about her. The creature slowed, head sweeping, and then it saw the snow being disturbed by invisible feet moving toward the house. It bawled out another unworldly cry and went after them, and I didn't dare risk another blast of flame, not with the carpenter's house in the line of fire. So instead, I lifted my right hand, triggered one of the triple-layered rings on it with my will, and sent a burst of raw force at the what's-it. The unseen energy struck it in the knees, throwing its legs out from under it with such strength that its head slammed into the snow. The disturbance in the snow rushed around toward the front door of the house. Molly must have realized that the deformation of the security door would make it difficult, if not impossible, to open, and once again I felt fierce approval. But it faded rather rapidly when the what's-it that had been playing possum behind me slammed into the small of my back like a sulfur and rotten egg-driven locomotive. The horns hit hard and it hurt like hell, but the defensive magic on my long black leather duster kept them from impaling me. The impact knocked the wind out of me, snapped my head back sharply, and flung me to the snow. Everything got confusing for a second, and then I realized that it was standing over me, ripping at the back of my neck with its claws. I hunched my shoulders and rolled, only to be kicked in the nose by a cloven hoof, and an utterly gratuitous amount of pain came with a side order of whirling stars. I kept trying to get away, but my motions were sluggish, and the what's-it was faster than me. Charity stepped out of the workshop with a steel hafted ball-peen hammer in her left hand and a heavy-duty contractor's nail gun in her right. She lifted the nail gun from ten feet away and started pulling the trigger as she walked forward. It made foot-foot-foot sounds and the already seared what's-it started screaming in pain. It leapt up wildly, twisting in agonized gyrations in midair, and fell to the snow, thrashing. I saw heavy nails sticking up out of its back, and the smoking wounds were bleeding green-white fire. It tried to run, but I managed to kick its hooves out from under it before it could regain its footing. Charity whirled the hammer in a vertical stroke, letting out a sharp cry as she did, and the steel head of the tool smashed open the what's-its skull. The wound erupted with grayish matter and more green-white fire, and the creature twitched once before it went still, its body being consumed by the eerie flame. I stood up, blasting rod still in hand, and found the remaining beasties wounded but mobile, their yellow, rectangular-pupiled eyes glaring in hate and hunger. I ditched the blasting rod and picked up a steel-headed snow shovel, that had been left lying next to one of the children's snow forts. Charity raised her nail gun, and we began walking toward them. Whatever these things were, they didn't have the stomach for a fight against mortals armed with cold steel. They shuddered as if they had been a single being, then turned and bounded away into the night. I stood there, panting and peering around me. I had to spit blood out of my mouth every few breaths. My nose felt like someone had superglued a couple of live coals to it. Little silver wires of pain ran all through my neck, from the whiplash of getting hit from behind, and the small of my back felt like one enormous bruise. Are you all right? Charity asked. Fairies, I muttered. Why did it have to be fairies?
Chapter 2 Well, Charity said, it's broken. You think? I asked. The light touch of her fingers on my nose was less than pleasant, but I didn't twitch or make any sounds of discomfort while she examined me. It's a guy thing. At least it isn't out of place, Michael said, knocking snow off of his boots. Getting it set back is the sort of thing you don't mind forgetting. Find anything? I asked him. The big man nodded his head and set a sheathed broadsword in a corner against the wall. Michael was only a couple of inches shorter than me and a lot more muscular. He had dark hair and a short beard, both of them peppered with silver, and wore blue jeans, work boots, and a blue and white flannel shirt. That corpse is still there. It's mostly a burned mess, but it didn't dissolve. Yeah, I said. Fairies aren't holy beings of the spirit world. They leave corpses behind. Michael grunted. Other than that, there were footprints, but that's about it. No sign that these goat things were still around. He glanced into the dining room, where the carpenter children were gathered at the table, talking excitedly and munching the pizza their father had been out picking up when the attack occurred. The neighbors think the light show must have come from a blown transformer. That's as good an excuse as any, I said. I thank God no one was hurt, he said. For him, it wasn't just an expression. He meant it, literally. It came of being a devout Catholic, and maybe from toting around a holy sword with one of the nails from the crucifixion wrought into the blade. He shook himself and gave me a short smile. And you, of course, Harry. Thank Daniel, Molly, and Charity, I said. I just kept our visitors busy. Your family is who got the little ones to safety, and Charity did all the actual smiting. Michael's eyebrows went up, and he turned his gaze on his wife. Did she now? Charity's cheeks turned pink. She briskly swept up the various tissues and cloths I'd bloodied and carried them out of the room to be burned in the lit fireplace in the living room. In my business, you don't ever want samples of your blood, your hair, or your fingernail clippings lying around for someone else to find. I gave Michael the rundown of the fight while she was gone. My nail gun? he asked, grinning, as Charity came back into the kitchen. How did you know it was a fairy? I didn't, she said. I just grabbed what was at hand. We got lucky, I said. Michael arched an eyebrow at me. I scowled at him. Not every good thing that happens is divine intervention, Michael. True, Michael said. But I prefer to give him the credit, unless I have a good reason to believe otherwise. It seems more polite than the other way around. Charity came to stand at her husband's side. Though they were both smiling and speaking lightly about the attack, I noticed that they were holding hands very tightly, and Charity's eyes kept drifting over toward the children, as if to reassure herself that they were still there and safe. I suddenly felt like an intruder. Well, I said, rising, looks like I've got a new project. Michael nodded. Do you know the motive for the attack? That's the project, I said. I pulled my duster on, wincing as the motion made me move my stiffening neck. I think they were after me. The attack on the kids was a diversion to give the one in the tree a shot at my back. Are you sure about that? Charity asked quietly. No, I admitted. It's possible that they're holding a grudge about that business at Arctis Tor. Charity's eyes narrowed and went steely. Arctis Tor was the heart of the Winter Court, the fortress and sanctum sanctorum of Queen Mab herself. Some nasty customers from Winter had stolen Molly, and Charity and I, with a little help, had stormed the tower and taken Molly back by main force. 
The whole mess had been noisy as hell, and we'd pissed off an entire nation of wicked fae in the process of making it. Keep your eyes open, just in case, I told her. And let Molly know that I'd like her to stay here for the time being. Michael quirked an eyebrow at me. You think she needs our protection? No, I said. I think you might need hers. Michael blinked. Charity frowned quietly, but did not dispute me. I nodded to both of them and left. Molly wasn't rebelling against everything I told her to do purely upon reflex these days, but fait accompli remained the best way of avoiding arguments with her. I shut the door to the carpenter household behind me, cutting off the scent of hot pizza and the sound of loudly animated children's voices, raucous after the excitement. The November night was silent and very cold. I fought off an urge to shiver and hurried to my car, a beat-up old Volkswagen Beetle that had originally been powder blue, but was now a mix of red, blue, green, white, yellow, and now primer gray on the new hood my mechanic had scrounged up. Some anonymous joker who had seen too many Disney movies had spray-painted the number 53 inside a circle on the hood, but the car's name was the Blue Beetle, and it was going to stay that way. I sat looking at the warm golden light coming from the house for a moment, then I coaxed the Beetle to life and headed for home. Chapter 3 And you're sure there were fairies? Bob the Skull asked. I scowled. How many other things get their blood set on fire when it touches iron and steel, Bob? Yes, I think I know a fairy when I get my nose broken by one. I was down in my lab, which was accessed by means of a trapdoor in my basement apartment's living room and a folding wooden stepladder. It's a concrete box of a room, deep enough under the rest of the boarding house I live in to be perpetually cool. In the summer, that's nice. Come winter, not so much. The lab consisted of a wooden table running down the center of the room and was surrounded on three sides by tables and workbenches against the outer wall of the room, leaving a narrow walkway around the table. The workbenches were littered with the tools of the trade and I'd installed those white wire shelving units you can get pretty cheap at Walmart on the walls above the benches, creating more storage space. The shelves were covered with an enormous variety of containers, from a lead-lined box to burlap bags, from Tupperware to a leather pouch made from the genital sack of, I kid you not, an actual African lion. It was a gift, don't ask. Candles burned around the room, giving it light and twinkling off the pewter miniature buildings on the center table, a scale model of the city of Chicago. I brought down a single writing desk for Molly, all the room I had to spare, and her own notebooks and slowly accumulating collection of gear managed to stay neatly organized despite the tiny space. Well, it looks like someone is holding Arctis Tor against you, Bob said. The skull, its eye sockets glowing with orange flickers of light, like candles you couldn't quite see, sat on its own shelf on the uncluttered wall. Half a dozen paperback romance novels littered the shelf around it, and a seventh had fallen from the shelf and now lay on the floor, obscuring a portion of the silver summoning circle I'd installed there. Fairies don't ever forget a grudge, boss. I shook my head at the skull, scooped up the fallen book and put it back on the shelf. You ever heard of anything like these guys? My knowledge of the fairy realms is mostly limited to the winter end of things, Bob said. These guys don't sound like anything I've run into. Then why would they be holding the fight at Arctis Tor against me, Bob? I asked. Hell, we weren't even the ones who really assaulted Winter's Capital. 
We just walked in on the aftermath and picked a fight with some of Winter's errand boys who had swiped Molly. Maybe some of the Winter she hired out the vengeance gig as contract labor. These could have been wild fay, you know. There's a lot more wild than anything else. They could have been satyrs. His eyelights brightened. <gasps> Did you see any nymphs? If there are satyrs, there's bound to be a nymph or two somewhere close. No, Bob. Are you sure? Naked girl, drop-dead gorgeous, old enough to know better and young enough not to care? I'd have remembered that if I'd seen it, I said. Feh, Bob said, his eyelights dwindling in disappointment. You can't do anything right, Harry. I rubbed my hand against the back of my neck. It didn't make it hurt any less, but it gave me something to do. I've seen these goat guys, or read about them before, I said. Or at least something close to them. Where did I put those texts on the near reaches of the never-never? North wall, green plastic box under the workbench, Bob provided immediately. Thanks, I said. I dragged out the heavy plastic storage box. It was filled with books, most of them leather-bound, handwritten treatises on various supernatural topics, except for one book that was a compilation of Calvin and Hobbes comic strips. How had that gotten in there? I picked up several of the books, carried them to the part of the table that was modeled as Lake Michigan, and set them down. Then I pulled up my stool and started flipping through them. How was the trip to Dallas? Bob asked. Mm, uh, oh, fine, fine. Someone was being stalked by a black dog. I glanced up at the map of the United States hanging on the wall beneath Bob's shelf on a thick piece of poster board. I absently plucked a green thumbtack from the board and poked it into Dallas, Texas, where it joined more than a dozen other green pins and a very few red ones where the false alarms had been. They contacted me through the paranet, and I showed them how to give Fido the bum's rush out of town. This support network thing you and Elaine have going is really smart, Bob said. Teach the minnows how to gang up when the big fish shows up to eat them. I prefer to think of it as teaching sparrows to band together and chase off hawks, I said, returning to my seat. Either way, it means less exposure to danger and less work for you in the long run. Constructive cowardice. Very crafty, I approve. His voice turned wistful. I hear they have some of the best strip clubs in the world in Dallas, Harry. I gave Bob a hard look. If you're not going to help me, at least don't distract me. Oh, Bob said. Check. The romance I'd put back on the shelf quivered for a second and then flipped over and opened to the first page. The skull turned toward the book, the orange light from its eyes falling over the pages. I went through one old text, then two, then three. House bells, I knew I'd seen or read something in one of these. Rip her dress off, Bob shouted. Bob the Skull takes paperback romances very seriously. The next page turned so quickly that he tore the paper a little. Bob is even harder on books than I am. That's what I'm talking about, Bob hollered as more pages turned. It couldn't have been Satter's, I mumbled out loud, trying to draw my thoughts into order. My nose hurt like hell, and my neck hurt like someplace in the same zip code. That kind of pain wears you down fast, even when you're a wizard who learned his basics while being violently bombarded with baseballs. Satters have human faces. These things didn't. Wagoats, Bob suggested. He flipped another page and kept reading. Bob is a spirit of intellect, and he multitasks better than, well, pretty much anybody. Or maybe goat wares. 
I stopped for a moment and gave the skull an exasperated look. I can't believe I just heard that word. What? Bob asked brightly. Were-goats? Were-goats. I'm fairly sure I could have led a perfectly rich and satisfying life even if I hadn't heard that word or enjoyed the mental images it conjures. Bob chortled. <laughs> Stars and stones, you're easy, Harry. Were-goats, I muttered, and went back to reading. After finishing the fifth book, I went back for another armload. Bob shouted at his book, cheering during what were apparently the love scenes and heckling most of the rest, as if the characters had all been live performers on stage. Which would probably tell me something important about Bob, if I were an astute sort of person. After all, Bob himself was essentially a spiritual creature, created from the energy of thought. The characters within a book were, from a certain point of view, identical on some fundamental level. There weren't any images of them, no physical tangibility whatsoever. They were pictures in the reader's head, constructs of imagination and ideas, given shape by the writer's work and skill and the reader's imagination. Parents of a sort. Did Bob, as he read his books and imagined their events, regard those constructed beings as siblings of some sort? Peers? Children? Could a being like Bob develop some kind of acquired taste for a family? It was entirely possible. It might explain his constant fascination with fictional subject matter dealing with the origins of a mortal family. Then again, he might regard the characters in the same way some men do those inflatable sex dolls. I was pretty sure I didn't want to know. Good thing I'm not astute. I found our attackers in the eighth book, about halfway through, complete with notes and sketches. Holy crap, I muttered, sitting up straight. Find them? Bob asked. Yeah, I said, and held up the book so he could see the sketch. It was a better match for our goatish attackers than most police sketches of perpetrators. If the book is right, I just got jumped by gruffs. Bob's romance novel dropped to the surface of the shelf. He made a choking sound. <laughs> Did you say gruffs? I scowled at him, and he began to giggle. The skull rattled against the shelf. Gruffs? He tittered. What? I said, offended. As in the three billy goats gruff? The skull howled with laughter. You just got your ass handed to you by a nursery tale. I wouldn't say they handed me my ass, I said. Bob was nearly strangling on his laughter, and given that he had no lungs, it seemed gratuitous somehow. That's because you can't see yourself, he choked out. Your nose is all swollen up and you've got two black eyes. <laughs> you look like a raccoon holding a dislocated ass. You didn't see these things in action, I said. They were strong and pretty smart, and there were four of them. Just like the four horsemen, he said, only with petting zoos. I scowled some more. Fine, fine, I said. I'm glad I can amuse you. Oh, absolutely, Bob said, his voice bubbling with mirth. Help me, help me, it's the billy goat's gruff. I glared. You're missing the point, Bob. It can't be as funny as what's come through, he said. I bet every she in winter is giggling about it. I bet they're not, I said. That's the point. The gruffs work for summer. They're some of Queen Titania's enforcers. Bob's laughter died abruptly. Oh. I nodded. After that business at Arctis Tor, I could understand if someone from winter had come after me. I never figured to do this kind of business with Summer. Well, Bob pointed out, 
You did kind of give Queen Titania's daughter the death of a thousand cuts, I grunted. Yeah, but why send hitters now? She could have done it years ago. That's fairies for you, Bob said. Logic isn't exactly their strong suit, I grunted. Life should be so simple. I thumped my finger on the book, thinking, there's more to this, I'm sure of it. How high are they in the summer hierarchy? Bob asked. They're up there, I said. As a group, anyway. They've got a reputation for killing trolls, probably where the nursery tale comes from. Troll killers, Bob said. Trolls? Like Mab's personal guard, whose pieces you found scattered all over Octus Tor? Exactly, I said. But what I did there ticked off winter, not summer. I've always admired your ability to be unilaterally irritating. I shook my head. No. I must have done something there that hurt Summer somehow, I frowned. Or helped Winter. Bob, do you know— The phone started ringing. I had run a long extension cord from the outlet in my bedroom down to the lab, after Molly had nearly broken her neck rushing up the stepladder to answer a call. The old wind-up clock on one shelf told me that it was after midnight. Nobody calls me that late, unless it's something bad. Hold that thought, I told Bob. It's me, Murphy said when I answered. I need you. Why, Sergeant, I'm touched, I said. You've admitted the truth at last. Cue sweeping romantic theme music. I'm serious, she said. Something in her voice sounded tired, strained. Where? I asked her. She gave me the address and we hung up. I barely ever got work from Chicago PD anymore. And between that and my frequent trips to other cities, as part of my duties as a warden, I hadn't been making diddly as an investigator. My stipend as a warden of the White Council kept me from bankruptcy, but my bank account had bled slowly down to the point where I had to be really careful to avoid bouncing checks. I needed the work. That was Murphy, I said, making a duty call. This late at night, what else could it be? Bob agreed. Watch your back extra careful, boss. Why did you say that? I said, shrugging into my coat. I don't know if you're up on your nursery tales, Bob said, but if you'll remember... The Billy Goat's gruff had a whole succession of brothers. Yeah, I said, each of them bigger and meaner than the last. I headed out to meet Murphy. Where goats? Jesus. Chapter 4 I was standing there watching the fire with everyone else when the beat cop brought Murphy over to me. It's about time, she said, her voice tense. She lifted the police tape and beckoned me. I had already clipped my little laminated consultant's ID to my duster's lapel. What took you so long? There's a foot of snow on the ground, and it doesn't show signs of stopping, I replied. She glanced up at me. Karen Murphy is a wee little thing, and the heavy winter coat she wore only made her look smaller. The large, fluffy snowflakes still falling clung to her golden hair and glittered on her eyelashes, turning her eyes glacial blue. Your toy car got stuck in a drift, huh? What happened to your face? I glanced around at all the normals. I was in a snowball fight. Murphy grunted. I guess you lost. You should have seen the other guy. We were standing in front of a small five-story apartment building, and something had blown it to hell. The front facing of the building was just gone, as if some unimaginably huge axe had sliced straight down it. You could see the floors and interiors of empty apartments when you could get a glimpse of them through the pall of dust and smoke and thick-falling snow. Fires burned in the building. 
insubstantial behind the haze of flame and winter. Rubble had washed out into the street, damaging the buildings on the other side, and the police had everyone cordoned off at least a block away. Broken glass and steel and brick lay everywhere. The air was acrid, thick with a stench of burning materials never meant to feed a fire. Despite the weather, a couple of hundred people had gathered at the police cordons. Some enterprising soul was selling hot coffee from a big thermos, and I hadn't been too proud to cough up a dollar for a foam cup of java, powdered creamer, and a packet of sugar. Lots of fire trucks, I noted, but only one ambulance. And the crew's drinking coffee while everyone else shivers in the cold. I sipped at my cup. The bastards. Building wasn't occupied, Murphy said. Being renovated, actually. No one got hurt, I said. That's a plus. Murphy gave me a cryptic look. You willing to work off the books, per diem? I sipped coffee to cover up a wince. I far prefer a two-day minimum. I guess the city isn't coughing up much money for consultants, huh? S.I.'s been pooling the coffee money in case we needed your take on something. This time I didn't bother to hide the wince. Taking money from the city government was one thing. Taking money from the cops in S.I. was another. Special investigations was the CPD's version of a pool filter. Things that slipped through the areas of interest of the other departments got dumped on S.I. Lots of times those things included the cruddy work no one else wanted to do. So S.I. wound up investigating everything from apparent rains of toads to dog-fighting rackets to reports of El Chupacabra molesting neighborhood pets from its lair in a local sewer. It was a crappy job, no pun intended. And as a result, S.I. was regarded by the city as a kind of asylum for incompetence. They weren't, but the inmates of S.I. generally did share a couple of traits. Intelligence, enough to ask questions when something didn't make sense, and an inexcusable lack of ability when it came to navigating the murky waters of office politics. When Sergeant Murphy had been Lieutenant Murphy, she'd been in charge of S.I. She'd been busted for vanishing during 24 particularly critical hours of an investigation. It wasn't like she could tell her superiors that she was off storming a frozen fortress in the near reaches of the Never-Never, now could she? Now her old partner, Lieutenant John Stallings, was in charge of S.I., and he was running the place on a strained, frayed, often knotted shoestring of a budget. Hence the lack of gainful employment for Chicago's only professional wizard. I couldn't take their money. It wasn't like they were rolling in it. But at the same time, they had their pride. I couldn't take that either. Per diem, I told her. Hell, my bank account's thinner than a tobacco lobbyist's moral justification. I'll go hourly. Murphy glowered up at me for a moment and gave me a grudging nod of thanks. Proud doesn't always outweigh practical. So what's the scoop, I asked. Arson? She shrugged. Explosion of some kind. Maybe an accident, maybe not. I snorted. Yeah, because you call me in on maybe accidents all the time. Come on. Murphy pulled a dust mask from her coat pocket and put it on. I took out a bandana and tied it around my nose and mouth. All I needed was a ten-gallon hat and some spurs to complete the image. Stick em up, partner. She glanced back at me, her face hard to read under the desk mask, and led me to the building adjacent to the ruined apartment. Murphy's partner was waiting for us. Rawlins was a blocky man in his fifties, comfortably overweight and looked about as soft as a Brinks truck. He'd grown in a beard frosted with gray, a sharp contrast against his dark skin, and he wore a weather-beaten old winter coat over his off-the-rack suit. Dresden, he said easily. Good to see you. I shook his hand. 
How's the foot? It aches when I'm about to get asked to leave, he said soberly. Ow. It's better if you've got deniability, Murphy said, folding her arms in what an astute observer might have characterized as a tone of stubborn argument. You've got a family to feed. Rollins sighed. Yeah, yeah, I'll be out by the street. He nodded to me and walked off. He'd recovered from being shot in the foot pretty well and wasn't limping. Good for him. Good for me, too. I'd been the one to get him into that mess. Deniability? I asked Murphy. There hasn't been anything specific, Murphy said. But people up the line from SI have made it very clear that you are persona non grata. That stung a bit, and my voice turned a shade more brittle than I had intended. Oh, obviously. The way I keep helping CPD with things they couldn't handle themselves is just inexcusable. I know, Murphy said. I'm lucky they haven't charged me with gross competence and contributing to social order and had me locked away. She waved a tired, dismissive hand. It's always something. That's the way organizations are. Except that when the country club gets a bug up its nose and decides that someone is out, nobody dies as a result, I said, and added, mostly. Murphy glared at me. What do you want me to do about it, Harry? I called in every chip I'd ever collected just to keep my fucking job. There's no chance at all of me making command again, much less moving up to a position where I could affect real change within the department. I clenched my jaw and felt a flush rising up my neck. She hadn't said it, but she'd lost her command and any bright future for her career because she'd been covering my back. Murph. No, she said, her tone calmer and steadier than it might have been. I'd really like you to know, Dresden. I've paid you out of my own pocket when the city wouldn't spend it. The rest of SI throws in all the money they can spare into the kitty to be able to pay you when we really need you. You think maybe I should moonlight at a burger joint to pay your fees? Hell's bells, Murph, I said. It isn't about the money. It's never been about the money. She shrugged. So what are you bitching about? I thought about it for a second and said, You shouldn't have to tap dance around the demands of all the ladder climbers to do your job. No, she said, her tone frank. Not in a reasonable world. But if you haven't noticed, that world must be in a different area code. And it seems to me that you've had to end-run your superiors once or twice. Bah, I said. And touché. She smiled faintly. It sucks, but that's what we've got. You done whining? Hell with it, I said. Let's work. Murphy jerked her head at the rubble-choked alley between the damaged building and its neighbor, and we started down it, climbing over fallen brick and timber where necessary. We'd gone about three feet before the stench of sulfur and acrid brimstone seared my nostrils, sharp even through the smell of the gutted apartment building. There's only one thing that smells like that. Crap, I muttered. I thought it smelled familiar, Murphy said, like back at the fortress. She glanced at me. And the other times I've smelled it. I pretended not to notice her glance. Yeah, it's hellfire, I said. There's more, Murphy said quietly. Come on. We pressed on down the alley until we passed the edge of the wrecked portion of the gutted building. One step, there was nothing but wreckage. The next, the brick wall of the building reasserted itself. The demarcation between structure and havoc was a rough, jagged line, stretching up into the dust and the snow and the smoke, all except for a portion of wall perhaps five feet off the ground. There, instead of a broken line of shattered brick and twisted rebar, a perfectly smooth, semicircle, bit into the wall. I leaned closer, frowning. 
The scent of hellfire grew stronger, and I realized that something had melted its way through the brick wall. A shaft of energy, like a giant drill bit. It had to have been almost unimaginably hot to vaporize brick and concrete and steel, leaving the rim of the area it had touched melted to smooth glass. Though half of the basketball-sized circle was missing, carried away by the collapsing wall. Any natural source of heat like that would have sent out a thermal bloom that would have scoured the alley I was standing in, leaving it blackened and sear. But the alley was littered with the usual city detritus, where it wasn't choked with rubble, and several hours' worth of snow had piled up there as well. Talk to me, Murphy said quietly. No normal fire is this contained, I said. What do you mean? I gestured vaguely with my hands. Fire. Generated with magic is still fire, Murph. I mean, sure, you can call up tremendous heat and energy, but once it gets to you, it behaves like heat. It still does business with the laws of thermodynamics. So we're talking mojo, Murphy said. Well, technically mojo isn't, she sighed. Are we dealing with magic or not? As if the scent of hellfire weren't enough to give it away. Yeah. Murphy nodded. You call up fire all the time, she said. I've seen it do a lot of things that didn't look like normal fire. Well, sure, I said, holding my hand over the surface of the flame-board bricks. They were still warm. But if you want to control it once you call it up, it takes additional energy to focus the fire into a desired course. Controlling the energy is usually as much effort as the fire itself, if not more. Could you do something like this? she asked, gesturing at the building. Once upon a time, she would have inflected that question a whole lot differently, and I'd have gotten nervous about whether the hands in her pockets were holding a gun and handcuffs. But that had been a long time ago. Of course, back then I probably wouldn't have given her a straight answer either, like I would now. Not a chance in hell, I said quietly, and not entirely metaphorically. I'm pretty sure I couldn't call up this much energy in the first place, and even if I could, I wouldn't have anything left to control it with. I closed my eyes for a moment, trying to feel any lingering traces of power around the area, but the destruction and subsequent drift of dust and snow and smoke had obscured any coherent patterns that might have given me hints about how the working had been accomplished. I did, however, notice something else. The surface of the cut was not perpendicular to the wall of the building. It went in at an angle. I frowned and squinted back behind me, trying to line it up with the wall of the building on the other side of the alley. Murphy knew me well enough to see I'd noticed something, and I knew her well enough to see her sudden interest make furrows between her eyebrows as she forced herself to be quiet and let me work. I got up and went to the far side of the alley. A light coating of snow and dust had coated the wall. Watch your eyes, I murmured, squinting my own to slits. Then I raised my right hand, calling up my will, and murmured, Ventas reductas. The wind I called up wasn't the usual burst I commonly used. It was far more toned down than that, and it poured steadily from my outstretched hand. All the work I was doing with Molly had allowed me to rethink a lot of my basic evocations, the fast and dirty magic that wizards used in desperate and violent situations. I had been trying to teach the spell to Molly, but she didn't have the raw strength I had, and would have practically knocked her unconscious to call up a heavy blast of air. I had modified my teaching, just to get her comfortable with using a bit of air magic, and we'd accidentally developed a passable impersonation of an electric blow dryer. 
I used the dryer spell to gently brush away dust and snow from the wall. It took me about a minute and a half, and when I was finished, I caught another scent under the brimstone stench and said, Double crap. Murphy stepped forward with her flashlight and shone it on the wall. The sigil had been painted on the wall in something thick and brown that smelled like blood. At first I thought it was a pentacle, but I saw the differences immediately. Harry, Murphy said quietly, is it human? Most likely, I said. Mortal blood is the strongest ink you can use for symbols like this in high-energy spells. I don't think anything else could have contained the amount of energy it would have taken to blow up this building. It's a pentacle, right? Murphy asked. Like the one you wear? I shook my head. Different. How so? Her mouth twitched at one corner. Other than the blood, I mean. A pentacle is a symbol of order, I said quietly. Five points, five sides. It represents the forces of air, earth, water, fire, and spirit. It's contained within a circle, the points touching the outer ring. It represents the forces of magic bound within human control. Power balanced with restraint. I gestured at the symbol. See here? The points of the star fall far outside the ring. She frowned. What does it mean? I have no idea, I said. Gosh, she said, you're worth the money. Ha ha. Look, even if I'd seen the symbol before, it could mean different things to different people. The Hindus and the Nazis have very different ideas about the swastika, for example. Can you make a guess? I shrugged. Off the top of my head? This looks uncomfortably like a combination of the pentacle and the anarchy symbol. Magic unrestrained. Anarchist wizards? Murphy asked. It's just a guess, I said. My gut told me it was a good one, though, and I got the impression that Murphy had the same feeling. What's the symbol for? Murphy asked. What is it meant to do? Reflect power, I said. My guess is that the energy that drove through the building was reflected from the sigil, which means... I kayaked down a logic cascade as I spoke, which means that the energy had to come in from somewhere else first. I turned around slowly, trying to judge the angles. The incoming beam must have gone right through the collapsed part of the building and... Beam? I pointed to the semicircular hole in the ruined wall. Yeah, heat energy. A whole lot of it. She studied the hole. It doesn't look like it would be big enough to take down the building. It isn't, I said. Not in an explosion, anyway. This just drilled a hole. Might have started a fire as it went, but it couldn't have sheared off the front of the building like that. Murphy frowned, tilting her head. Then what did? Working on it, I mumbled. I judged the angles as best I could and took off down the alley. The firemen were still hard at work on the building, and we had to walk over several hoses as we emerged into the street at the back of the apartment building. I crossed the street and walked down the length of the building there, my hand raised, senses questing for any residual magic. I didn't find any, but I did smell hellfire again. And a couple of feet later I found another knot pentacle, identical to the first, also hidden under a light dusting of snow. I kept going clockwise around the ruined building. I found two more symbols on the undamaged building on its next side, and one more across the street from the front of the ruined apartments. And then I completed the circle, arriving back at our original reflective symbol. Five reflection points, which had guided a truly freaking, frightening amount of energy through the building, forming one single, enormous shape as they did. It's a pentagram, I said quietly. Murphy frowned. What? 
I touched the round, smooth bore mark on the destroyed building's wall. The beam of energy that ripped through the building right here was one of five sides of a pentagram, a five-pointed star. Murphy regarded me blankly. I reached into my pocket and pulled out a piece of chalk. Okay, look, everyone learns to draw this in grade school, right? I quickly sketched out a star on a clear bit of brick wall, five strokes of the chalk forming five points. Right? Right, Murphy said. You get them from the teacher when you get an A. Another example of symbols having disparate meanings, I said. But look here, in the middle. I filled in the closed shape in the center of the star. That's a pentagon shape, see? The center of the pentagram. That's where you contain whatever it is you're trying to contain. What do you mean, contain? A pentagram like this one is a symbol of power, I said. It's got lots of uses, depending on how you employ it. But most often you use it to isolate or contain an entity. You mean like summoning a demon, Murphy said. Sure, I said, but you can use it to trap other things, too, if you do it right. Remember the circle of power at Harley McFinn's place? Five candles formed the pentagram on that one. Murphy shuddered. I remember, but it wasn't this big. No, I admitted. And the bigger you make it, the more juice it takes to keep going. I have never, ever heard of one that would take this much energy to activate. I drew little X shapes at the points of the star and drew the chalk from one to the next, thickening the lines of the example pentagram. Get it? The beam streamed from one reflector to the next, melting holes through the building as it went. The reflectors formed a beam into one huge pentagram at ground level, more or less. Murphy frowned and squinted at the simple diagram. The center of that shape couldn't have covered the whole building. No, I said. I'd need a good map to be sure, but I think the center of the pentagram must have been about twenty feet back from the front door, which is why only the front half of the building collapsed. The explosion came from inside this pentagon thing? Magical TNT? I shrugged. The explosion came from inside the pentagram's center, but not necessarily from the pentagram. I mean, it could have been a normal device of some kind. Square in the middle of the giant, scary pentagram? Murphy asked. Maybe, I said, nodding. It depends on what the pentagram was being employed for. And to know that, I'd have to know which way was its north. I circled the topmost point of the chalk pentacle. The direction of the first line, I mean. Does it make a difference? Yeah, I said. Most everybody draws those stars just like I did. Bottom left to the topmost point is the first stroke. That's how you draw it when you want to defend something, ward something away from a location, or banish a spiritual entity. So this could have been a banishing spell, Murphy asked. It's possible, but you can do a lot of other things with it if you draw it differently. Like build a cage for things, Murphy said. Yeah, I frowned, troubled. Or open a doorway for something. Which, judging by your face, would be bad. I... I shook my head. I didn't even want to know what kind of terror would need a pentagram that huge in order to squeeze into our world. I think if something sized to fit this pentagram had come through it, there would probably be more than one building on fire. Oh, Murphy said quietly. Look, until I know what the pentagram's purpose was, all I can do is speculate. And there's something else weird here, too. What's that? There's not a trace of residual magic, and there should be. Hell, with this much power being tossed around, the whole area should practically be glowing. It isn't. Murphy nodded slowly. You're saying they wiped their prints. I grimaced. Exactly. And I have no idea how to do it. Hell's bells, I didn't know it was possible. 
I sipped at my coffee in the silence and pretended the shiver that went down my spine was from the cold. I passed the cup to Murphy, who took a sip from the opposite side, and passed it back to me. So, she said, we are left with questions. What is a major league supernatural hitter doing placing a huge pentagram under an empty apartment building? What was his goal in creating it? And why blow up the building afterward? I frowned and thought of an even better question. Why this building? I turned to Murphy. Who owns it? Lake Michigan Ventures, Murphy replied. Subsidiary of Mitigation Unlimited, whose CEO is triple crap, I spat. Gentleman Johnny Marcone. Chapter 5 I tried to collect some of the blood in the reflective symbols and use it in a tracking spell to follow it back to the original owner, but it was a bust. Either the blood was already too dry to use, or else the person who had donated it was dead. I had a bad feeling that it wasn't the winter air that made the spell fail. Typical. Nothing was ever simple when Marcone was involved. Gentleman Johnny Marcone was the robber baron of the streets of Chicago and the undisputed lord of its criminal underworld. Though he'd long been under legal siege, the bastions of paperwork defended by legions of lawyers had never been conquered, and his power base had grown steadily and quietly. They probably could have tried harder to take him down, but the heartless fact of the matter was that Marcone's management style was a better alternative than most. He put the civil back in civil offender, harshly cutting down on violence against civilians and law enforcement alike. It didn't make his business any less ugly, just tidier, and it could have been worse as far as the city's authorities were concerned. Of course, the authorities didn't know that it was worse. Marcone had begun expanding his power base into the supernatural world as well, signing on to the Unseelie Accords as a freeholding lord. It made him, in the eyes of the authorities of the supernatural world, a kind of small, neutral state, a recognizable power, and I had no doubt that he'd begun using that new power to do what he always did, create more of the same. All of which had been made possible by Harry Dresden. And the truly galling thing about the entire situation was that it had been the least evil of the options that had been available to me at the time. I looked up from the circle I chalked on the concrete beneath the sheltering overhang in the alley and shook my head. <sighs> Sorry, can't get anything. Maybe the blood's too dry, maybe the donor's dead. Murphy nodded. I'll keep an eye on the morgues, then. I broke the circle with a swipe of my hand and rose from my knees. Can I ask you something? Murphy said. Sure. Why don't you ever use pentagrams? All I ever see you draw is circles. I shrugged. PR mostly. Run around making lots of five-pointed stars in this country and people start screaming about Satan, including the Satanists. I've got enough problems. If I need a pentagram, I usually just imagine it. You can do that? Magic's in your head, mostly. Building an image in your mind and holding it there. Theoretically, you could do everything without any chalk or symbols or anything else. Then why don't you? Because it's a pointlessly difficult effort for identical results. I squinted up at the still-falling snow. You're a cop. I need a donut. She snorted as we left the alley. Stereotype much, Dresden? Cops do a lot of running around in their cars, and they don't always get to control their hours, Murph. Lots of times they can't leave a crime scene to hit a drive through so they need food that can sit in a car for hours and hours without tasting foul or giving them food poisoning. Donuts are good for that. So are granola bars. <sighs> Is Rollins a masochist, too? 
Murphy casually bumped her shoulder against my arm when I was between steps, making me wobble, and I grinned. We emerged onto the mostly empty street. The firemen had been wrapping up their job when I arrived, and every truck but one had departed. Once the flames were out, the show was over, and there were no rubberneckers anymore. Only a few cops were in sight, most of them in their cars. So what happened to your face? Murphy asked. I told her. She concealed a smile. The three billy goats gruff? Hey, they're tough, all right? They kill trolls. I saw you do that once. How hard could it be? I found myself grinning. I had a little help. Murphy matched my smile. One more short joke and I'm taking a kneecap. Murphy, I chided. Petty violence is beneath you, which is saying something. Keep it up, wise guy. I'm always going to be taller than you once you're lying unconscious on the ground. You're right, that was a low blow. I'll try to rise above it. She showed me a clenched fist. Pow, Dresden, right to the moon. We reached Murphy's car. Rollins was in the passenger seat pretending to snore. He wasn't the sort to just fall asleep. So, Summer made a run at you, Murphy said. You think the attack on Marcone's building is connected with that? I lost my faith in coincidence, I said. Get in, she said. I'll give you a ride home. I shook my head. There might be something I can do here, but I need to be alone, and I need a donut. Murphy arched a delicate, dark gold eyebrow. Okay. Get your mind out of the gutter and give me the damn donut. Murphy shook her head and got in her car. She tossed me a sack from Dunkin' Donuts that was sitting on Rollins's side of the dashboard. Hey, Rollins protested without opening his eyes. For a good cause, I told him, nodding my thanks to Murphy. Call you when I know something. She frowned at my nose. You sure you want to be alone? I winked one of my blackened eyes at her. Some things a wizard has to do for himself, I said. Rollins swallowed a titter. I get no respect. They drove off and left me in the silently falling snow in the still hours before dawn. There were still a couple of fire crews and uniformed cops there, the latter blocking off the street, though the former weren't actively firefighting. The building was out and coated in a layer of ice but I guess there always could have been something hidden in the walls and ready to pop out again. I overheard one of them telling another that the road crew that was supposed to clean the rubble out of the street was helping a city plow truck stuck in the snow and would be there when they could. I trudged to about a block away, found an alley not choked, and went in with my donut. I debated for a moment what approach I should take. My relationship with this particular source had changed over the years, after all. Reason indicated that sticking with long-standing procedure was my best bet. Instinct told me that reason had disappointed me more than once and that it wasn't thinking in the long term anyway. Over the years, my instincts and I have gotten cozy. So, instead of bothering with a simple bait and snare, I braced my feet, held out my right hand, palm up, placed the donut upon it like an offering, and murmured a name. Names. Capital N, have power. If you know something's name, you automatically have a conduit with which you can reach out and touch it, a way to home in on it with magic. Sometimes that can be a really bad idea. Speak the name of a big bad spiritual entity, and you might be able to touch it, sure, but it can touch you right back. And the big boys tend to do it a lot harder than any mortal. It's worth as much as your soul to speak the name of beings like that. But the never-never is a big place, and not to mix metaphors, but there are plenty of fish in that sea. 
There are literally countless beings of far less metaphysical significance, and it really isn't terribly difficult to get one of them to do your bidding by invoking its name. People have names, too. Sort of. Mortals have this nasty habit of constantly reassessing their personal identity, their values, their beliefs, and it makes it a far more slippery business to use a mortal's name against them. I know a few names. I invoked this one as lightly and gently as I could in an effort to be polite. It didn't take me long, maybe a dozen repetitions of the name, before the entity it summoned appeared. A basketball-sized globe of blue light dived out of the snow overhead and hurtled down the alley toward my face. I stood steady as it came on. Even with relatively minor summonings, you never let them see you flinch. The globe snapped to an instant halt about a foot away from the donut and I could just make out the luminous shape of the tiny humanoid figure within. Tiny, but not nearly so tiny as the last time I'd seen him. Hell's bells. He must have been twice as tall as the last time we'd spoken. Toot toot, I said, nodding to the pixie. Toot snapped to attention, piping, My lord! The pixie looked like an athletically slender youth, dressed in armor made of discarded trash. His helmet had been made from the cap to a three-liter bottle of Coca-Cola, and tufts of his fine lavender hair drifted all around its rim. He wore a breastplate made from what looked like a carefully reshaped bottle of Pepto-Bismol and carried a box knife sheathed in orange plastic on a rubber band strap over one shoulder. Rough lettering on the box knife's case, written in what looked like black nail polish, proclaimed, Pizza or Death. A long nail, its base carefully wrapped in layers of athletic adhesive tape, was sheathed in the hexagonal plastic casing of a ballpoint pen at his side. He must have lifted the boots from a Ken doll, or maybe a vintage G.I. Joe. You've grown, I said, bemused. Yes, my lord, Toot Toot barked. I arched an eyebrow. Is that the box knife I gave you? Yes, my lord, he shrilled. This is my box knife. There are many who like it, but this one is mine. Toot's words were crisply precise, and I realized he was imitating the drill sergeant from Full Metal Jacket. I throttled the sudden smile trying to fight its way onto my face. It looked like he was taking it seriously, and I didn't want to crush his tiny feelings. What the hell? I could play along. At ease, soldier. My lord, he said. He saluted by slapping the heel of his hand against his forehead and then buzzed a quick circle around the donut, staring at it intently. That, he declared, in a voice much more like his usual one, is a donut. Is it my donut, Harold? It could be, I said. I'm offering it as payment. Toot shrugged disinterestedly, but the pixie's dragonfly wings buzzed in excitement. For what? Information, I said. I jerked my head at the fallen building. There was a seriously large sigil working done in and around that building several hours ago. I need to know anything the little folk know about what happened. A little flattery never hurt. And when I need information from the little folk, you're the best there is, Toot. His Pepto-armored chest swelled up a bit with pride. Many of my people are beholden to you for freeing them from the Pale Hunters, Harold. Some of them have joined the Za Lord's Guard. Pizza Lord was the title some of the little folk had bestowed on me, largely because I provided them with a weekly bribe of pizza. Most don't know it, even in my circles, but the little folk are everywhere. And they see a lot more than anyone expects. My policy of mozzarella-driven goodwill had secured the affections of a lot of the locals. When I demanded that a sometime ally of mine set free several score of the folk who had been captured, 
I'd risen even higher in their collective estimation. Even so, Zalord's guard was a new one on me. I have a guard? I asked. Toot threw out his chest. Of course! Who do you think keeps the dread beastmaster from killing the brownies when they come to clean up your apartment? We do! Who lays low the mice and rats and ugly big spiders who might crawl into your bed and nibble on your toes? We do! Fear not, Zalord! Neither the foulest of rats nor the cleverest of insects shall disturb your home while we draw breath. I hadn't realized that in addition to the cleaning service, I'd acquired an exterminator, too. Handy as hell, though, now that I thought about it. There were things in my lab that wouldn't react well to becoming rodent nest material. Outstanding, I told him. But do you want the donut or not? Toot Toot didn't even answer. He just shot off down the alleyway like a runaway paper lantern, but so quickly that he left falling snow drifting in contrail spirals in his wake. Typically speaking, fairies get things done in a hurry, when they want to, at any rate. Even so, I'd barely had time to hum through When You Wish Upon a Star before Toot Toot returned. The edges of the sphere of light around him had changed color, flushing into an agitated scarlet. Run! Toot Toot piped as he streaked down the alley. Run, my lord! I blinked. Of all the things I'd imagined hearing from the little fay on his return, that had not been on my list. Run! He shrilled, whirling in panicked circles around my head. My brain was still processing. What about the donut? I asked, like an idiot. Toot Toot zipped over to me, set his shoulders against my forehead, and pushed for all he was worth. He was stronger than he looked. I had to take a step back or be overbalanced. Forget the donut! He shouted. Run, my lord! Forget the donut? That, more than anything, jarred me into motion. Toot Toot was not the sort to give in to panic. For that matter, the little fay had always seemed to be not ignorant, so much as innocent of the realization of danger. He'd always been oblivious to danger in the past when there was mortal food on the line. In the silence of the snowy evening, I heard a sound coming from the far end of the alley. Footsteps, quiet and slow. A quivering, fearful little voice in my head told me to listen to Toot, and I felt my heart speed up as I turned and ran in the direction he'd indicated. I cleared the alley and turned left, slogging through the deepening snow. There was a police station only two or three blocks from here. There would be lights and people there, and it would probably serve as a deterrent to whatever was after me. Toot flew beside me, just over my shoulder, and he'd produced a little plastic sports whistle. He blew on it in a sharp rhythm, and through the falling snow I dimly saw half a dozen spheres of light of various colors, all smaller than Toots, appear out of the night and begin to parallel our course. I ran for another block, then two, and as I did, I became increasingly certain that something was following in my wake. It was a disturbing sensation, a kind of crawly tingle on the back of my neck, and I was sure that I had attracted the attention of something truly terrible. Mounting levels of fear followed that realization, and I ran for all I was worth. I turned right and spotted the police station house, its exterior lighting a promise of safety, its lamps girded with halos in the falling snow. Then the wind came up and the whole world turned frozen and white. I couldn't see anything, not my own feet as I struggled through the snow, and not the hand I tried holding up in front of my face. 
I slipped and went down and then bounced back to my feet in a panic, certain that if my pursuer caught me on the ground, I would never stand again. I slammed a shoulder into a light pole and staggered back from it. I couldn't tell which way I was facing in the whiteout. Had I accidentally stumbled into the street? There would probably be no cars moving in this mess. But if one was, even slowly, I'd never see it in time to get out of the way. I wouldn't be able to hear a car horn, either. The snow was coming so thick now that I had trouble breathing. I picked a direction that seemed as if it would take me to the police station and hurried on. Within a few steps I found a building with one outstretched hand. I used it to guide me, leaning one hand against the solid wall. That worked fine for twenty feet or so, and then the wall vanished, and I stumbled sideways into an alley. The howling wind went silent, and the sudden stillness around me was a shock to my senses. I pushed myself to my hands and knees and looked behind me. On the street the blinding curtain of snow still swirled, thick and white and impenetrable, beginning as suddenly as a wall. In the alley, the snow was barely an inch deep, and except for a distant moan of wind, it was silent. At that instant, I realized that the silence was not an empty one. I wasn't alone. The glittering snow on the alley floor blended seamlessly into a sparkling white gown, tinted here and there with streaks of frozen blue or glacial green. I lifted my eyes. She wore the gown with inhuman elegance, its rippling fabric draping with feminine perfection, her body a perfect balance of curves and planes, beauty and strength. The gown was cut low and left her shoulders and arms bare. Her skin made the snow seem a bit sallow by comparison. Glittering colors flickered at her wrists, her throat, and upon her fingers, always changing, cycling through deep blue and green and violet iridescence. Her fingernails glittered with the same impossibly shifting hues. Upon her head was a circlet of ice, elegant and intricate, as if it had been formed from a single crystalline snowflake. Her hair was long, past her hips, long and silken and white, blending into the gown and the snow. Her lips, her gorgeous, sensual lips, were the color of frozen raspberries. She was a vision of beauty the kind that has inspired artists for centuries, immortal beauty that is rarely imagined, much less actually seen. Beauty like hers should have struck me senseless with joy. It should have made me weep and give thanks to the Almighty that I had been allowed to look upon it. It should have stopped my breath and made my heart lurch with delight. It didn't. It terrified me. It terrified me because I could also see her eyes. They were wide, feline eyes vertically slitted like a cat's. They shifted color in time with her gems, or more likely, the gems changed color in time with her eyes. And though they, too, were beautiful beyond the bounds of mortality, they were cold eyes, inhuman eyes, filled with intelligence and desire, but empty of compassion or pity. I knew those eyes. I knew her. If fear hadn't taken the strength from my limbs, I would have run. A second form appeared from the darkness behind her and hovered in the shadows at her side like an attendant. It resembled the outline of a cat, if any domestic cat ever grew so large. I couldn't see the color of its fur, but its green-gold eyes reflected the cold, blue light, luminous and eerie. And well you should bow, mortal, mewled the feline shape. Its voice was damned eerie, 
throbbing in strange cadences while producing human sound from an inhuman throat. Bow before Mab, the queen of air and darkness. Bow before the monarch of the unseelie fay, the winter court of the she. Chapter 6 I gritted my teeth and tried to summon up a salvo of snark. It wouldn't come. I was just too scared. And with good reason. Think of every fairy tale villainess you've ever heard of. Think of the wicked witches, the evil queens, the mad enchantresses. Think of the alluring sirens, the hungry ogresses, the savage she-beasts. Think of them, and remember that somewhere, sometime, they've all been real. Mab gave them lessons. Hell, I wouldn't be surprised if she'd set up some sort of certification process just to make sure they were all up to snuff. Mab was the ruler of fully half of the realm of fairy, those areas of the never-never, the spirit world closest to our own, and she was universally respected and feared. I'd seen her, seen her in the merciless clarity of my wizard's sight, and I knew, not just suspected, but knew exactly what kind of creature she was. Fucking terrifying, that's what. So terrifying that I couldn't summon up a single wise-ass comment, and that just doesn't happen to me. I couldn't talk, but I could move. I pushed myself to my feet. I shook with the cold and the fear, but faced the fairy queen and lifted my chin. Once I'd done that, proved that I knew where my backbone was, I was able to use it as a reference point to find my larynx. My voice came out coarse, rough with apprehension. What do you want with me? Mab's mouth quivered at the corners, turning up into the tiniest of smiles. The feline voice spoke again as Mab tilted her head. I want you to do me a favor. I frowned at her, and then at the dimly seen feline shape behind her. Is that Grimalkin back there? The feline shape's eyes gleamed. Indeed, Grimalkin said. The servitor behind me bears that name. I blinked for a second, confusion stealing some of the thunder from my terror. The servitor behind you? There's no one behind you, Grimalkin. Mab's expression flickered with annoyance, her lips compressing into a thin line. When Grimalkin spoke, his voice bore the same expression. The servitor is my voice for the time being, wizard, and nothing more. Ah, I said. I glanced between the two of them and my curiosity took the opportunity to sucker-punch terror while confusion had it distracted. I felt my hands stop shaking. Why would the Queen of Air and Darkness need an interpreter? Mab lifted her chin slightly, a gesture of pride, and another small smile quirked her mouth. You are already in my debt, the eerie surrogate voice said for her. And you wish an answer to that question? You would incur more obligation yet. I do not believe in charity. There's a shock, I muttered under my breath. Phew. My banter gland had not gone necrotic. But you missed the point of the question, I think. Why would Mab need such a thing? She's an immortal, a demigod. Mab opened her mouth as Grimalkin said, Ah, I perceive. You doubt my identity. 
she let her head drift back a bit, mouth open, and an eerie little laugh drifted up from her servitor. Just as you did in our first meeting. I frowned. That was correct. When Mab first walked into my office in mortal guise years ago, I noticed that something was off and subsequently discovered who she really was. As far as I knew, no one else had been privy to that meeting. Perhaps you'd care to reminisce over old times, mewled the eerie voice. Mab winked at me. Crap. She'd done that the last time I'd bumped into her, and once again no one else knew anything about it. I'd been indulging in wishful thinking, hoping she was fake. She was the real Mab. Mab showed me her teeth. Three favors you owed me, Mab said, sort of. Two yet remain. I am here to create an opportunity for you to remove one of them from our accounting. Uh-huh, I said. How are you going to do that? Her smile widened, showing me her delicately pointed canines. I am going to help you. Yeah, this couldn't be good. I tried to keep my voice steady and calm. What do you mean? Behold, Mab gestured with her right hand, and the layer of snow on the ground stirred and moved until it had risen into a sculpture of a building about eighteen inches high. It was like watching a sandcastle melt in reverse. I thought I recognized the building. Is that... The building the Lady Knight asked you to examine, confirmed Mab's surrogate voice. It's amazing what you can get used to if your daily allowance of bazaar is high enough. As it was before the working that rent it asunder. Other shapes began to form from the snow. Rather disconcertingly detailed shapes of cars rolled smoothly by beside the building, typical Chicago traffic, until one of them, an expensive town car, turned down the alley beside the building, the one I'd walked down not an hour before. I had to take a couple of steps to follow it as it came to a halt and stopped. The snow car's doors opened, and human shapes the size of old Star Wars action figures came hurrying out of the vehicle. I recognized them. The first was a flat-top, no-neck bruiser named Hendrix, Marcone's personal bodyguard and enforcer. His mother was a Kodiak bear, his father was an Abrams tank, and after he got out of the car, he reached back into it and came out with a light machine gun that he carried in one hand. While Hendrix was doing that, a woman got out of the other side of the car. Guard was tall, six feet or so, though Hendrix made her look petite. She wore a smart business suit with a long trench coat, and as I watched, she opened the car's trunk and removed a broadsword and an all-metal shield maybe two feet across. She passed her hand over the surface of the shield and then quickly covered it with a section of cloth that had apparently been cut to fit it. Both of them moved in a tense, precise, professionally concerned cadence. The third man out of the car was Marcone himself, a man of medium height and build, wearing a suit that cost more than my car, and he looked as relaxed and calm as he always did. Marcone was criminal scum, but I'll give the rat his due. He's got balls that drag the ground when he walks. Marcone's head whipped around abruptly, back down the alley the way they'd just come, though neither Hendrix nor Guard reacted with a similar motion. He produced a gun with such speed that it almost seemed magical, and little puffs of frost blazed out from the muzzle of the snow-sculpted weapon. Hendrix reacted immediately, turning to bring that monster weapon to bear, 
and tiny motes of blue light flashed down the alley, representing tracer fire. Guard put her shield and her body between Marcone and whatever was at the end of the alley. They hurried into a side door of the building, one that had been destroyed in the collapse. Hendricks followed, still spraying bursts of fire down the alley. He, too, vanished into the building. Hell's bells, I breathed. Marcone was inside? Mab flicked her hand in a slashing gesture, and the top two-thirds of the little snow building disintegrated under a miniature arctic gale. I was left with a cutaway image of the building's interior. Marcone and his bodyguards moved through the place like rats through a maze. They sprinted down a flight of stairs. At the bottom, Marcone stabbed at some kind of keypad with short, sharp, precise motions, and then looked up. Heavy sheets of what looked like steel fell into place at the top and bottom of the stairs simultaneously, and I could all but hear the ominous boom as they settled into place. Guard reached up and touched the center of the near door, and there was a flash of light bright enough to leave little spots in my vision. Then they hurried down a short hallway to another keypad and repeated the process. More doors, more flashes of light. Locking himself in, I muttered, frowning. Then I got it. Wards. Blast doors. It's a panic room. He built a panic room. Grimalkin made a low, lazy, yowling sound that I took for a murmur of agreement. My own apartment was set up with a similar set of protections, which I could invoke if absolutely necessary, though granted my setup was a little more Merlin and a little less Bond. But I had to wonder what the hell had rattled Marcone enough to send him scurrying for a deep hole. Then Guard's head snapped up, looking directly at where Mab currently stood, as if the little snow sculpture could somehow see the titanic form of the Winter Queen looking down upon her. Guard reached into her suit pocket, drew out what looked like a slender wooden box, the kind that really high-end pen sets come in sometimes, and took a small rectangular plaque of some kind from the box. She lifted it, facing Mab again, and snapped the little plaque in her fingers. The entire snow sculpture collapsed on itself and was gone. They saw the hidden camera, I muttered. Within her limits, the chooser is resourceful and clever, Mab replied. The Baron was wise to acquire her services. I glanced up at Mab. What happened? All sight was clouded for several moments. Then this. At another gesture, the building reformed. But this time little clouds of frost simulated thick smoke roiling all around it, obscuring many details. The whole image, in fact, looked hazier, grainier, as if Mab had chosen to form it out of snowflakes a few sizes too large to illustrate details. Even so, I recognized Marcone when he came stumbling out the front door of the building. Several forms hurried out behind him. They surrounded him. A plain van appeared out of the night and the unknown figures cast him through its open doors. Then they entered and were gone. As the van pulled away, the building shuddered and collapsed in on itself, sliding down into the wreckage and ruin I'd seen. I have chosen you to be my emissary, Mab said to me. You will repay me a favor owed. You will find the Baron. The hell I will, I said, before my brain had time to weigh in on the sentiment. Mab let out a low, throaty laugh. You will, wizard child, and you wish to survive. <laughs> you have no choice. 
Anger flared in my chest and shoved my brain aside on its way to my mouth. That wasn't our deal, I snapped. Our bargain stipulated that I would choose which favors to repay and that you would not coerce me. Mab's frozen berry lips lifted in a silent snarl, and the world turned into a curtain of white agony that centered on my eyes. Nothing had ever hurt so much. I fell down, but I wasn't lucky enough to hit my head and knock myself unconscious. I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't scream. Then there was something cold beside me, and something very soft and very cold touched my ear. I recognized the sensation. From the far side of the pain, lips, Mab's lips. The queen of air and darkness placed a gentle row of kisses down the outside ridge of my ear, then sucked the lobe into her mouth and bit down quite gently. In the other ear, I heard Grimalkin's voice speaking in a low, tense, hungry whisper, Mortal brute, whatever your past, whatever your future, Know this. I am Mab, and I keep my bargains. Question my given word again, ape, and I will finish freezing the water in your eyes. The pain receded to something merely torturous, and I clenched my teeth down hard over a scream. I could move again. I flinched away from her, scrambling until my back hit a wall. I covered my eyes with my hands and felt some of my frozen eyelashes snap. I sat there for a minute, struggling to control the pain, and my vision gradually faded from white to a deep red and then to black. I opened my eyes. I could barely focus them. I felt a wetness on my face, touched it with a finger. There was blood in my tears. I have not coerced you nor dispatched any agent of mine to do so, Mab continued, as if the break in the conversation had never happened. Nonetheless, if you wish to survive, you will serve me. I assure you that Summer's agents will not rest until you are dead. I stared at her for a second, still half-dazed from the pain, and once again deeply, sincerely, and wisely frightened. This is another point of contention between you and Titania. When one court moves, the other perforce moves with it, Mab said. I croaked. Titania wants Marcone dead? Put simply, she replied. And her emissary will continue to seek your death. Only by finding and saving the Baron's life will you preserve your own. She paused. Unless... Unless? Unless you should agree to take up the mantle of the winter night, Mab said, smiling. I should be forced to choose another emissary if you did, and your involvement in this matter could end. Her eyelids lowered, sleepily sensual, and her surrogate voice turned liquid, heady, an audible caress. As my night... You would know power and pleasure that few mortals have tasted. The Winter Knight, the mortal champion of the Winter Court. The previous guy who had that job was, when last I knew, still crucified upon a frozen tree within bonds of ice, tortured to the point of death, and then made whole only to begin the process again. 
he'd lost his sanity somewhere in one of the cycles. He wasn't a real nice guy when I knew him, but no human being should have to suffer like that. No, I said. I don't want to end up like Lloyd Slate. He suffers for your decision, she said. He remains alive until you take up the mantle. Accept my offer, wizard child. Give him release. Preserve your life. Taste of power like none you have known. Her eyes seemed to grow larger, becoming almost luminous, and her not voice was a narcotic, a promise. There is much I can teach you. A decent person would have rejected her offer out of hand. I'm not always one of those. I could offer you some excuses, if you like. I could tell you that I was an orphan by the time I was six. I could tell you that the foster father who eventually raised me subjected me to more forms of psychological and physical abuse than you could shake a stick at. I could tell you that I've been held in unjust suspicion for my entire adult life by the White Council, whose principles and ideals I've done my best to uphold. Or maybe I could say that I'd seen too many good people get hurt, or that I'd looked upon a lot of nasty things with my indelible wizard's sight. I could tell you that I'd been caught and abused by the creatures of the night myself, and that I'd never really gotten over it. I could tell you that I hadn't gotten laid in a really long time. And all of those things would be true. But the fact of the matter is that there's simply a part of me that isn't so nice. There's a part of me that gets off on laying waste to my enemies with my power, that gets tired of taking undeserved abuse. There's this little voice inside my head that sometimes wants to throw the rules away, stop trying to be responsible, and just take what I want. And for a minute, I wondered what it might be like to accept Mab's offer. Life among the she would be intense in every sense a mortal could imagine. What would it be like to live in a house? Hell, probably a big house, if not a freaking castle. Money. Hot showers every day. Every meal a feast. I'd be able to afford whatever clothes I wanted, whatever cars I wanted. Maybe I could do some traveling, see places I'd always wanted to see. Hawaii. Italy. Australia. I could learn to sail, like I always wanted. Women. Oh, yeah. Hot and cold running girls. Inhumanly beautiful, sensuous creatures like the one before me. The winter night had status and power, and those are even more of an aphrodisiac to the fae than they are to us mortals. I could have almost anything. All it would cost me was my soul. And no, I'm not talking about anything magical or metaphysical. I'm talking about the core of my identity about what makes Harry Dresden who and what he is. If I lost those things, the things that define me, then what would be left? Just a heap of bodily processes and regret. I knew that, but all the same. A touch of Mab's chilled lips on my ear lingered on, sending slow, pleasant ripples of sensation through me when I breathed. It was enough to make me hesitate. No, Mab, I said finally. I don't want the job. She studied my face with calm, heavy eyes. Liar, she said quietly. You want it. I can see it in you. I gritted my teeth. The part of me that wants it doesn't get a vote, I said. I'm not going to take the job, period. 
She tilted her head to one side and stared at me. One day, wizard, you will kneel at my feet and ask me to bestow the mantle upon you. But not today. No, Mab said. Today you repay me a favor, just as I said you would. I didn't want to think too hard about that, and I didn't want to openly agree with her either. So instead I nodded at the patch of ground where the sculptures had been. Who took Marcon? I do not know. That is one reason I chose you, Emissary. You have a gift for finding what is lost. If you want me to do this for you, I'm going to need to ask you some questions, I said. Mab glanced up, as if consulting the stars through the still-falling snow. Time, time, time. Will there never be an end to it? She shook her head. Wizard child, the hour has nearly passed. I have duties upon which to attend, as do you. You should rise and leave this place immediately. Why? I asked warily. I got to my feet. Because when your little retainer warned you of danger, wizard child, he was not referring to me. On the street outside the alley, the gale-force wind and the white wall of blowing snow both died away. On the other side of the street, two men in long coats and big Stetson hats stood facing the alley. I felt the sudden weight of their attention and got the impression that they had been surprised to see me. I whirled to speak to Mab, only to find her gone. Grimalkin, too, both of them, vanished without a trace or a whisper of power to betray it. I turned back to the street in time to see the two figures step off the sidewalk and begin moving toward me with long strides. They were both tall, nearly my own height, and thickly built. The snowfall hadn't lightened, and the street was a smooth pane of unbroken snow. They were leaving cloven footprints on it. Crap! I spat and fled back down the narrow, featureless alley. Chapter 7 At this sign of retreat, the two men threw back their heads and let out shrill, bleeding cries. Their hats fell off when they did, revealing the goat-like features and curling horns of gruffs. But they were bigger than the first attack team. Bigger, stronger, and faster. And as they closed the distance on me, I noticed something else. Both of them had produced submachine guns from beneath their coats. Oh, come on, I complained as I ran. That's just not fair. They started shooting at me, which was bad news. Wizard or not, a bullet through the head will splatter my brains just as randomly as the next guy's. The really bad news was that they weren't just spraying bullets everywhere. Even with an automatic weapon, it isn't easy to hit a moving target, and the old spray-and-pray method of fire relied upon blind luck disguised as a law of averages. Shoot enough bullets, and eventually you have to hit something. Do your shooting like that, and sometimes you'll hit the target, and sometimes you won't. But the gruffs shot like professionals. They fired in short, burping little bursts, aimed fire, even if it suffered from the fact that they were moving while they did it. I felt something hit my back, just to the left of my spine, an impact that felt somewhat like getting slugged in the back by someone with a single knuckle extended. It was a sharp, unpleasant sensation, and the way my balance wavered was more due to the fact that it surprised and frightened me than to the actual force it imparted. I kept running, ducking my head down as far as I could, hunching up my shoulders. The defensive magics woven into my coat 
could evidently stop whatever rounds the gruffs were using, but that didn't mean an unlucky ricochet couldn't bounce some lead into me from the front or sides around the coat. And getting shot in the lower legs, ankles, or feet would probably kill me as certainly as one through the head. It would just take a little more effort on the gruff's part to make it stick. It's hard to think when someone's trying to kill you. We human beings aren't wired to be rational and creative when we know our lives are in danger of a swift and violent end. The body has definite ideas of which survival strategies it prefers to embrace, and those are generally limited to rip threat to pieces or run like hell. No thinking need be involved as far as our instincts are concerned. Our instincts were a long time in the making, though, and the threats that can come after us now have outpaced them. You can't outrun a bullet and you don't go hand-to-hand -hand with a gunman unless you're certain you are about to die anyway. Speed and mindless aggression weren't going to keep me alive. I needed to figure a way out. I felt another bullet hit the lower part of my coat. It caught spell-strengthened leather and tugged it forward, just the way a thrown rock might have done. Admittedly, though, the rock wouldn't have made that angry hornet buzzing noise as it struck. I dumped a garbage can over behind me, hoping it might trip up the gruffs for a second and buy me a little time. Hey, you try coming up with a cogent, rational course of action when you're running down a frozen alley with genuine fairy tale creatures chasing you, spitting bullets at your back. It's way harder than it looks. I didn't dare turn to face them. I could have raised a shield to stop the gunfire, but once I had stopped moving, I figured odds were fantastic that one of them would just hop over me like a kung fu theater extra, and they'd come at me from two directions at once. In fact, if I were them, and had tracked me to that alley, the chattering gunfire from behind me ceased and I realized what was happening. I raised my staff as I neared the far end of the alley, pointed it ahead of me, and screamed, Forzare! My timing wasn't perfect. The unseen force I released from the end of the staff rushed out ahead of me, an invisible battering ram. It struck the third gruff just as the fey thug stepped around the corner, a massive oak cudgel readied in his hands. The blast didn't hit him squarely. It would have thrown him a goodly ways if it had. Instead, it caught the right side of his body, ripping the cudgel away from him and sending the gruff into a drunken, spinning stagger. I don't know much about goats, but I do know a little about horses, having taken care of my second mentor, Ebenezer McCoy's riding horses on his little farm in Missouri. Their feet are awfully vulnerable, especially considering how much weight they're putting on such a relatively small area. Any one of a hundred little things can go wrong. One of them is the possibility that some of the surprisingly frail little bones just above the back of the hoof could be fractured or broken. A pasturn or fetlock injury like that can lame a horse for weeks, even permanently. So, as I passed the staggered gruff, I swung my heavy staff like a baseball bat, aiming at the back of one of his hooves. I felt the impact in my hands and heard a sharp crack. The gruff let out a high-pitched and utterly bestial scream of surprise and pain and tumbled to the snow. I all but flew on by, lengthening my stride, crossing the street and heading for the nearest corner before his buddies could get a clear shot at me. When you drive game, you damn well better be sure that the one you're driving the prey toward is ready and able to handle it. I ducked around the next corner maybe half a second before the guns behind me coughed and burped again, chewing chips of brick from the wall. There was a steel door on the side of the building, an exit-only door with no handle on the outside. I couldn't stay ahead of the gruffs for long. I took a chance, stopped, and pressed my hand against the door, hoping like hell it had a push-bar opening mechanism and not a deadbolt. Something went right. I felt the bar on the other side, reached out with my will, 
and another murmur, Forzare, and directed the force against the other side of the door. It popped open. I went through and pulled it shut behind me. The building was dark, silent, and almost uncomfortably warm in contrast with the night outside. I leaned my head against the metal door for a second, panting. Good door, I wheezed. Nice door, nice, locked, hostile, Teferi's door. My ear was in contact with the door, and it was the only reason I heard the movement immediately on its other side. Snow crunched quietly. I froze in place. I heard a scraping sound, and a snorted breath that sounded like something you'd hear from a horse. And then nothing. It took me maybe three seconds to realize that the gruff on the other side of the door was doing the same thing I was, listening to see if he could hear who was on the other side. It couldn't have been more than six inches away and I was standing there in complete darkness. If something went wrong and the gruff came in after me, I could forget running. I couldn't see the floor, the walls, or any obstacles that might trip me up, like stairs or a mound of rusty razor blades. I froze, not daring to move. Metal door or not, if the gruff had the right submachine gun and the right kind of ammunition, he could riddle me with holes right through the steel. There was no telling what other weapons he might be packing either. I'd once seen a sobering demonstration of how to skewer someone on a sword from the other side of a metal door, and it hadn't been pretty. So I stood very still and tried to think quietly. It was about then that I remembered one of those movies with the maniac in the ghost mask where one of the kids in the opening segment leans against the bathroom stall, listening exactly the same way I was. The killer... In the neighboring stall, rams a knife into the victim's ear. It was a panic-inducing thought, and suddenly I had to fight the urge to bolt. My ear began to itch furiously. If I hadn't known that the gruffs were trying to flush me out like a rabbit from his briar patch, I might not have managed to keep my cool. It was a near thing, but I did it. A week and a half went by before I heard another exhalation from a larger-than-human chest and a pair of quick, light crunches of cloven hooves on snow. I pushed away from the door as silently as I could, trembling with adrenaline, fatigue, and cold. I had to think ahead of these assholes if I wanted to get out in one piece. Inky, Binky, and Pinky knew I'd come in here, and they weren't about to give up the chase. Right now, one of them was watching the door I'd come in to make sure I didn't backtrack. The other two were circling the building, looking for a way in. I was pretty sure I didn't want to be hanging around when they found it. I drew off the pentacle amulet I wore around my neck, murmured, and made a tiny effort of will. The amulet began to glow with gentle blue light. I stood in a utility corridor of some kind. Bare concrete floor met unpainted drywall. There were a couple of doors on the right side of the hall and another one at the far end. I checked them out. The first door opened into a room containing several commercial-grade heating and air conditioning units all hooked up to a ductwork octopus. No help there. The next room was padlocked shut. I felt a little bad for doing it, but I lifted my staff, took a moment to close my eyes and concentrate, and then sent another pulse of energy down the rune-carved length of wood, this time focused into a blade of pure force. It sliced through the hasp and bit into the heavy wood of the door behind it. The lock fell to the floor, its cleanly severed steel glowing dull orange at the edges. The room beyond was probably the workshop of the building's handyman. It wasn't large, but it was neatly organized. It held a woodworking bench, tools, and various supplies, light bulbs, 
air filters for the units next door, replacement parts for doors, sinks, and toilets. I availed myself of a few things and dropped my last two twenties onto the workbench by way of apology. Then I stalked back out into the hallway and continued into the building. The next door was locked, too. I jimmied it open with a crowbar I'd taken from the tool room. It made some noise. A deep-throated ball of animal sound came from the far side of the metal door. Something slammed against it, but not hard enough to bring it down. And the sound was followed by an immediate yowl of pain. I bared my teeth in a grin. The far side of the door opened onto the lobby of an office building, very sparse. A light was blinking on a panel with a keypad on it next to the door I just forced open. Apparently, I had triggered the building's security system. That was fine by me. The nearest police station was only a little more than a block from here, and the lights and the appearance of mortal police officers would probably make the gruffs fade and wait for a better moment to settle my hash. But wait, if the building had a security system, I had to have tripped it when I came in the side door, and that had been a couple of minutes ago. Why hadn't the cops shown up already? The weather, most likely. Travel would be slow. Lines would be down, causing all kinds of power and communication problems. There would be traffic accidents everywhere there was traffic, and in the wake of all the manpower diverted to Marcone's wrecked building, the station would be overloaded with work, even this late at night. It might take several minutes longer than usual for the police to respond. A shadow moved outside the building's front door, and one of the gruffs appeared there. I didn't have minutes. I was moving before I had consciously recognized the fact, running for the elevators. The steel security gate inside the door would prevent the gruff from crashing through the glass to come at me, but that didn't stop the gruff from lifting its submachine gun and opening up on me. The gun sounded like heavy canvas ripping, only a thousand times louder. The window shattered and glass flew everywhere. Some of the bullets struck the security gate, throwing off sparks, most of them shattering, a couple bouncing wildly around the lobby. The rest came at me. I had my left hand stretched out toward the gruff as I ran, and my will was focused on the bracelet on my wrist. Made of a braid of many metals, the chain of the bracelet was hung with multiple charms in the shape of medieval shields. The power of my will rushed into the bracelet, focused by the enchantments I'd laid upon it when I had prepared it. My will coalesced into a concave dome of barely visible blue energy between me and the gruff, and bullets slammed against it, shattering in bursts of light that rippled over the surface of the energy shield like tiny waves in a still pond. All three of the elevator doors stood open, and I rushed into the nearest and rapidly hit the buttons for every floor up to the top of the building. Then I leapt out, repeated the process in the second elevator, and then jumped into the third and headed straight for the top. No sense in making it easy for the gruffs to follow me up, and even a moment's delay might buy me the time I needed. The elevator doors closed and buzzed, and sprang open again. Oh, come on! I shouted, and hit the closed door button hard enough to hurt my thumb. I growled and watched as the elevator twitched closed again, and then once more sprang open, a sad little ding emerging from a half-functioning bell. I was jabbing the button like a lunatic when the gruffs demonstrated their opinion of mortal security systems. Sure, the touch of metal was anathema to the beings of fairy. Sure, they couldn't hammer their way through a metal door or bash through a heavy metal gate. Brick walls, on the other hand, presented fewer problems. There was a thundercrack of sound, and the wall beside the front door exploded inward. I don't mean it fell in. It literally exploded, 
as the momentum of a superhumanly powerful being struck the wall from the far side and shattered it. Bits of brick flew like bullets, a ceramic pot holding a plastic plant shattered. Several pieces zipped into the elevator and bounced around inside of it. A cloud of brick dust billowed through the lobby. The gruff who had just won up the big bad wolf bowled its way through the cloud, curling ram's horns first. It staggered a step or two, shaking its head, then focused on me and let out another bleating howl. Ah! I screamed at the elevator, jabbing the button. Close! 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 It did. The car began rising just as the stunned gruff brought his weapon to bear and opened up. Bullets ripped through the relatively flimsy metal of the elevator's door, but my shield bracelet was ready, and none of them found their target, who let out a howling, adrenaline, drunken laugh of defiance as the elevator rose. What they say is true. There's nothing as exhilarating as being shot at and missed. When the shooter happens to be a fairy tale hitman, it just adds to the zest. Fourteen floors later, I emerged into a darkened hallway, and guided by the light of my upraised amulet, I found the door to the roof. It was an exterior door with a heavy deadbolt, and there was no way that the crowbar was going to get it open. I took a step back, lifted my staff, and focused my will on the door. Once upon a time, I would have just let fly with my will and blasted it right out of its frame, a fairly exhausting bit of spellcraft. Instead, I pointed the end of the staff at the bottommost hinge on this side and barked, Fozari! A blade of unseen energy, like that I had used on the padlock, severed the hinge with a miniature crack of thunder. I did it for the middle and lower hinges, too, then used the crowbar to pry the heavy door out of its setting and hurried out onto the roof. There was a lot of wind up this high, even though the night was fairly calm. The towers of the city could funnel even a mild breeze into a virtual gale, and tonight this rooftop was on the receiving end. The wind ripped my coat out to one side, and I had to lean against it. At least there wasn't much snow, except where a portion of architecture created a lee against the wind. There it was piled deep. It took me a second to orient. When you're fourteen floors up, it gives you an alien perspective of streets and buildings that might otherwise be familiar. I figured out which side of the building I'd come in on and hurried to it, searching for the escape route I'd spotted on the way in. It wasn't the fire escapes which decorated two sides of the building in a weathered steel framework. Those things are noisy as hell, and the gruffs would be watching them. Instead, I leaned out over the edge and looked at the niche in the brick wall. It ran the entire vertical length of the building, a groove about three feet wide and two feet deep. There was one on either side of each corner of the building, probably there for the aesthetic value, rising like a three-walled chimney from the ground to the roof. My breath went a little short. Fourteen floors is a much longer way down than it is up, especially when you aren't using things like elevators and fire escapes, especially when I noted the frost and ice forming on the building's exterior. I took a moment to debate the sanity of this plan. I'd cut the odds in my favor, assuming there were only three gruffs after me this time. One would have to watch the elevators, another would have to watch the fire escape. That left only one to actively pursue me. I didn't know how fast the gruff would get to the roof, but I had no doubt that he'd manage it in short order. The idea of simply pushing the gruff off the roof with a blast of power had a certain appeal, but I decided against it. A fourteen-story drop might just piss the gruff off, and it would absolutely confirm my location. Better to slip away and leave them wondering if I was still hiding in the building. So I climbed out onto the ledge amidst gusting winds. 
My nose and fingers went numb almost immediately. I tried to ignore them as I lowered my legs into the groove in the wall and braced my feet against the bricks on either side. Then, my heart pounding madly, I shifted my hips and wriggled a bit until the outward pressure of my legs against the bricks was the only thing that kept me from kissing sidewalk. Once my arms were low enough, I was able to spread them and plant my forearms against the bricks as well, assisting my legs. I cannot possibly explain to you how frightened I was, staring down. The swirling snow kept me from seeing the ground at times. Once I started, there would be no going back. One slip, one miscalculation, one inconveniently placed patch of ice, and I would be able to add pancake to my impersonation repertoire. I pushed hard with my arms and let my legs loosen. I slid them down a few inches and tightened them again, until they supported my weight once more. Then I loosened my arms and slid down a few inches before stopping, tightening my arms again, and repeating the process. I started climbing down, shifting my legs and arms in turn, five or six inches at a time, moving down the brick groove inchworm style. I made it about ten feet before an image invaded my mind. A gruff aiming his gun down at me from a couple of feet away and casually popping several rounds through the top of my head. I started climbing faster, my stomach turning with reaction to the height and the fear. I heard myself making desperate little grunting sounds. The wind howled, blowing snow into my eyes. Frost formed on my eyelashes. My coat did little to protect me from the wind swirling the length of my body, and I started shaking uncontrollably. I lost the staff when I was about fifty feet up. It tumbled from my numbing fingers, and I held my breath. The rattle of its impact could attract the gruff's attention and ruin the whole purpose of taking the madman route off the building. But the solid length of oak fell into a drift of snow and vanished silently into the white powder. I labored to emulate it, only less quickly. I didn't slip until I was ten feet up. I managed to take the fall well, mostly because I landed in the same snowdrift that had received my staff. I struggled up out of the freezing white and almost went back down when my staff tangled in my legs. I took it up in mostly nerveless hands and staggered out of the drift. A sphere of light whipped past the other end of the alley, then reappeared and shot toward me. Toot Toot's face was unusually sober, even grim. He zipped up to me and held a finger to his lips. I nodded at him and mouthed, I need to know how to get out. Toot's sphere of light bobbed once in acknowledgement and then sped away. I looked up. Other balls of glowing light darted about the skies, flickers that you would barely even notice if you didn't know what to look for. I took a precaution while I waited. As before, I didn't wait long. Toot returned a moment later and beckoned me. He took the lead and I followed him. I was getting colder. The fall into the drift had covered me in a light layer of snow, which had then melted. Wet clothes are exactly the worst thing to be wearing in that kind of weather. I had to keep moving. Hypothermia isn't as dramatic a death as being ripped apart by bullets, but it'll get the job done. When I got to the far end of the alley, I heard another bleating cry from a gruff, drifting on the moaning wind, softened by the falling snow. I glanced back and just barely saw motion as a gruff descended the side of the building the same way I had, though much more swiftly. A second later, there was an agonized, inhuman scream as the gruff got to the bottom and discovered that the snow had hidden the box of nails that I had stolen from the tool room and spread liberally over the ground. The screams went on for several seconds. One of the nails must have pierced the gruff's hoof, 
and as tired and cold as I was, I still had energy enough to grin. That one wasn't going to be dancing in elf circles anytime soon. I'd lamed two of them and figured it would be enough to make them back off the chase, at least for the moment, but you never can tell. I wasted no time in following Toot through back alleys and away from the chosen emissaries of summer. Around me, the little glowing Christmas balls of light, the Zaw Lord's guard, darted back and forth, a wary ring of sentinels spread in a perimeter that moved as I did. Several blocks away, I found an all-night grocery store and staggered in out of the cold. The clerk glared at me until I hobbled over, clumsily dug change out of my pockets, and left it next to the cash register before shuffling to the coffee counter. At that point, the clerk evidently decided that he wouldn't have to get out the shotgun or whatever he had behind the counter and went back to staring out the window. There were a few other shoppers there, and I saw a police car crunch through the snow on the street outside, probably responding to the alarm at the building. Nice and public. Probably safe. I was so cold, I could barely fill up the cup. The coffee burned my tongue a little, which was absolutely delicious, even served black. I guzzled the hot drink and felt sensation begin returning to my body. I stood there for a moment with my eyes closed and finished the coffee, and I crushed the paper cup and tossed it into the trash. Someone had snatched John Marcone, and I had to find him and protect him. I had a feeling that Murphy wasn't going to be thrilled with the circumstances around this one. Hell's bells, I wasn't happy with it. But that really wasn't what was bothering me. What really worried me was that Mab had been involved. What was the deal with having Grimalkin along to do her talking for her? Aside from making her seem even more extremely disturbing than usual, I mean. Oh, sure. Mab may have seemed fairly straightforward, but there was a lot more going on than she was saying. For example, Mab had said that Summer's hitmen were after me because Mab had chosen me to be her emissary. But for that to be true, she had to have done it hours ago, at least a little while before the first crew of gruffs had attacked me at the carpenter place. And that had happened several hours before the bad guys grabbed Marcone. Someone was running a game, all right. Someone was keeping secrets. I had a bad feeling that if I didn't find out who, why, and how, Mab would toss me into the trash like a used paper cup. Right after she crushed me, of course. Chapter 8 A wide-axled, full-of-itself military wannabe truck crunched through the snowy streets and came to a halt outside the little grocery store. The lights glared in through the doors. I squinted at it. After a minute, the Hummer's horn blared in two short beeps. Oh, you gotta be kidding me, I muttered. I hobbled to the door and out to the truck, which blended seamlessly with the background and the foreground and with most of the air. The driver's side window rolled down and revealed a young man whom fathers of teenage daughters would shoot on sight. He had pale skin and deep gray eyes. His dark, slightly curly hair was long enough to declare casual rebellion and tousled to careless perfection. He wore a black leather jacket and a white shirt, both of them more expensive than any two pieces of furniture in my apartment. In marked contrast, there was a scarf, inexpertly crocheted from thick white yarn around his neck, under the collar of the jacket. He faced straight ahead so that I saw only his profile, but I felt confident that he was smirking on the other side of his face, too. Thomas, I said, a lesser man than me would hate you. 
He grinned. There's someone lesser than you. He rolled his eyes to me on the last word, to deadpan the delivery, and his face froze in an expression of absolute neutrality. He stayed that way for a few seconds. Empty night, Harry. You look like... Ten miles a bad road. He forced a smile onto his mouth, but that was as far as it went. I was going to go with Raccoon. Gee, thanks. Get in. He took the monorail to the other side of the Hummer's cab to unlock the passenger side door. I showed up eventually and noticed every little ache in my body on the way, especially the throbbing burn centered on my broken nose. I tossed my staff onto the back of Das Truck, half expecting an echoing clatter when it landed. I got in, shut the door, and put on my seatbelt while Thomas got the truck moving. He peered carefully into the heavy snow, presumably looking for some runty little sedans he could drive over for fun. Well, that's got to hurt, he said after a moment. Only when I exhale, I said testily. What took you so long? Well, you know how much I love getting called in the middle of the night to drive through snow and ice to play chauffeur for grumpy low-life investigators. The anticipation slowed me down. I grunted in what might have been construed as an apologetic manner by someone who knew me. Thomas did. What's up? I told him everything. Thomas is my half-brother, my only family. I'm allowed. He listened. And then, I concluded, I went for a ride in a monster truck. Thomas's mouth twitched up in a quick smile. It is kind of butch, isn't it? I squinted around the truck. Do TV shows start an hour later in the back seat than they do up here? Who cares, Thomas said. It's got TiVo. Good, I said. It might be a little while before I return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thomas let out a theatrical sigh. Why me? Because if I want to find Marcone, the best place to start is with his people. If word gets out that he's gone missing, there's no telling how some of them might react when I come snooping around. So you've got my back. What if I don't want your back? Cope, I said heartlessly. Your family. You've got me there, he admitted. But I wonder if you've thought this through very thoroughly. I try to make thinking an ongoing process. Thomas shook his head. Look, you know I don't try to tell you your business. Except tonight, apparently, I said. Marcone is a grown-up, Thomas said. He signed on to the accords willingly. He knew what he was going to be letting himself in for. And, I said. And it's a jungle out there, Thomas said. He squinted through the thick snow, metaphorically speaking. I grunted. He made his bed and I should let him lie in it. Something like that, Thomas said. And don't forget that Murphy and the police aren't going to be thrilled with a Save the Kingpin campaign. I know, I said, and I'd love to stand back and see what happens. But this isn't about Marcone anymore. Then what is it about? Mab skinning me alive if I don't give her what she wants? Come on, Harry, Thomas said. You really can't think that Mab's motives and plans are that direct, that cut and dried. He adjusted the setting of the Hummer's wipers. She wants Marcone for a reason. You might not be doing him any favors by saving him on Mab's behalf. I scowled out at the night. He held up a hand, ticking off fingers. And that's assuming that, one, he's alive at all right now, two, that you can find him, three, that you can get him out alive, and four, that the opposition doesn't cripple or kill you. What's your point? I asked. 
that you're playing against a stacked deck, and that you have no idea if Mab is going to be there to cover your bets when the bad guys call. He shook his head. It would be smarter for you to skip town, go someplace warm for a few weeks. Mab might take that kind of personal, I said. Mab's a businesswoman, Thomas said. Creepy and weird, but she's cold, too. Calculating. As long as you still represent a potential recruit to her, I doubt she'd elect to depreciate your value prematurely. Depreciate? I like that. You might be right. Unless, to return to the original metaphor, Mab isn't playing with a full deck, which the evidence of recent years seems to imply with increasing frequency. I nodded out the window. And I've got a feeling that I'd have had even more trouble with the gruffs I've seen so far if we weren't in the middle of a freaking blizzard. If I waltz off to Miami or somewhere warm, I'll be putting myself that much nearer to the agents of Summer, who are also planning my murder. Thomas frowned and said nothing. I could run, but I couldn't hide, I said. Better to face it here, on my home ground, while I'm still relatively rested. I let out a huge and genuine yawn. Instead of waiting for fairy goons from one court or the other to uh, depreciate me by surprise after I'd been on the run for a few weeks, what about the council? Thomas demanded. You've been wearing the gray cloak for how long now? And you fought for them how many times? I shook my head. Right now the council is still stretched to the limit. We might not be in open battle with the Red Court at the moment, but the council and the wardens have got years of catch-up work to do. I felt my jaw tighten. Lots of warlocks have come up in the past few years. The wardens are working overtime to get them under control. You mean kill them, Thomas said. I mean kill them. Most of them teenagers, man. I shook my head. Lucio knows my feelings on the matter. She refuses to assign any of it to me. Which means that the other wardens are forced to pick up the slack. I'm not going to add to their workload by dragging them into this mess. You don't seem to mind adding to mine, Thomas noted. I snorted. That's because I respect them. So long as we have that clear, he said. We drove past a city snowplow. It had foundered in a deep drift, like some kind of metallic ice age beast trapped in a tar pit. I watched it with bemusement as Thomas's truck crunched slowly, steadily on by. By the way, he asked, where do you want to go? First things first, I said. I need food. You need sleep. Tick-tock, food will do for now. I pointed. There, an IHOP. He hauled the big truck into a slow, steady turn. Then what? I ask people impertinent questions, I said, hopefully turning up pertinent answers. Assuming someone doesn't kill you while you do? That's why I'm bringing my very own vampire bodyguard. Thomas parked across three spaces in the tiny, otherwise unoccupied lot of an international house of pancakes. I like the scarf, I said. I leaned over and inhaled through my nose as best I could. It stung, but I detected a faint whiff of vanilla and strawberries. She make it for you? Thomas nodded without saying anything. The leather-gloved fingers of one hand traced over the soft, simple yarn. He looked quietly sad. I felt bad for mentioning Justine, my brother's lost lover. Then I understood why he wore the gloves. If she'd made it for him a token of her love. He didn't dare touch it with his skin. It would sear him like a hot skillet. So he kept it close enough for him to smell her touch upon it, but he didn't dare let it brush against him. Every time I think my romantic life is a wasteland, I look at my brother 
and see how much worse it could be. Thomas shook his head and killed the engine, and we sat for a moment in silence. So I clearly heard a deep male voice outside the truck say, Don't either of you move. There was a distinct click-clack of a shotgun's pump working, or I will kill you. Chapter 9 When there's a gun pointed at you, you've got two options. Either you move fast and unexpectedly and hope that you get lucky, or you freeze and try to talk your way clear. Given that I had really limited room in which to attempt to dodge or run, I went with option B. I held still. I don't suppose, I asked hopefully, that this is the full military model? It has individually heated seats and a six-disc CD changer, Thomas said. I scowled. Uh-huh. Those are way cooler than silly features like armor and bulletproof glass. Hey, Thomas said. It's not my fault that you have special needs. Harry, said the man with the shotgun. Hold up your right hand, please. I arched an eyebrow at that. Typically, the vocabulary of thugs holding guns to your head ran a little light on courtesy phrases like, please. You want me to kill him? Thomas murmured, barely audible. I twitched my head in a tiny negative motion. Then I lifted up my right hand, fingers spread. Turn it around, said the man outside. Let me see the inside of your wrist. I did. Oh, thank God, breathed the voice. I'd finally placed it. I turned my head to one side and said through the glass, Hey there, Fix. Is that a shotgun you're holding to my head, or are you just glad to see me? Fix was a young, slender man of medium height. His hair was silver white and very fine, and though no one would ever accuse him of beauty, there was a confidence and surety in his plain features that gave them a certain appeal. He was a far cry from the nervous, scrawny kid I'd met several years ago. He wore jeans and a green silk shirt, nothing more. He obviously should have been freezing, and he just as obviously wasn't. The thickly falling snowflakes weren't striking him. Every single one seemed to find its way to the ground around him, somehow. He held a pump-action shotgun with a long barrel against his shoulder and wore a sword on a belt at his hip. Harry, he said, his voice steady. His tone wasn't hostile. Can we have a polite talk? We probably could have, I said, if you hadn't started off by pointing a gun at my head. Unnecessary precaution, he said. I needed to be sure you hadn't taken Mab's offer. And become the new Winter Knight, I asked. You could have asked me, Fix. If you'd become Mab's creature, Fix said, you would have lied. It would have changed you, made you an extension of her will. I couldn't trust you. You're the Summer Knight, I replied. So I can't help but wonder if that wouldn't make you just as controlled and untrustworthy. Summer's not at all happy with me right now, apparently. Maybe you're just an extension of Summer's will. Fix stared at me down the barrel of the shotgun, and then he lowered it abruptly and said, Touché. Thomas produced from nowhere a semi-automatic pistol scaled to fit his truck and had it trained on Fix's head before the other man had finished speaking the second syllable of the word. Fix's eyes widened. Holy crap. I sighed and took the gun gently from Thomas's grip. Now, now, let's not give him the wrong idea about the nature of this conversation. Fix let out a slow breath. Thank you, Harry, I... I pointed the gun at Fix's head, and he froze with his mouth partly open. Lose the shotgun, I told him. 
I made no effort to sound friendly. His mouth closed and his lips pressed into a thin line, but he obeyed. Step back, I said. He did it. I got out of the car, carefully keeping the gun trained on his head. I recovered the shotgun and passed it back to Thomas. Then I faced the silver-haired summer night in dead silence while the snow fell. Fix, I said quietly, after a moment had passed. I know you've been spending a lot of time in the supernatural circles lately. I know that plain old things like guns don't seem like a significant threat in some ways. I know that you probably meant it as a message, that you weren't coming after me with everything you could bring to bear, and that I was supposed to consider it a token of moderation. I squinted down the sight of Thomas's gun. But you crossed a line. You pointed a gun at my head. Friends don't do that. More silence and snowfall. Point another weapon at me, I said quietly, and you damn well better pull the trigger. Do you understand me? Fix's eyes narrowed. He nodded once. I let him look down the gun's barrel for a few more seconds, and then lowered it. It's cold, I said. What do you want? I came here to warn you, Harry, Fix said. I know Mab has chosen you to act as her emissary. You don't know what you're getting into. I came to tell you to stand clear of it. Or what? Or you're going to get hurt, Fix said quietly. He sounded tired. Maybe killed. And there's going to be collateral damage along the way. He held up a hand and continued hurriedly. Please understand. I'm not threatening you, Harry. I'm just telling you about consequences. I'd have an easier time believing that if you hadn't opened the conversation by threatening to kill me, I said. The last summer night was murdered by his winter counterpart. Fix replied. In fact, that's how most of them die. If you'd taken service with Mab, I wouldn't stand a chance in a fair fight against you, and we both know it. I did what I had to do in order to warn you and still protect myself. Oh, I said. It was a precautionary shotgun aimed at my skull. That makes it different. Damn it, Dresden, Fix said. What do I have to do to get you to listen to me? Behave in a vaguely trustworthy fashion, I said. For instance, next time you know that Summer's hitters are about to make a run at me, maybe you could call me on a telephone and give me a little heads up. Fix grimaced, his face twisted into an expression of effort. When he spoke, his jaws stayed locked together, but I could with difficulty understand the words. Wanted to. Oh, I said. A big chunk of my anger evaporated. It was probably just as well. Fix wasn't the one who deserved to be on the receiving end of it. I can't back off. He drew in a breath and nodded as if in comprehension. Mab's got a handle on you. For now. He gave me a rather bleak smile. She isn't the sort to let go of anyone she wants to keep. And I'm not the sort who gets kept, I replied. Maybe not, Fix said, but he sounded dubious. Are you sure you won't reconsider? We're going to have to agree to disagree. Jesus, Fix said, looking away. I don't want to square off against you, Dresden. Then don't. He stared quietly at me, his expression serious. I can't back off either. I like you, Harry, but I can't make you any promises. We're playing for opposite teams, I said. Nothing personal, but we'll do what we have to do. Fix nodded. We didn't speak for almost a minute. Then I laid the shotgun down in the snow nodded, and got back into Thomas's truck. I gave the huge automatic back to my brother. Fix made no move toward the shotgun. Harry! 
he said as the truck started to pull out. His mouth twitched a few times before he blurted, Remember the leaf Lily gave you? I frowned at him, but nodded. Thomas got the truck moving again and started driving. Windshield wipers squeaked. Snow crunched beneath tires. A steady white noise. Okay, Thomas said. What was that all about? Guy's supposed to be a friend and he screwed you over. I thought you were going to pistol whip him for a minute. Then you start getting all teary-eyed. Metaphorically speaking, I said tiredly. You know what I mean. He's under a gias, Thomas. Thomas frowned. Lily's got him in a brain lock? I doubt she'd do that to fix. They go back. Who then? My money's on Titania, the Summer Queen. If she told him to keep his mouth shut and not help me, he wouldn't get a choice in the matter. Probably why he showed up armed and tried to intimidate me. He wouldn't be able to speak to me outright, but if he's delivering a threat in order to further Titania's plans, it might let him get around the Gios. Seems pretty thin to me. You believe him? Titania's done it to him before, and she doesn't really like me. You kill someone's daughter, that happens, he said. I shrugged wearily, tired to my bones. The combination of pain, cold, and multiple bursts of adrenaline had worn me down a lot more than I had realized. I couldn't stop another yawn. What was he talking about as we pulled out? Oh, I mumbled. After that mess at Arctis tour, Lily gave me a silver pin in the shape of an oak leaf. It makes me an esquire of summer. Supposedly I can use it to whistle up help from Titania's court. It's their way of balancing the scales for what we did. Never a bad thing to be owed a favor, Thomas agreed. You got it on you? Yeah, I said. It was, in fact, in a little ring box within the inner coat of my duster. I got it out and showed it to Thomas. He whistled. Gorgeous work. Is she no pretty, I agreed. Maybe you can use it and get them to back off. I snorted. <laughs> it's never that simple. Titania could decide that the best way to help me would be to break my back, paralyze me from the waist down, and dump me into a hospital bed so that Agruffs won't have to kill me. Thomas grunted. Then why would Fix mention it? Maybe he was compelled to, I said. Maybe Titania's hoping I'll call for help and she'll have a chance to squash me personally. Or maybe... I let my voice trail off for a moment while I kicked my punch-drunk brain in the stomach until it threw up an idea. Or maybe, I said, because he wanted to warn me about it. The gruffs have found me twice now, and they haven't been physically tailing or tracking me. Neither location was one of my regular hangouts. And how did Fix find me just now, in the middle of a blizzard? He sure as hell didn't coincidentally pick a random IHOP. Thomas's eyes widened in realization. It's a tracking device. I scowled at the beautiful little silver leaf and said, not without a certain amount of grudging admiration, Titania, that conniving bitch. Damn, Thomas said. I feel a little bad for pointing a gun at the shrimp now. I probably would too, I said, if I wasn't so weirded out by the fact that Fix is starting to be as crab-wise and squirrely as the rest of the she. Thomas grunted. Better get rid of that thing before more of them show up. He hit the control that lowered the passenger window. It coughed and rattled a little before it jerked into motion instead of smoothly gliding down. Wizards and technology don't get along so well. To high-tech equipment, I am the living avatar of Murphy's Law. The longer I stayed in Thomas's shiny new oil tanker, the more all the things that could go wrong would go wrong. 
I lifted the leaf to chuck it out, but something made me hesitate. No, I murmured. Thomas blinked. No? No, I said with more certainty, closing my hand around the treacherous silver leaf. I've got a better idea. Chapter 10 I finished the spell that I thought would keep the gruffs busy and climbed wearily out of my lab to find Thomas sitting by the fireplace. My big gray dog, Mouse, lay beside him, his fur reflecting highlights of reddened silver in the firelight, watching Thomas's work with interest. My brother sat cross-legged on the floor, with my gun lying disassembled on a soft leather cloth upon the hearth. He frowned in concentration as he cleaned the pieces of the weapon with a brush, a soft cloth, and a small bottle of oil. Mister, my hypothyroid tomcat, bounded over the minute I opened the trap door to the lab and hurried down the folding staircase into the sub-basement. Go get him, tiger, I muttered after him by way of encouragement. Make him run their little hoofs off. I left the door open, heaved myself to the couch, and collapsed. Mouse's tail thumped the floor gently. You all right? Thomas asked. Tired, I said. Big spell. Mm-hmm, he said, working industriously on the weapons barrel. What building did you burn down? Your apartment if you don't lay off the wise-ass commentary, I said. Give me a minute and we'll get moving. Thomas gave me a sidelong, calculating look. I needed another minute or two anyway. When's the last time you cleaned this thing? Uh, who's the president now? Thomas clucked his teeth in disapproval and returned to the gun. Let me know when you're ready. Just give me a minute to catch my breath, I said. When I woke up, there was dim light coming from my mostly buried basement windows, and my neck felt like the bones had been welded together by a badly trained contractor. The various beatings I'd received the night before had formed a corporation and were attempting a hostile takeover of my nervous system. I groaned and looked around. Thomas was sitting with his back against the wall beside the fireplace, as relaxed and patient as any tiger. His gun, mine, and the bent-bladed kukri knife he'd favored lately lay close at hand. Down in my lab, something clattered to the floor from one of the shelves or tables. I heard Mr.'s paws scampering over the metal surface of the center table. What are you grinning at? my brother asked. Mister, I said. He's been knocking around down there all morning, Thomas said. I was going to go round him up before he broke something, but the skull told me to leave him alone. Yeah, I said. I creaked to my feet and shuffled to my little alcove with delusions of kitchenhood. I got out the bottle of aspirin and downed them with a glass of water. For your own safety. Mister gets upset when someone gets between him and his packet of catnip. I shuffled over to the lab and peered down. Sure enough, the little cloth bag containing catnip and a silver oak leaf pin still hung from the extra-large rubber band I'd snipped and fixed to the ceiling directly over Little Chicago. As I watched, Mr. hopped up onto a work table, then bounded into the air to bat at the cloth bag. He dragged it down to the table with him, claws hooked in the fabric, and landed on the model of Lincoln Park. My cat rubbed his face ecstatically against the bag for a moment, then released it and batted playfully at it as the rubber band sent it rebounding back and forth near him. Then he seemed to realize he was being watched. He turned his face up to me, meowed smugly, flicked the stub of his tail jauntily, and hopped to the floor. Bob, I called. Is the spell still working? Aye, Captain, Bob said. Arr. What's with that? Thomas murmured from right beside me. 
I twitched hard enough to take me up off the floor and glared at him. Would you stop doing that? He nodded, his expression serious, but I could see the corners of his mouth quivering with the effort not to smile. Right. Forgot. I growled and called him something unkind yet accurate. He wouldn't stop begging me to take him to see that pirate movie, so I took him with me the last time I went to the drive-in down in Aurora, and he got into it. It's been dying down, but if he calls me matey one more time, I'll snap. Well, that's interesting, Thomas said, but that's not what I was asking about. Oh, right, I said. I pointed at the catnip bag. The leaf's in there. Isn't that going to draw Summer's goons here? I let out a nasty laugh. No, they can't see it through the wards around the lab. Then why the big rubber band? I linked Summer's beacon spell to the Matrix around Little Chicago. Every time the leaf gets within a foot of the model, my spell transfers the beacon signal to the corresponding location in the city. Thomas narrowed his eyes in thought, and then suddenly grinned in understanding as Mr. pounced on the catnip again, this time landing near the field museum. If they're following that beacon, they'll be running all over town. In two and a half feet of snow, I confirmed, grinning. You're sadistic. Thank you, I said solemnly. Won't they figure it out? Sooner or later, I admitted. But it should buy us a little time to work with. Excuse me. I shambled to the door and put on my coat. Where to first? Thomas asked. Nowhere just yet. Sit tight. I grabbed my square-headed snow shovel from the popcorn tin by the door, where it usually resided with my staff, sword cane, and the epically static magic sword, Fidelocius. Mouse followed me out. It was a job of work to get the door open, and more than a little snow spilled over the threshold. I started with shoveling the stairs and worked my way up, a grave digger in reverse. Once that was done, I shoveled the little sidewalk, the front porch of the boarding house, and the exterior stairs running up to the Willoughby's apartment on the second floor. Then I dug a path to the nest of mailboxes by the curb. It took me less time than I thought it would. There was a lot of snow, but it hadn't formed any layers of ice, and it was basically a question of tossing powder out of the way. Mouse kept watch, and I tried not to throw snow into his face. We returned to my apartment, and I slung the shovel's handle back down into the popcorn tin. Thomas frowned at me. You had to shovel the walk. Harry, somehow I'm under the impression that you aren't feeling the urgency here. In the first place, I said, I'm not terribly well motivated to bend over backward to save John Marcone's Armani-clad ass. I wouldn't lose much sleep over him. In the second place, my neighbors are elderly, and if someone doesn't clean up the walks, they'll be stuck here. In the third place, I've got to do whatever I can to make sure I'm on my landlady's good side. Mrs. Spunklecreef is almost deaf, but it's sort of hard to hide it when assassin demons or gangs of zombies kick down the door. She's willing to forgive me the occasional wild party because I do things like shovel the walk. It's easier to replace an apartment than your ass, Thomas said. I shrugged. I was so stiff and sore from yesterday that I had to do something to get my muscles loosened up and moving. The time was going to be gone either way. Might as well take care of my neighbors. I grimaced. Besides... You feel bad because your landlady's building sometimes gets busted up because you live in it, Thomas said. He shook his head and snorted. <laughs> Typical. Well, yeah, but that's not it. He frowned at me, listening. I struggled to find the right words. There are a lot of things I can't control. I don't know what's going to happen in the next few days. I don't know 
what I'm going to face, what kind of choices I'm going to have to make. I can't predict it. I can't control it. It's too big. I nodded at my shovel. But that I can predict. I know that if I pick up that shovel and clear the snow from the walkways, it's going to make my neighbors safer and happier. I glanced at him and shrugged. It's worthwhile. To me. Give me a minute to shower. He regarded me for a second and then nodded. Oh, he said, with the tiniest of smiles. He mimed a sniff and a faint grimace. I'll wait, gladly. I cleaned up. We were on the way out the door when the phone rang. Harry, Murphy said. What the hell is going on out there? Why, I asked. What the hell is going on out there? We've had at least two dozen, well, I, I suppose the correct term is sightings. Everything from Bigfoot to mysterious balls of light. Naturally, it's all getting shunted to S.I. I started to answer her, then paused. Marcone and the outfit were involved. While they didn't have anywhere near the influence in civic affairs that they might have wanted, Marcone had always had sources of information inside the police department. Sources his subordinates could presumably access as well. It would be best to exercise some caution. You calling from the station? I asked her. Yeah. We should talk, I said. Murphy might not want to admit that anyone she worked with could be providing information to the outfit, but she wasn't the sort to stop believing the truth just because she didn't like it. I see, she said. Where? McAnally's, I said. I checked a clock. Three hours? See you there. I hung up and started for the door again. Mouse followed close at my heels, but I turned and nudged him gently back with my leg. Not this time, boy, I told him. The bad guys have a lot of manpower, access to skilled magic, and I need a safe place to come home to. If you're here, there's no way anyone's going to sneak in and leave me a present that goes boom. Mouse huffed out a breath in a sigh, but sat down. Keep an eye on mister, all right? If he starts getting sick, take the catnip away. My dog gave the door to the lab a dubious glance. Oh, give me a break, I said. You're seven times as big as he is. Mouse looked none too confident. Thomas blinked at me and then at the dog. Can he understand you? When it suits him, I grumped. He's smarter than a lot of people I know. Thomas took a moment to absorb that and then faced Mouse a little uncertainly. Uh, okay, look. What I said about Harry earlier, I wasn't serious, okay? It was totally a joke. Mouse flicked his ears and turned his nose away from Thomas with great nobility. What? I asked, looking between them. What did you say? I'll warm up the car, Thomas said, and retreated to the frozen gray outdoors. This is my home, I complained to no one in particular. Why do people keep making jokes at my expense in my own freaking home? Mouse declined to comment. I locked up behind me, magically and materially, and scaled Mount Hummer to sit in the passenger seat. The morning was cold and getting colder, especially since I was fresh from the shower, but the seat was rather pleasantly warm. There was no way I'd admit to Thomas that the luxury feature was superior to armored glass, but gosh, it was cozy. Right, Thomas said. Where are we headed? To where they treat me like royalty. I said, we're going to Burger King. I rubbed the heel of my hand against my forehead and spelled fratricide in a subvocal mutter. But I had to spell out temporary insanity and justifiable homicide, too, 
before I calm down enough to speak politely. Just take a left and drive, please. Well, Thomas said, grinning, since you said please. Chapter 11 Executive Priority Health was arguably the most exclusive gym in town. Located in downtown Chicago, the business took up the entire second floor of what used to be one of the grand old hotel buildings. Now it had office buildings on the upper levels and a miniature shopping center on the first floor. Not just anyone could take the private elevator to the second floor. One had to be a member of the health club, and membership was tightly controlled and extremely expensive. Only the wealthiest and most influential men had a membership card. Oh, and me. The magnetic stripe on the back of the car didn't work when I swiped it through the card reader. No surprise there. I'd had it in my wallet for several months, and I doubt the magnetic signature stored on the card had lasted more than a couple of days. I hit the intercom button on the console. Executive priority, said a cheerful young woman's voice. This is Billy, and how may I serve you? Thomas glanced at me and arched an eyebrow, mouthing the words, Serve you? You'll see, I muttered to him. I addressed the intercom. My card seems to have stopped working. Harry Dresden and guest, please. One moment, sir, Billy said. She was back within a few seconds. I apologize for the problem with your membership card, sir. I'm opening the elevator for you now. True to her word, the elevator opened and Thomas and I got in. It opened onto the main area of executive priority. You're kidding me, Thomas said. Since when do you go to the gym? It looked pretty typically gym-like from here. Lots and lots of exercise machines and weight benches and dumbbells and mirrors. Static bikes and treadmills stood in neatly dressed ranks. They'd paid some madman who thought he was a decorator a lot of money to make the place look hip and unique. Maybe it's my lack of fashion sense talking, but I thought they should have held out for one of those gorillas who has learned to paint. The results would have been of similar quality, and they could have paid in fresh produce. Here and there, men, mostly white, mostly over forty, suffered through a variety of physical activities. Beside each and every one of them was a personal trainer coaching, supporting, helping. The trainers were all women, none of them older than their late twenties. They all wore ridiculously brief jogging shorts so tight that it had to be some kind of minor miracle that allowed the blood to keep flowing through the girls' legs. They all wore T-shirts with the gym's logo printed on them, also tight, and every single woman there had the kind of body that made her outfit look fantastic. No gym in the world had that many gorgeous girls in its employ. Ah, Thomas said after a moment of looking around, this isn't a typical health club, is it? Welcome to the most health-conscious brothel in the history of mankind, I told him. Thomas whistled quietly through his teeth, surveying the place. I heard that the velvet room had been retooled. This is it? Yeah, I said. A brown-haired girl jiggled over to us, her mouth spread in a beauty contest smile, and for a second I thought her shirt was about to explode under the tension. Bright gold lettering over her left breast read, Billy. Hello, Mr. Dresden, she chirped. She bobbed her head to Thomas. Sir, welcome to executive priority. Can I get you a drink before your workout? May I take your coats? I held up a hand. Thanks, Billy, but no, I'm not here for the exercise. Her smile stayed locked in place, pretty and meaningless, and she tilted her head to one side. I'm here to speak to Ms. Demeter, I said. I'm sorry, sir, Billy said. She isn't in. The girl was a confection for the eyes, and I felt sure that the other four senses would feel just as well fed 
after a bit of indulgence, but she wasn't a good liar. Yeah, she is, I said. Tell her Harry Dresden is here. I'm sorry, sir, she said again, like a machine stuck on repeat. Ms. Demeter is not in the building. I gave her my toothiest smile. You're kind of new here, eh, Billy? The smile flickered, then stabilized again. Thomas, I sighed. Give her a visual. My brother looked around, then went over to a nearby stack of steel dumbbells and picked up the largest set there, one in each hand. With about as much effort as I'd used to bundle twigs, he twisted the steel bars around one another, forming an asymmetric X-shape. He held it up to make sure Billy saw it, then dropped it at her feet. The weights landed with a forceful thump, and Billy flinched when they did. You should see the kind of things he can bend and break, I said. Expensive exercise machines, expensive furniture, expensive clients. I don't know how hard he could throw some of the stuff around, but I'd be lying if I told you I wasn't kind of curious. I leaned down a little closer and said, Billy, maybe you should kick this one up the line. I'd hate them to dock your pay to replace all the broken things. I'll be right back, sir. Billy said in a squeaky whisper and scurried away. Subtle, Thomas noted. I shrugged. It saves time. How did you get a membership to a place like this? It's Marcone's place. He thinks I'm less likely to trash it if I'm dazzled by friendly boobs. Can't say that I blame him, Thomas admitted. His eyes locked onto one particular girl who was currently at a table filling out paperwork. She froze in place and then looked up very slowly. Her lips parted as she stared at Thomas, and her dark eyes widened. She started breathing faster, and then shook herself and hurriedly looked down again, pretending to read her paperwork. My brother closed his eyes slowly, and then turned his head away from the girl, with the kind of steady, deliberate motion one uses to shut a heavy door. When he blinked his eyes open again, their color had shifted from deep gray to a pale gray-white, almost silver. You okay? I asked him quietly. Mm-hmm, he murmured. Sorry, got distracted. There's a kind of energy here. Which I probably should have thought of, damn it. This building was home to constant regular acts of lust and desire. Those kind of activities left a sort of psychic imprint around them, a vibe Thomas must have picked up on. Vampires, like my brother, take not blood, but life energy from their victims. Showing off his supernatural strength might have simplified things for us, but it also cost Thomas some of that energy. The same way an afternoon of hiking might leave you and me particularly hungry. Usually vampires of the white court fed during the act of sex. They could induce desire in others, overwhelm their victims with undiluted primal lust. If he wanted to, Thomas could have paralyzed the girl where she stood, stalked over to her, and done whatever he pleased to her. There wouldn't have been anything she could do to stop him. Hell, she would have probably begged him to do more, and to hurry up about it. He wouldn't do it, not anymore anyway. He'd fought that part of himself for years, and he'd finally found a way to keep it under control. By feeding in the equivalent of tiny, harmless nibbles from the customers in the upper-tier beauty salon he owned and operated, I gathered that while it did enable him to remain active and in control of himself, it was nowhere near as satisfying as acquiring energy the old-fashioned way, in a stalking seduction culminating in a burst of lust and ecstasy. I knew that his hunger, that inhuman portion of his soul that was driven by naked need, 
was screaming at him to do exactly that. If he did, though, it could do the girl serious harm, even kill her. My brother wasn't like that, but denying his hunger wasn't something that came naturally. It was a fight, and I knew what drove him to it. That a girl looks a little like Justine, I commented. He froze at the name, his expression hardening. By gradual degrees, his eyes darkened to their usual color again. Thomas shook his head and gave me a wry smile. Does she? Enough, I said. You okay? As I ever am, he said. He didn't actually thank me, but it was in his voice. I pretended that I hadn't heard it there, which was what he expected me to do. It's a guy thing. Billy came fibrillating back over to us. This way, please, sir, she said, her smile once again firmly in place. She led us rather nervously through the gym, passing the hallway that led to the showers and private therapy rooms in back. The door she led us through went to a very plain, practical, business-like hallway, one you'd find in any office building. She nodded to the last door in the hall, the corner office, and then retreated quietly. I ambled up to the door, knocked once, and then opened it, to find Ms. Demeter sitting in her large but practical office behind her large but practical desk. She was a fit-looking woman, in early middle age, lean, well-dressed, and reserved. Her real name wasn't Demeter, but she preferred the professional sobriquet, and now wasn't the time to needle her. Miss Demeter, I said, keeping my tone neutral. Good day. She finished turning off her laptop, folded it shut, and put it away in a drawer before she looked up and gave me a quiet nod. Mr. Dresden, what happened to your face? It's always like this, I said. I forgot to put on my makeup today. Ah, she said. Will you have a seat? Thanks, I said. I sat down across the desk from her. I apologize if I've inconvenienced you. Her shoulder twitched in a nano-shrug. It's nice to know the limitations of those I've appointed my receptionist, she replied. What can I do for you? Then she lifted her hand. Wait, allow me to rephrase. What can I do to most quickly get rid of you? A sensitive guy might have felt a little hurt by that remark. Good thing I'm me. I'm looking for Marcone, I told her. Have you called his office? I blinked slowly at her once, then I repeated. I'm looking for Marcone. I'm sure you are, Demeter said, her expression never flickering. What does that have to do with me? I felt a tight smile strain my lips. Ms. D., I can't help but wonder why you instructed your receptionist to tell anyone who asked after you that you weren't in the office. Perhaps I had some paperwork I needed to get done. Or perhaps you know that Marcone is missing, and you're using it as a tactic to stall any of his lieutenants who come nosing around looking to fill the void. She stared at me for a moment, her expression giving away nothing. I can't really say that I know what you're talking about, Mr. Dresden. You sure you don't want to get rid of me? I asked. You want me to stay here and lean on you? I can make it really hard for you to do business if I'm feeling motivated. I'm sure, Demeter replied. Why would you want to find him? I grimaced. I have to help him. She arched a single well-plucked eyebrow. Have to? It's complicated, I said. And not terribly credible, she replied. I am well aware of your opinions regarding John Marcone and even assuming that I had any information as to his whereabouts, I'm not sure that I'd wish to make a bad situation worse. How could you do that? I asked. By involving you, she replied. 
You clearly do not have Mr. Marcone's best interests in mind, and your involvement could push his captors into precipitous action. I doubt you'd lose a moment's sleep were he to be killed. I would have shot back a witty reply if I hadn't slipped on a banana peel of self-recrimination, having said more or less those exact words not long before. But, sir, came Billy's voice in protest from the hall outside. The doorway darkened behind me, and I turned to find several large men standing there. The foremost of their number was a big guy, late forties, with an ongoing romance with beer or maybe pasta. He wore his heart on his pot belly. His well-tailored suit mostly hid the gut, and it would have concealed the shoulder rig and sidearm he wore beneath it if he'd made the least effort to avoid exposing it as he moved. To meet him, the big man said. I need to speak to you privately. You couldn't afford me, Torelli, Demeter replied smoothly, and I'm in the middle of a business meeting. Get one of your whores to get him off, Torelli said. You and I have to talk. She arched an eyebrow at him. Regarding? I need a list of your bank accounts, security passwords, and a copy of your records for the last six months, he scowled, looming over her. Torelli was the kind of guy who was used to getting his way if he loomed and scowled enough. I knew the type. I tried to glance past the goons to see if Thomas was in the hallway, but could detect no sign of him. One wonders if you have been partaking of your product. Demeter said. Why on earth should I provide you with my records, accounts, and funds? Things are going to change around here, whore, starting with your attitude. Torelli glanced at two of the four men behind him and angled his head toward Demeter. The two goons, both of them medium-caliber Chicago bruisers, stepped around Torelli and walked toward her. I grimaced. I didn't care for Demeter much, personally, but I needed her, and I wouldn't be able to talk her into helping me if she were laid up in intensive care. Besides, she was a girl, and you don't hit girls. You don't let two-bit hired bullies do it, either. I stood up and turned to face Torelli's men, staff in hand. I gave them my hardest look, which didn't even slow them down. The one on the right threw something at my face, and I had no time to work out what it might be. I ducked, recognized it as a snow-speckled winter glove, and realized that it had been a distraction. The guy on the left came in on me when I was ducking and kicked a steel-toed work boot at my left knee. I turned my leg and took it on the shin. It hurt like hell, but at least I could still move. I rolled to one side, placing the goon on my left between myself and the goon on the right. He threw a looping right hand at me, and I met his knuckles with my staff. Knuckles crunched. The goon howled. The other one bowled past his pain-stunned partner and came at me, obviously planning on tackling me to the floor, so that all of his buddies could circle up and kick me for a while. Couldn't have that. So I raised my right hand, clenched in a fist, bearing four triple-wire bands, one on each finger. With a thought and a word, I released the kinetic energy stored in one of the rings. It hit the goon like a locomotive, slamming him back and to the floor with a very satisfying thud. I turned and kicked the stunned first goon in both shins. Ha! then placed one of my heels against his hip and shoved him to the floor. He crumpled. I turned to find myself staring down the barrel of Torelli's gun. Not bad, kid, the would-be kingpin said. That uh, judo or something? Something like that. I could use a man of your skills. Once my health club finishes, he gave Demeter a sour glance. Reprioritizing. 
You couldn't afford me, I said. I'm gonna be able to afford a lot, he said. Name your price. One hundred and fifty-six gajillion dollars, I said promptly. He squinted at me, as if trying to decide if I was joking, or maybe he was just trying to figure out how many zeros I was talking about. Think you're cute, huh? I'm freaking adorable, I said, especially with the raccoon face I've got going here. Torelli's features darkened. Kid, you just made the last mistake of your life. God, I said, I wish. Thomas put the barrel of his desert eagle against the back of Torelli's head and said in a pleasant voice, Lose the iron, nice and slow. Torelli stiffened in surprise and wasted no time in complying. He turned his head slightly, looking for his two other goons. I could see a pair of feet lying toes up in the hallway, but there was no other sign of them. I stepped up to him and said calmly, Take your men and get out. Don't come back. He regarded me with dull eyes and pressed his lips together, nodded once, and began gathering up his men. Thomas picked up Torelli's gun and stuck it down the front of his pants, just like you're not supposed to do. He walked quietly over to stand beside me, his eyes tracking every movement the thugs made. They departed, half carrying the poor bastard with the broken hand, while the two in the hallway staggered along, barely recovered from being choked unconscious. Once they were gone, I turned to face Demeter. Where were we? I was questioning your motives, she said. I shook my head. Helen, you know who I am. You know what I do. Yeah, I think Marcone is a twisted son of a bitch who probably deserves to die. But that doesn't mean I'm planning on carrying out the deed. She stared at me in silence for ten or fifteen seconds. Then she turned to her desk, drew out a notepad, and wrote something on a piece of paper. She folded it and offered it to me. I reached out for it, but when I tugged, she didn't let go. Promise me, she said. Give me your word that you'll do everything you can to help him. I sighed. Of course. The words tasted like a rancid pickle coated in salt and vinegar, but I managed to say them. I will. You have my word. Demeter let go of the paper. I looked at it. An address. Nothing more. It might help you, she said. It might not. That's more than I had a minute ago, I said. I nodded to Thomas. Let's go. Dresden, Demeter said as I walked to the door. I paused. Thank you for handling Torelli. He would have hurt some of my girls tonight. I glanced back at her and nodded once. Then Thomas and I headed for the suburbs. Chapter 12 Marcone's business interests were wide and varied. They had to be when you're laundering as much money as he was. He had restaurants, holding companies, import-export businesses, investment firms, financial businesses of every description, and construction companies. Sunset Point was one of those boils festering on the face of the planet, a subdivision. Located half an hour north of Chicago, it had once been a pleasant little wood of rolling hills around a single tiny river. The trees and hills had all been bulldozed flat, exposing naked earth to the sky. The little river had been choked into a sludgy trough. Underneath the blanket of snow, the place looked as smooth and white and sterile as the inside of a new refrigerator. Look at this, I said to Thomas. I gestured at the houses, 
each of them on a lot that exceeded the building's foundation by the width of a postage stamp. People pay to live in places like this? You live in the basement of a boarding house, Thomas said. I live in a big city, and I rent, I said. Houses like these go for several hundred thousand dollars, if not more. It'll take thirty years to pay them off. They're nice houses, Thomas said. They're nice cages, I responded. No space around them. Nothing alive. Places like this turn a man into a gerbil. He comes home and scurries inside. Then he stays there until he's forced to go back out to the job he has to work so that he can make the mortgage payments on this gerbil habitat. And they're way nicer than your apartment, Thomas said. Totally. He brought the Hummer to a crunching halt in the snow, glaring through the windshield. Damn snow. I'm only guessing where the streets are at this point. Just don't drive into what's going to be somebody's basement, I said. We passed 23rd a minute ago. We must be close. 23rd court, place, street, terrace, or avenue, Thomas asked. Circle. Oh, damned cul-de-sacs. He started forward again, driving slowly. There, he said, nodding to the next sign that emerged from the haze. That one? Yeah. Next to the customized street sign was a standard road sign declaring 24th Terrace a dead end. Damn foreshadowing, I muttered. What's that? Nothing. We drove through the murky gray and white of a heavy snowfall, the light luminous, without source, reflected from billions of crystals of ice. The Hummer's engine was a barely audible purr. By comparison, the crunch of its tires on snow was a dreadful racket. We rolled past half a dozen model houses, all of them lovely and empty, the snow piling up around windows that gaped like eye sockets in a half-buried skull. Something wasn't right. I couldn't have told you what exactly, but I could feel it as plainly as I could feel the carved wood of the staff I gripped in my hands. We weren't alone. Thomas felt it, too. Moving smoothly, he reached an arm behind the driver's seat and drew forth his sword belt. It bore an old U.S. cavalry saber he'd carried on a number of dicey occasions, paired with a more recent toy he'd become fond of, a bent-bladed knife called a kukri, like the one carried by the Gurkhas. What is that? he asked quietly. I closed my eyes for a moment, reaching out with my arcane senses, attempting to detect any energies that might be moving in around us. The falling snow muffled my magical perceptions every bit as much as it did my physical senses. Not sure, I said quietly. But whatever it is, it's a safe bet it knows we're here. How do you want to play it if the music starts? I've got nothing to prove, I said. I say we run like little girls. Suits me, but don't let Murphy hear you talking like that. Yeah, she gets oversensitive about little. My shoulders tightened with the tension as Thomas drove forward slowly and carefully. He stopped the car beside the last house on the street. It had a finished look to it, the bushes of its landscaping poking up forlornly through the snow. There were curtains in the windows and the faint marks of tire tracks, not quite full of new snowfall, leading up the drive and to the closed garage. Someone's behind that third window, Thomas said quietly. I saw them move. I hadn't seen anything, but then I wasn't a supernatural predator, complete with a bucket full of preternaturally sharp senses. I nodded to let him know that I'd heard him and scanned the ground around the house. The snow was untouched. We're the first visitors, I said. We're probably making someone nervous. Gunman? Probably, I said. That's what most of Marcone's people are used to. Come on. You don't want me to wait out here? I shook my head. 
There's something else out here. It might be nothing, but you're a sitting duck in the car. Maybe if you'd gotten the armored version. Nag, 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 Thomas said. Let's be calm and friendly, I said. I opened the door of the Hummer and stepped out into the snow that came up over my knees. I made sure not to move too quickly and kept my hands out in plain sight. On the other side of the Hummer, Thomas mirrored me. Hello, the house, I called. Anyone home? My voice had that flat, heavy timbre you can only get when there's a lot of snow, almost like we were standing inside. My name is Dresden. I'm here to talk. Silence. The snow started soaking through my shoes and my jeans. Thomas whipped his head around toward the end of the little street, where the subdivision ended and the woods that were next in line for the bulldozers began. He stared intently for a moment. It's in the trees, he reported quietly. The hair on the back of my neck stood up, and I hoped fervently that whatever was out there, it didn't have a gun. I'm not here for trouble, I called toward the house. I held up two fingers and said, Scout's honor. This time I saw the curtain twitch and caught a faint stir of motion behind it. The inner door to the house opened and a man's voice said, Come in. Hands where I can see them. I nodded at Thomas. He lifted his hand, holding his car key, and pointed it to the Hummer. It clunked and chirped, its doors locking. He came around the car, sword belt hanging over his shoulder, while I broke trail to the front porch, struggling through the snow. I knocked as much of the powder as I could off my lower body, using it as an excuse to give me time to ready my shield bracelet. I didn't particularly want to step through a dark doorway, presenting a shooting gallery profile to any gunman inside without taking precautions. When I came in, I held my shield before me, silent and invisible. Stop there, growled a man's voice. Staff down. Show your hands. I leaned my staff against the wall and did so. I'd know those monosyllables anywhere. Hi, Hendricks. A massive man appeared from the dimness in the next room, holding a police-issue riot gun in hands that made it look like a child's toy. He was built like a bull, and you could apply thick and rock-like to just about everything in his anatomy, especially if you started with his skull. He came close enough to let me see his close-cropped red hair. Dresden, step aside. I did, and the shotgun was trained on my brother. You, vampire, sore down, fingers laced behind your head. Thomas rolled his eyes and complied. How come he doesn't have to put his hands behind his head? Wouldn't make any difference with him, Hendricks replied. Narrow, beady eyes swiveled like gun turrets back to me. What do you want? I wasn't sure I'd ever heard Hendricks speak a complete sentence, much less string phrases together. It was sort of disconcerting, the way it would be if Mister suddenly developed the capacity to open his own cans of cat food. It took me a second to get over the mental speed bump. Uh, I said, I want to... I realized how lame this was going to sound. I gritted my teeth and said it quickly. I want to help your boss. There was a clicking sound from the wall, the sound of an audio speaker popping to life. A woman's voice said, Send the wizard up. Hendricks growled. Are you sure? Do it. The vampire stays downstairs. Hendricks grunted and tilted his head to the right. Through there, and up the stairs, Dresden. Move it. Harry, Thomas said quietly. Hendricks brought his shotgun back up and covered Thomas. Not you, pretty boy. You stay put, or both of you get out. It's okay, I said quietly to my brother. 
I feel better if someone I trust is watching the door anyway, just in case someone else shows up. I cast my eyes meaningfully in the direction of the woods where Thomas had said something lurked. He shook his head. Whatever. Then he leaned back against the wall, casual and relaxed, his hands behind his head as if they were only there to pillow his skull. I brushed past Hendricks. Without slowing down or looking behind me, I said, Careful with that gun. He gets hurt and it's going to be bad for you, Hendricks. Hendricks ignored me. I had a feeling it was his strongest conversational ploy. I went up the stairs, noting a couple of details as I went. First, that the carpet was even cheaper than mine, which made me feel more confident for some obscure reason. Second, that there were bloodstains on it. A lot of them. At the top of the stairs, I found more bloodstains, including a long smear along one wall. I followed them down to one of the three bedrooms on the upper level of the house. I paused and knocked on the door. Come in, Dresden, said a woman's voice. I came in. Miss Gard lay in bed. It had been hauled over to the window so that she could see out of it. She had a heavy assault rifle of a design I didn't recognize next to her. The wooden handle of a double-bladed battle axe leaned against the bed, within reach of her hand. Gard was blonde, tall, athletic, and while she wasn't precisely beautiful, she was a striking woman with clean-cut features, icy blue eyes, and an athlete's build. She was also a mess of blood. She was soaked in it. So was the bed beneath her. Her shirt was open, revealing a black athletic bra and a long wound that ran a width of her stomach, just below her belly button. Slick, gray-red ropey loops protruded slightly from the wound. My stomach twisted, and I looked away. Goodness, Miss Gard said, her voice quiet and rough, her face pale. You'd think you never saw anyone disemboweled before. Just relieved, I said. I forced myself to face her. First time today I've run into someone who looks worse than me. She showed me a weary smile for a moment. You need a doctor, I said. She shook her head. No. Yes, I said, you do. I'm surprised you haven't bled to death already. Think of what it would cost Monarch Securities to replace you. They won't need to. I'll be fine. The company has a great health care package. She picked up a small tube of what looked like heavy-duty modeling glue from the bed at her side. This isn't the first time I've had my guts ripped out. It isn't fun, but I'll make it. Damn, I said, genuinely impressed. Are they hiring? The question won another faint smile. You don't really fit the employee profile. I'm tired of being kept down by the man, I said. Guard shook her head wearily. How did you find us? Demeter, I said. She lifted a golden eyebrow. I suppose that shouldn't surprise me, though I've warned him. He's too trusting. Marcone is too trusting? I widened my eyes at her. Lady, that pretty much puts you in a paranoic league of your own. It isn't paranoia, just practical experience. A safe house isn't safe if it isn't secret. She reached down and pressed bloodied fingers against a loop of gore, gently kneading it back into the wound. She let out a hiss of pain as she did, but she didn't let a little thing like an exposed internal organ get in the way of conversation. You threatened her? Uh, mostly I told her I'd help Marcone. She lifted the tube of airplane glue and smeared some of it onto either side of the wound where she'd pushed her guts back in. She bled a little more. 
I noticed that several inches of the wound had already been closed and sealed together. You gave her your word? Gart asked. Uh, yeah, but I couldn't take it anymore. Look, could you maybe not do that while we talk? It sort of makes it hard for me to focus on the conversation. She pressed the edges of the wound together, letting out a breathy curse in a language I didn't know. Did you know, she said, that this kind of glue was originally developed as an emergency battlefield suture? Did you know that you're about to find out what I had for breakfast this morning? I countered. I don't know if it's true, she continued. I saw it in a movie with, damn it, with werewolves. She exhaled and drew her hands slowly from the wound. Another two or three inches of puckered flesh were now closed together. Guard looked awful, her face gray and lined with pain. Why, Dresden? Why are you looking for Marcone? The short version? It's my ass if I don't. She squinted at me. It's personal? Pretty much. I'll give you my word on it if you like. She shook her head. It's not your word that I doubt. That's always been good. She closed her eyes against the pain and panted for several seconds. But I need something from you. What? The White Council, she rasped. I want you to call upon the White Council to recover Marcone. I blinked at her. Uh, what? She grimaced and began packing another couple inches of intestine back into her abdomen. The Accords have been breached. A challenge must be lodged, an emissary summoned. As a warden, she gasped for a moment and then fumbled the glue into place. You have the authority to call challenge. Her fingers slipped and the wound sprang open again. She went white with pain. Damn it, Sigrun, I said, more appalled at her pain than her condition, and moved to help her. Get your hands out of the way. When she did, I managed to close the wound a little more giving the sharp-smelling glue a chance to bond the flesh closed. She made an effort to smile at me. We... we worked well together at the beer festival. You're a professional. I respect that. I bet you say that to all the guys who glue your stomach back together. Call the council, Guard said. Lodge the challenge. I got a better idea, I said. Tell me where Marcone is. I'll go get him and bring him home, and this will all be over. She started pushing the next bit back in while I waited with the glue. It isn't that simple. I don't know where he is. I caught on. But you do know who took him? Yes. Another signatory of the Accords, just as Marcone is now. I have no authority to challenge their actions, but you do. You may be able to force them into the light, bring the pressure of all the members of the Accords against them. Oh, sure, I said, laying out more glue. The council just loves it when one of their youngest members drags the entire organization into a fight that isn't their own. You would know, wouldn't you? Guard rasped. It's not as though it would be the first time. I held the wound together, waiting on the glue. I can't, I said quietly. She was breathing too quickly, too hard. I could barely keep the wound closed. Whatever you say, after all... It's your ass on the line. I grimaced and withdrew my fingers slowly, making sure the wound stayed closed. We'd gotten the last few inches and the opening no longer gaped. Can't deny that, I said. Then I squinted at her. Who is it? I asked. Which signatory of the Accords swiped Marcone? You've met them once already, Guard said. From downstairs, Thomas suddenly shouted, Harry! 
I whirled toward the door in time for the window behind me to explode in a shower of glass. It jounced off my spell-layered leather duster, but I felt a pair of hot stings as bits of glass cut my neck and my ear. I tried to turn and had the impression of something coming at my face. I slapped it aside with my left hand even as I ducked and hopped awkwardly back from the intruder. It landed in a crouch upon the bed, digging one foot into the helpless guard's wounded belly, a creature barely more than the size of a child. It was red and black, vaguely humanoid in shape, but covered in an insect's chitin. Its eyes were too large for its head, multifaceted, and its arms ended in the serrated clamps of a praying mantis. Membranous wings fluttered at its back, a low and maddening buzzing. And that wasn't the scary part. Its eyes gleamed with an inner fire, an orange-red glow. And immediately above the first set of eyes, another set, this one blazing with sickly green luminescence, blinked and focused independently of the first pair. A sigil of angelic script burned against the chitin of the insect thing's forehead. I suddenly wished very much that my staff wasn't twenty feet away and down a flight of stairs. It might as well have been on the moon for all the good it was going to do me. No sooner had that thought come out than the knight of the blackened denarius opened its insectoid maw, let out a brassy wail of rage, and bounded at my face. Chapter 13 At one time in my life, a shape-shifted, demonically-possessed maniac crashing through a window and trying to rip my face off would have come as an enormous and nasty surprise. But that time was pretty much in the past. I'd spent the last several years on the fringes of a supernatural war between the White Council of the Wizards and the Vampire Courts. In the most recent years, I'd gotten more directly involved. Wizards who go to a fight without getting their act together tend not to come home. Worse, the people depending on them for protection wind up getting hurt. The second most important rule of combat wizardry is a simple one. Don't let them touch you. Whether you're talking about vampires or ogres or some other kind of monstrous nasty, most of them can do hideous things to you if they get close enough to touch. As even a lesser member of the Gruff Clan had demonstrated on my nose the night before. The prime rule of combat wizardry is simple, too. Be prepared. Wizards can potentially wield tremendous power against just about anything that might come along if we're ready to handle it. The problem is that the things that come after us know that, too. So the favored tactic is the sudden ambush. Wizards might live a long time, but we aren't rend-proof. You have to think ahead in order to have enough time to act when the heat is on. I'd made myself ready, and taught young wizards with even less experience than me how to be ready, too for an occasion just such as this. The coil of steel chain in my coat pocket came out smoothly as I drew it, because I'd practiced the draw thousands of times, and I whipped one end at the mantis thing's face. It was faster than me, of course. They usually are. Those two clamps seized the end of the chain. The mantis's jaws clamped down on it, and the creature ripped the chain from my hands with a wrench of its head and upper body quicker than thought. That was a positive thing, really. The mantis hadn't had time to notice two important details about the chain. First, that the whole thing was coated in copper. Second, that a standard electrical plug was attached to the other end. I flipped my fingers at the nearest wall outlet and barked, Galvanaeus! 
the plug shot toward the outlet like a striking snake and slammed home. The lights flickered and went dim. The denarian hopped abruptly into the air and then came down thrashing and twitching madly. The electricity had forced the muscles in its jaws and clamps to contract, and it couldn't release the chain. Acrid smoke began to drift up from various points on its carapace. Wizard! Guard gasped. She gripped the wooden handle of her axe and tossed it weakly toward me. I heard shouting and the bellow of a shotgun coming from downstairs. It stayed in the background, unimportant information. Everything that mattered to me was nearly within an arm's length. The axe bounced and struck against my leg, but my duster prevented it from cutting into me. I picked up the axe, Christ was it heavy, hauled off and brought it straight down on the denarian, as if I'd been splitting cordwood. The axe crunched home, sinking to the eye somewhere in the denarian's thorax. The thing's convulsions ripped the weapon out of my hands and the plug from the wall outlet. The mantis's head whipped toward me and it screamed again. It ripped out the axe and came to its feet in the same instant. Get clear, guard rasped. I did, diving to the side and going prone. The wounded woman emptied her assault rifle into the mantis in two or three seconds of howling thunder, shooting from the hip from about three feet away. Words cannot convey how messy that was. Suffice to say that it would probably cost more to remove the icor stains than it would to strip and refinish the walls, the floor, and the ceiling. Guard gasped, and the empty rifle slid from her fingers. She shuddered and pressed her hands to her belly. I moved to her side and picked her up, trying not to strain her stomach. She was heavy, not like a sumo wrestler or anything, but she was six feet tall in her bare feet and had more than the usual amount of muscle. She felt at least as heavy as Thomas. I grunted with effort, got her settled, and started for the door. Guard let out a croaking little whimper, and more blood welled from her injury. Faint pangs of sympathetic pain flickered through my own belly. Her eyes had rolled back in her head. It had taken a lot to beat Guard's apparent pain threshold, but it looked like the visit from the Denarian and the activity it had forced on her had done it. The day just couldn't have gotten any more disturbing. Until the splattered mass that had been the denarian started quivering and moving. Oh, you have got to be kidding me, I shouted. Where there had been one big bug thing, now there were thousands of little mantis-like creatures. They all began bounding toward the center of the room, piling up into two mounds that gradually began to take on the shape of insectoid legs. The shotgun downstairs roared again, and running footsteps approached. Hurry! Thomas shouted. He appeared at the bottom of the stairs, sword in hand, just as I hurried out the door, still toting guard. We had company up here, I called. I started down the stairs as quickly and carefully as I could. I think there are three more of them down here, Thomas said, making way for me. He took note of guard. Holy crap. A corpse lay on the floor of the entry hall. It was black and furry and big, and I couldn't tell much more about it than that. The top four-fifths of its head were gone, and presumably accounted for the mess all over the opposite wall. Its guts were spilled out on either side of its body, steaming in the cold air drifting through the shattered front door. Hendricks crouched in the shadowed living room, covering the entryway with his shotgun. Something scraped over the floorboards of the ceiling above us. What's that? Thomas asked. A giant praying mantis demon dragging itself over the floor? Thomas blinked at me. That's just a guess. I said. Hendricks growled. How is she? Not good, I said. This is a bad spot to be in. 
No defenses here. Not even a threshold to work with. We need to bail. Shouldn't move her, Hendricks said. It could kill her. Not moving her will kill her, I countered. Us, too. Hendricks stared at me, but he didn't argue. Thomas was already reaching into his pocket. He was tense, his eyes flicking restlessly, maybe in an attempt to track things that he could hear moving around outside. He dug out his key ring and held it with his teeth. Then he took a saber in one hand, that monster desert eagle in the other, and started humming, Froggy went a-courting, under his breath. Guard had slowly grown limp, and her head lolled bonelessly. I was having trouble keeping her steady. Hendricks, I said, nodding at guard. Without a word, he set the shotgun aside and took the woman from me. I saw his eyes as he did, touched with worry and fear, and not for himself. He took her very gently, something I would never have imagined him doing, and growled, How do I know you won't leave us behind? Let them rip us apart while you run. You don't, I said curtly, picking up my staff. Stay if you want. These things will kill you both, I guarantee it. Or you take a chance with us. Your call. Hendricks glared at me for a moment, but when he glanced down at the unconscious woman in his arms, the rocky scowl faded. He nodded once. Harry, Thomas asked, how do you want to do this? We head straight for your oil tanker, I said. Shortest route between two points and all. They'll have the door covered, Thomas said. I hope so. Okay, he said, rolling his eyes. As long as there's a plan. Footsteps crossed the floor above us and paused at the top of the stairs. Thomas's gun swiveled toward the stairs. I didn't turn. I covered the doorway. A voice like out-of-tune violin strings stroked by a rotting cobra hide drifted down the stairs. Wizard. I hear you, I said. This situation might be resolved without further conflict. Are you willing to parley? Why not? I answered. I didn't turn away from the door. Have I your word of safe passage? You do. Then you have mine, the voice answered. Whatever, I said. I lowered my voice to an almost subvocal whisper. I was sure only Thomas could hear. Watch them. They'll try something the second they get a chance. Why give them the opportunity? Thomas murmured. Because we might find out something important by talking. It's harder to question corpses. Switch with me. We traded places and I kept my staff pointed at the stairs as the mantis thing came down them. It crouched on the topmost step it could occupy while still maintaining visual contact with the entry hall. It looked none the worse for wear for being blown to hamburger by guard's rifle. It crouched, the motion eerie and alien, and tilted its head almost entirely to the horizontal, first one way, then the other, as it looked at us. Then its stomach heaved. For a second I thought it was throwing up, as a yellow and pink mucus began to emerge from its mouth. After a second, though, it lifted its clamp-like claws and gripped its head, then peeled it back and away from the mucus, the motion disturbingly akin to someone donning a too-small turtleneck sweater. A human face emerged from the mucus and gunk, while the split carapace of the head flopped about on his chest and upper back. The denarian looked like she was about fifteen years old, except for her hair, which was silvery gray, short and plastered to her skull. She had huge and gorgeous green eyes, a heart-shaped face and a delicate pointy chin. Her skin was pale and clear, her cheekbones high, her features lovely and symmetrical. 
The second set of green eyes and the sigil of angelic script still glowed faintly on her forehead. She smiled slowly. I wasn't expecting the chain. I thought fire and force were your weapons of choice. You were standing on top of someone I knew, I said. I didn't feel like burning her or blasting her through the wall. Foolish, the girl murmured. I'm still here, but so am I. You have five seconds to get to the fucking point, I said. I'm not going to let you stall while your buddies get into position. Mantis girl narrowed her eyes. The eyes on her forehead narrowed as well. Trey creepy. She nodded at Hendricks and guard. My business is with them, not you, O oh, warden of the White Council. Give them to me. You may leave in peace. Once they are dead, I will gather my compatriots, and we will depart the city without harm to any innocents. I grunted. What if I need them alive? If you wish, I can wait until you have interrogated them. Yeah, that's what I want. You standing around behind my back. She lifted a talon. I give you my solemn word. No harm will come to you or your companion. Tempting, I said. Shall I add in material reward as well? Mantis girl asked. I'll pay you two hundred thousand in cash. Why on earth would you do that? She shrugged a shoulder. My quarrel is with the upstart baron and his subjects, not the white council. I would prefer to demonstrate my respect to your people, instead of causing an untoward altercation with them over the matter of your death. Uh-huh. Her smile turned sharper. If it pleases you, I might offer to entertain you once business is done. I let out a harsh burst of laughter. Oh, I said, still chortling. Oh, that's funny. She blinked and stared at me, uncomprehending. The expression made me laugh even harder. <laughs> you? You want me to? I mean, hell's bells. You think I don't know what happens to a mantis's mate once the deed is done? She bared her teeth in sudden anger. They were shiny and black. You want me to trust you, I went on, still laughing. And you think waving some bling and some booty at me is going to get it done? God, that's so cute. I could just put you in my pocket. Do not deny me what is mine, wizard, she snarled. I will have them. Make a pact with me. I will honor it. Yeah, I said. I've seen the way you people honor your pacts. Let me make you a counteroffer. Give me Marcone, safe and whole, and get out of town. Now, and I'll let you live. Suppose your offer appeals. Why should I believe you would allow us to leave in peace? I gave her a faint smile and quietly paraphrased a dead friend. Because I know what your word is worth, Denarian, and you know the worth of mine. She stared at me for a moment. Then she said, I will consult my companions and return in five minutes. I bowed my head slightly to her. She returned the gesture and started up the stairs again. She vanished from sight. Glass broke somewhere upstairs. Then a red and black blur flashed down the stairs toward us simultaneously with a chorus of hellish cries from outside. Treachery doesn't work so well when the other guy expects it, and I'd had the spell ready to go since the second she'd turned her back. Mantis girl didn't get to the bottom of the stairs before I pointed my staff at her and snarled, Fuzari! A hammer of pure kinetic energy slammed against her. She went flying back the way she'd come, and when she'd reached the top of the stairs, she kept going, 
crashing through the wall of the house with a tremendous crunch. No time to lose. Something came charging through the doorway to be met by Thomas's sword and pistol. I didn't get a good look at it, but got an impression of spiraling antlers and green scales. I drew in my will, pointed my staff at the front wall of the house and murmured, Fuzare, sending out a slow pulse of motion. I let it press up against the front wall of the house and then fed more energy into it, hardening it into a single striking surface. Then I drew back and really let loose, roaring, Fuzare! at the top of my lungs. I unleashed everything I had into a blast of energy which struck against the plate of force I just created. There was an enormous sound of screaming wood and steel, and the entire front wall of the house blasted free from its frame. Demonic voices howled. I turned to find Thomas taking advantage of the distraction to whip his saber through scything arcs, Rondello-style, cutting his opponent to ribbons. The Denarian bounded away, screaming in brassy pain. Damn it! Thomas screamed at me. That's a brand new car! Quit whining and go! I shouted back, suiting words to action. The front wall of the house had come down like a tidal wave, shattering into a small ocean of rubble, covering the hood of the Hummer. Somewhere beneath the rubble, I could hear the other Denarians trying to get free. We rushed for the Hummer and piled in. Thomas got it started just as Mantis Girl sailed down from overhead and landed on the hood of the Hummer, denting it in sharply. God damn it! Thomas snarled. He slapped the Hummer into reverse and started driving backwards while emptying his gun into Mantis Girl. Bursts of fluttering insect forms flew up from the gunshots instead of sprays of blood, but judging by the screaming, it hurt her plenty. She tumbled back off the hood and vanished. Thomas manhandled the Hummer into a turn and we left, heading back out into the heavy snowfall. We all rode in silence for several moments while our heart rate slowed and the terror-fueled adrenaline rush faded. Then Thomas said, I don't think we learned much. Hell, we didn't, I said. Like what? We know that there are more than five denarians in town, and we know that they're signatories of the Accords, who apparently object to Marcone's recent elevation. Thomas grunted acknowledgement. What now? I shook my head wearily. That last spell had been a doozy. Now... I think I turned my head and studied the unconscious guard. I think I'd better call the council. Chapter 14 Now that I had not one but two supernatural hit squads with good reason to come after me, my options had grown sort of limited. In the end, there was really only one place I could take guard in Hendricks without endangering innocent lives. St. Mary of the Angels Church which was why I told Thomas to drive us to the carpenter house. I still think this is a bad idea, Thomas said quietly. The plow trucks were working hard, but so far they'd barely been keeping even with the snow, ensuring that the routes to the hospitals were clear. The streets in some places looked like World War I trenches, snow piled up head high on either side. The Denarians know that we use the church as a safe house, I said. They'll be watching it. Thomas grunted and checked the rearview mirror. Guard was still unconscious, but breathing. Hendrix's eyes were shut, his mouth slightly open. I didn't blame him. I hadn't been standing watch over a wounded comrade all night, and I felt like I could have taken a nap, too. What were those things? Thomas asked. The Knights of the Blackened Denarius, I replied. You remember Michael's sword? The nail worked into the hilt? Sure, Thomas said. There are two others like it, I said. Three swords, three nails. 
Thomas's eyes widened for a moment. Wait, those nails? From the crucifixion? I nodded. Pretty sure. And those things were what? Michael's opposite number? Yeah. Each of those denarian bozos has a silver coin. Three silver coins, Thomas said. I'm drawing a blank. Thirty, I corrected him. Thomas made a choking sound. Thirty? Potentially. But Michael and the others have several of them hidden away at the moment. Thirty pieces of silver, Thomas said, understanding. I nodded. Each coin has the spirit of one of the fallen trapped inside. Whoever possesses one of the coins can draw upon the fallen angel's power. They use it to shapeshift into those forms you saw. Heal wounds, all kinds of fun stuff. They tough? Certifiable nightmares, I said. A lot of them have been alive long enough to develop some serious talent for magic, too. Huh, Thomas said. The one who came through the door didn't seem like such a badass. Ugly, sure, but he wasn't Superman. Maybe you got lucky, I said. As long as they have the coins, hard to kill doesn't begin to describe it. Ah, Thomas said. That explains it, then. What? I asked. Thomas reached into his pants pocket and drew out a silver coin, a little larger than a nickel, blackened with age, except for the shape of a single sigil, shining cleanly through the tarnish. When I gutted Captain Ugly, this went flying out. Hell's bells, I spat and flinched away from the coin. Thomas twitched in surprise and the Hummer went into a slow slide on the snow. He turned into it and regained control of the vehicle without ever taking his eyes off me. Whoa, Harry, what? I pressed my side up against the door of the Hummer, getting as far as I physically could from the thing. Look, just, just don't move, all right? He arched an eyebrow. Okay, why not? Because if that thing touches your skin, you're screwed, I said. Shut up a second and let me think. The gloves. Thomas had been wearing gloves earlier when fingering Justine's scarf. He hadn't touched the coin with his skin, or he'd already know how much trouble he was in. Good. But the coin was a menace, and I strongly suspected that the entity trapped inside it might be able to influence the physical world around it in subtle ways enough to go rolling away from its former owner, for example, or to somehow manipulate Thomas into dropping or misplacing it. Containment. It had to be contained. I fumbled at my pockets. The only container I was carrying was an old Crown Royal whiskey bag, the one that held my little set of gaming dice. I dumped them out into my pocket and opened the bag. I already had a glove on my left hand. My paw had recovered significantly from the horrible burns it had gotten several years before, but it still wasn't what you'd call pretty. I kept it covered, out of courtesy to everyone who might glance at it. I held the little bag open with two fingers of my left hand and said, Put it in here, and for God's sake, don't drop it or touch me with it. Thomas's eyes widened further. He bit his lower lip and moved his hand very carefully until he could drop the inoffensive little disc into the Crown Royal bag. I jerked the drawstrings tight the second the coin was in and tied the bag shut. Then I slapped open the Hummer's ashtray, stuffed the bag inside, and slammed it closed again. Only then did I draw a slow breath and sag back down into my seat. Jesus, Thomas said quietly. He hesitated for a moment and then said, Harry, is it really that bad? It's worse, I said, but I can't think of any other precautions to take yet. What would have happened if I'd touched it? The fallen inside the coin would have invaded your consciousness, I said. It would offer you power, temptation. Once you gave in enough, it would own you. 
I've resisted temptation before, Harry. Not like this. I turned a frank gaze to him. It's a fallen angel, man. Thousands and thousands of years old. It knows how people think. It knows how to exploit them. His voice sharpened a little. I come from a family where everyone's an incubus or a succubus. I think I know a little something about temptation. Then you should know how they'd get you. I lowered my voice and said gently, It could give Justine back to you, Thomas. Let you touch her again. He stared at me for a second, a flicker of wild longing somewhere far back in his eyes. Then he turned his head slowly back to the road, his expression slipping into a neutral mask. Oh, he said quietly. After a moment, he said, We should probably get rid of the thing. We will, I said. The church has been up against the Denarians for a couple of thousand years. There are measures they can take. Thomas glanced down at the ashtray for a second, then dragged his eyes away and glowered at the dented hood of his Hummer. They couldn't have shown up six months ago, when I was driving a Buick. I snorted. As long as you got your priorities in order. I just met them, but already I hate these guys, Thomas said. But why are they here? Why now? Offhand... I'd say they were out to wax Marcone and prove to the other members of the Accords that vanilla mortals have no place among us weirdos. I mean, superhumans. They're members of the Accords? I'd have to look it up, I said. I doubt they're signed on as the Order of Demon-Possessed Psychotics, but from the way Mantis Girl was talking, yeah. Thomas shook his head. So what do they get out of it? What does taking Marcone prove? I shrugged. I had already asked myself the same questions and hadn't been able to come up with any answers. No clue, I said. But they've got what it takes to have torn that building apart. And to get around or go through the kind of muscle Marcone keeps around him. And what the hell are the fairy queens doing getting involved? Thomas asked. I shrugged again. I had already asked myself that, too. I hate it when I have to answer my own questions like that. We went the rest of the way to Michael's place in gray and white silence. His street was on one of the routes being kept plowed, and we had no trouble rolling right up into his driveway. Michael himself was there with his two tallest sons, each of them wielding a snow shovel as they labored to clear the driveway and the sidewalk and the porch of the ongoing snow. Michael regarded the Hummer with pursed lips as Thomas pulled in. He said something to his sons that made them trade a look with each other, then hurry inside. Michael walked down the driveway to my side of the truck and looked at my brother, then at the passengers in the back seat. I rolled down the window. Hey, I said. Harry? he said calmly. What are you doing here? I just had a conversation with praying mantis girl, I said. I held up a notebook where I'd scribbled down the angelic sigil while it still was fresh in my memory. Michael took a deep breath and grimaced, then he nodded. I had a feeling they might be in town. Oh? I asked. The front door of the house opened and a large, dark-skinned man appeared, dressed in blue jeans and a dark leather jacket. He wore a gym bag over one broad shoulder and had one hand resting casually inside it. He paced out into the cold and the snow as if he'd been wearing full winter weather gear rather than casual traveling clothes and stalked over toward us. Once he got close enough to make out the details, his face split into a broad, brief grin and he hurried to stand beside Michael. Hari, he said, his voice deep, rich, and thick with a Russian accent. We meet again. I answered his grin. Sonia, I replied, offering my hand. He shook it with enough force to crack bones. What are you doing here? Piercing through? 
Sonya said and hooked a thumb up at the snow. I was on the last flight in before they closed the airport. Looks like I'm staying for a few days. His eyes went from my face to the notebook, and the pleasant expression on his dark face turned to a brief snarl. Somebody you know? I asked. Yes, sir, he said. Andy Mario. You've met, huh? His jaw clenched again. Tessa's second recruited me. Tessa is here? With friends. I sketched the sigil I'd seen on the blackened denarius a few moments before and held it up to them. Sonya shook his head and glanced at Michael. A carriel, Michael said at once. I nodded. He's in a crown royal bag in the ashtray. Michael blinked. Sonya, too. I hope you have one of those holy hankies. I'd have taken it to Padre Fort Hill, but I figured they'd have him under observation. I need someplace quiet to hole up. Sonya and Michael traded a long, silent look. Sonya frowned, examining my brother. Who is the vampire? I felt Thomas stiffen in surprise. As a rule, even members of the supernatural world can't detect what a vampire of the white court truly is, unless he's actually in the middle of doing something vampity. It's a natural camouflage for his kind, and they rely upon it every bit as much as a leopard does its spots. But it can be tough to hide things from a knight of the cross. Maybe it's part of the power they're given, or maybe it's just a part of the personality of the men chosen for the job. Don't ask me which. I'm fuzzy on the whole issue of faith and the Almighty, and I swim those waters with extreme caution and as much brevity as possible. I just know that the bad guys rarely get to sneak up on a knight of the cross, and that the knights have a propensity for bringing the truth to light. I met Sonya's gaze for a moment and said, He's with me. He's also the reason a carriel has a date with the inside of a vault. Sonya seemed to consider that for a moment. He glanced at Michael, who gave a grudging nod. The younger knight pursed his lips thoughtfully at that, his gaze moving to the back seat. Hendricks had woken up, but he hadn't moved. He watched Sonya with steady, beady eyes. The woman, Sonya said, frowning. What is she? Hurt, I said. Something like chagrin flickered over his features. Da, of course. You would not bring her here if you thought her a danger. Not to you or me, I said. Tessa might have a different opinion. Sonya's eyebrows went up. Is that how she was wounded? That was after she was wounded. Really? Sonya peered a little more closely at guard. Back off, Hendricks rumbled. Comrade. Sonya flashed that swift smile again and displayed open palms to Hendricks. Michael nodded to Thomas. Pull the truck around to the back of the house. With all this snow piled up, it should be hidden from the street. Thank you, Michael, I said. He shook his head. There's a heater in the workshop and a couple of folding cots. I'm not exposing the children to this. I understand. Do you? Michael asked gently. He thumped the truck's dented hood once lightly and waved Thomas toward the back of the house. Twenty minutes later, we were all warm, if a bit crowded, in Michael's workshop. Guard lay on a couch, sleeping, her color improving almost visibly. Hendricks sat down with his back to the wall beside Guard's cot, presumably to stand watch, but he started snoring within a few minutes. Sonya, with the help of Molly and her siblings, was off rounding up food. I watched as Michael wrapped a carriel up in a clean white hanky embroidered with a silver cross, muttering a prayer under his breath the whole while. Then he slipped the hanky into a plain wooden box, also adorned with a silver cross. Excuse me, he said. I need to secure this. Where do they keep those things? 
Thomas asked, after Michael had departed. I shrugged. Some big warehouse with a gazillion identical boxes, probably. Thomas snorted. Don't even think it, I said. It isn't worth it. Thomas ran his gloved fingers over the white scarf. Isn't it? You saw how these things operate. They'll manipulate your emotions and self-control, and something bad would happen to Justine. Or they'd wait until they had you hook, line, and sinker, and you were their meat puppet. And something bad would happen to Justine. Thomas shrugged. I've got one demon in my head already. What's one more? I studied his profile. You've got one monster in your head already, I countered. She barely survived it. He was still for a moment. Then he slammed his elbow back against the workshop wall, a gesture of pure frustration. Wood splintered, and a little cold air whooshed in. Maybe you're right, he said in a dull voice. Holy crap, I said. An idea crystallized in my head, and a chill went down my spine. Thomas rubbed his elbow lightly. What? I just had a really unpleasant thought. I gestured at Marcone's exhausted retainers. I don't think the Denarians took Marcone so that they could erase him and make an example of him. My brother shrugged. Why else would they do it? I bit my lip, my stomach turning in uncomfortable flips. Because, I said, maybe they want to recruit him. Chapter 15 Thomas stood watch over our sleeping beauties while I went inside to talk with Michael and Sonya at the carpenter kitchen table. I laid all the cards down, see above regarding the general futility of lying to the Knights of the Cross. And besides, they'd both more than earned my trust. It didn't take me very long. So, I said, I think we got to move fast and get Marcone away from them before he's forced to join up. Michael frowned and folded his broad, work-scarred hands on the table before him. What makes you think he's going to tell them no? Marcone's scum, I said, but he's his own scum. He doesn't work for anyone. You are sure? Sonya asked, frowning thoughtfully. Yeah, I said. I think that's why they wanted to grab Hendricks and guard instead of killing them. So they could force them to take the coin or they'd kill his people. Michael grunted. It's a frequently used tactic. Not for Tessa, Sonya said, his voice absolutely certain. She prefers to find those already well-motivated to accept the coin. She regards their potential talents as a secondary factor to raw desire. Michael exceeded the point with a nod. Which would mean that Tessa isn't giving the orders. Sonia showed his teeth in a sudden fierce grin. Nicodemus is here. Fuck! I started to swear, but I glanced at Michael and changed it to fudge-sickles. Nicodemus nearly killed us all last time he was in town. And he did kill Shiro. Both of the knights nodded. Michael bowed his head and murmured a brief prayer. Guys, I said, I know that your first instincts tend to be to stand watch against the knight, turning the other cheek and so on, but he's here with maybe twice the demon power he had on his last visit. If we wait for him to come to us, he'll tear us apart. Agreed, Sonya said firmly. Take the initiative, find him, and hit the snake before he can coil to strike. Michael shook his head. Brother, you forget our purpose. We are not given our power so that we can strike down our enemies, no matter how much they might deserve it. Our purpose is to rescue the poor souls trapped by the fallen. Nicodemus doesn't want to be rescued, I said. He's in full collaboration with his demon. Which changes nothing about our duty, he said. 
Anyone, even Nicodemus, can seek redemption, no matter what they've done, as long as they have breath enough to ask forgiveness. I don't suppose a pair of sucking chest wounds could get us around that, I asked him, because if they would, I'd be tickled to provide them. Sonia let out a bark of laughter. Michael smiled, but it was brief and strained. My point is that we can undertake such an aggressive move in only the direst of circumstances. Fairy stands poised on the brink of an internal war, I said, which would probably reignite the war between the Council and the Vampire Courts, and in the bad guy's favor, I might add. One of the most dangerous men I've ever known is about to have involuntary access to the knowledge and power of a fallen angel, which would give the Denarians access to major influence within the United States. Not to mention the serious personal consequences for me if they succeed in making it happen. I looked back and forth between the two knights and held up one hand straight over my head. I vote Dyer. All in favor? Michael caught Sonya's hand on the way up and pushed it gently back down to the table. This isn't a democracy, Harry. We serve a king. Sonya frowned for a moment, glancing at me. But then he settled back in his chair, a silent statement of support for Michael. You want to talk to them? I asked Michael. You've got to be kidding me. I didn't say that, Michael replied. But I will not set out to simply murder them and have done. It's a solution, Harry, but it isn't good enough. I settled back in my chair and rubbed at my head with one hand. An ache was forming there. Okay, I said quietly, trying to make up a plan as I went along. What if I set up a talk? Could you be lurking nearby for backup? Michael sighed. There's a measure of sophistry in that. You know they'll try to betray you if it seems to be to their advantage. Yeah, and it'll be their choice to do it. That's what you're looking for, isn't it? Some way to deal with the problem while still giving them a choice about what to do? Preferably in some manner that will get as few good guys killed as possible? He looked pained, but Michael nodded. Fine, I said. I'll try to set it up. How? Sonya asked. Let me worry about that, I said. I checked the clock on the wall. Crap. I'm late for a meeting. Can I borrow your phone? Of course, Michael said. I glanced around the quiet house on my way to the phone and frowned. Where is everyone? Charity took them elsewhere for a few days, Michael said. There won't be school in this mess anyway. I grunted. Where's Molly? Michael paused and then shook his head. I'm not sure. I don't think she went with them. I thought about it for a moment and thought I knew where she'd be. I nodded around the kitchen. How do you keep things running around here, with Molly under the roof? I figured things would be breaking down left and right. Lots and lots of preventive maintenance, Michael replied steadily, and about twice as much repair work as I usually do. Sorry. He smiled. Small price. She's worth it. The reasons I like Michael have nothing to do with swords and the smiting of evil. I got on the phone and dialed McAnally's pub. Mac, answered Mac, the ever-laconic owner. It's Harry Dresden, I said. Is Sergeant Murphy there? Mac grunted in the affirmative. Put a beer on my tab and tell her I'm on the way? Mac grunted yes again. Thanks, man. He hung up without saying goodbye. I made another call and spoke to a humorless-sounding man with a Slavic accent. I muttered my password so that no one in the kitchen would overhear it, but the connection was so bad that I wound up all but screaming it into the receiver. That kind of thing is to be expected when you've got wizards on both ends. It only took the jolly Northmen about ten minutes to get my call through to my party. 
Lucio, said a young woman's voice. What's gone wrong, Harry? Hey, I protested. That's a hell of a thing to say to a man, Captain. Just because I'm calling in doesn't mean there's some kind of crisis. Technically true, I suppose. Why are you calling? Well, there's a crisis. She made a mmm sound. A group known as the Knights of the Blackened Denarius has kidnapped Baron Marcone. The crime lord you took it upon yourself to assist in joining the Accords? Lucio asked, amusement in her voice. In what way is that relevant to the White Council? These Denarius creeps are also signatories of the Accords, I said. Marcone's retainers are crying foul. They've asked me to formally protest the abduction and summon an emissary to resolve the dispute. Seconds of silence ticked by. In what way, Lucio repeated, her voice much harder this time, is that relevant to the White Council? The Accords don't mean anything if they aren't enforced and supported, I said. In the long run, it's in our own best interest to make sure they're supported now, before a precedent is set, and don't bullshit me, the captain of the wardens snarled, a hint of an Italian accent creeping into her speech. If we take formal action, it could provoke a war, a war we simply cannot afford. We all know the Red Court is only catching its breath. We can ill afford the losses we've already taken, much less those we might assume in the new conflict. I made sure to keep my voice steady, grim. Mab has contacted me personally. She has indicated that it is strongly in our own best interests to intervene. It wasn't exactly a lie. I hadn't ever specified who we meant. And with any luck, the mention of Mab would keep Lucio's attention completely. The only reason the Red Court hadn't wiped us out in the years-long war was that Mab had given the Council right of way through the portions of the Never-Never under her control, allowing us wizards to stay as mobile as our opponents, who had considerably less difficulty employing mortal vehicles to maneuver its soldiery. Hey, so Christy, Lucio spat. She means to withdraw our right of way through winter if we don't accede to her demands. Well, I said, she never actually came out and said that. Of course she didn't. She never speaks plainly at all. She does keep her deals, though, I pointed out. She doesn't make deals she can't slide out of. She's forbidden the ways to her people, but also to the Wild Fay as a gesture of courtesy. All she needs to do is relax her ban against the Wild Fay, and we'd be forced to travel in strength every time we went through the ways. She's a sneaky bitch, I agreed. I crossed my fingers. Lucio exhaled forcefully through her nose. Very well. I will forward the appropriate notifications pending approval by the senior council. Which emissary would you prefer? The Archive. We have a working relationship. Lucio hmmed again. I heard a pencil scratching. Dresden, she said. I cannot stress to you enough how vital it is that we avoid general hostilities, even with a relatively small power. Translation. Don't start another war, Harry. But, she continued, we can afford to lose the paths through winter even less. Translation, unless you really have to. I hear you, I said. I'll do my best. Do better, Lucio said, her tone blunt. There are those on the senior council who hold the opinion that we're already fighting one war because of your incompetence. I felt heat flush up my neck. If they bring that up... Remind them that my incompetence is the only reason they weren't all blasted to molecules by a newborn god.
I shot back. And after that, remind them that because of my incompetence, we're enjoying a ceasefire that we desperately needed to replace our losses. And after that, that is enough, Warden, the captain snapped. I fought down my frustration and clamped my mouth shut. Hey, we were coming up on the holidays. They're a time of miracles. I'll notify you when I learn something, Lucio said, and hung up the phone. I hung up too, harder than I really needed to. I turned to find Michael and Sonia staring at me. Harry, Michael said quietly. That was Captain Lucio, was it not? Yeah, I said. You never told us that Mab threatened to go back on her bargain. Well, no. Michael watched me with troubled eyes. Because she didn't. You just lied. To Lucio. Yeah, I said shortly. Because I need the council's say-so to set up the meeting. Because I've got to set up the meeting, so that the gang of murdering bastards who tortured Shiro to death will have a chance to prove to you that they still got it coming. Harry, if the council learns that you've misled them, they'll probably charge me with treason, I said. Michael rose from his seat. But, I stabbed a finger at him, the longer we delay, the longer those creeps stay in town, the longer Summer's hitmen keep coming after me, and the more likely it is that innocent people are going to get hurt in the crossfire. I've got to move fast, and the best way to get the council to move is to let it think that its own ass is about to fall into the fire. Harry, Michael began. Don't, I said. Don't give me the speech about redemption and mercy and how everyone deserves a second chance. I'm all for doing the right thing, Michael. You know that. But this isn't the time. Then what is right changes because we're in a hurry? He asked gently. Even your book says there's a time for all things, I said. A time to heal and a time to kill. Michael looked from me to the corner by the back door where the broadsword Amarachius rested in its humble leather scabbard, its plain crusader-style hilt bound in wire. It isn't that, Harry. I've seen more of what they've done than you have. I have no qualms with fighting them if it comes to that. They've already blown up a building, tried to murder me, and set off a situation that nearly got your own children burned down in the crossfire. In what way has it not come to that? Instead of answering, Michael shook his head, took up Amarachius, and walked further into the house. I scowled after him for a minute and muttered darkly under my breath, You confused him, Sonya rumbled. I glanced at the dark-skinned knight. What? You confused him. Sonya repeated, because of what you did. What? Lying to the council? I don't see that I had much choice. But you did, Sonya said placidly. He reached into the gym bag on the floor next to him and drew out a long saber, an old cavalry weapon, Esperachius. A nail worked into the hilt, declared it a brother of Michael's sword. He started inspecting the blade. You could have simply moved to attack them. By myself? I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. He's your friend. He would have come with you. You know that. I shook my head. He's my friend, period. You don't do that to your friends. Precisely, Sonya said. So instead, you have placed your own life in jeopardy in order to protect his beliefs. You risk your body to preserve his heart. He brought out a smooth sharpening stone and began stropping the saber's blade. I suppose he considers it a particularly messianic act. That's not why I did it, I said. Of course it isn't. He knows that. It isn't easy for him. Usually he's the one protecting another. 
willing to pay the price if he must. I exhaled and glanced after Michael. I don't know what else I could have done. Duh, Sonya agreed. But he is still afraid for you. He fell quiet for a moment while his stone slid along the sword's blade. Mind if I ask you something? I said. The big man kept sharpening the sword with a steady hand. Not at all. You looked a little tense when Tessa's name came up, I said. Sonya glanced up at me for a second, his eyes shadowed and unreadable. He shrugged his shoulder and went back to his work. She do you wrong? Barely ever noticed me, or spoke to me, Sonya said. To her, I was just an employee, one more face. She did not care who I was. This second of hers, though, the one who recruited you, the muscles along his jawline twitched. Her name is Rosanna. And she done you wrong, I said. Why do you say that? Cause when you talk about her, your face says that you've been done wrong. He gave me a brief smile. Do you know how many black men live in Russia, Dresden? No, I mean, I figured they're kind of a minority. Sonya stopped in mid-strop and glanced at me for a pregnant moment, one eyebrow arched. Yes, he said, his tone dry. Kind of. More so than in the States, I guess. He grunted. For Moscow, I was very, very odd. If I went out to any smaller towns when I was growing up, I had to be careful about walking down busy streets. I could cause car accidents when drivers took their eyes off the road to stare at me. Literally. Many people in that part of the world had never seen a black person with their own eyes. That is changing, slowly. But growing up, I was a minority, the way Bigfoot is a minority, a freak. I started putting things together. That's the kind of thing that's bound to make a young man a little resentful. He went back to sharpening the sword. Oh, yes. So, when you say that Tessa prefers to take recruits, she knows we'll be eager to accept a coin. I speak from experience, Sonya said, nodding. Rosanna was everything that angry, poor, desperate young man could dream of. Pretty, strong, sensual. And she truly did not care about the color of my skin. Sonya shook his head. I was sixteen. I winced. Yeah, good age for making really bad decisions. I speak from experience, too. She offered me the coin, Sonya said. I took it. And for five years, the creature known as Magog and I traveled the world with Rosanna, indulged in every vice a young man could possibly imagine, and obeyed Tessa's commands. He shook his head and glanced up at me. By the end of that time, Dresden... I wasn't much more than a beast who walked upright. Oh, I had thoughts and feelings, but they were all slaves to my baser desires. I did many things of which I am not... He broke off and turned his face away from me. I did many things. She was your handler, I said quietly. Rosanna. She was the one getting you to try the drugs, to do the deeds. One little step at a time corrupting you and letting the fallen take control. He nodded. And the whole time, I never even suspected it. I thought that she cared about me as much as I cared about her. He smiled faintly. Mind you, I never claimed to be of any particular intelligence. Who got you out? I asked him. Shiro? 
In a way, Sonya said. Shiro had just driven Tessa from one of her projects in uh, Antwerp, I believe. She came storming into Rosanna's apartment in Venice, furious. She and Rosanna had an argument I never completely understood. But instead of leaving when I was told to do so, I stayed to listen. I heard what Rosanna truly felt about me. Heard her report about me to Tessa. And I finally understood what an idiot I'd been. I dropped the coin into a canal and never looked back. I blinked at him. That must have been difficult. My entire life has been one of a snowball in hell, Sonya said cheerfully. Though the metaphor is perhaps inverted. At the time, I judged the action to be tantamount to suicide, since Tessa was certain to track me down and kill me. But Shiro had followed her to Venice, and he found me instead. Michael, not the Chicago Michael, the other one, met us at Malta and brought Esperacius here with him, offering me the chance to work against some of the evil I'd helped to create. From there, I have been knighting. He's good work, plenty of travel, interesting people, always a new challenge. I shook my head and laughed. <laughs> That's putting a positive spin on it. I am making a difference, Sonia said, with simple and rock-solid conviction. And you, Dresden? Have you considered taking up Fidolacius, joining us? No, I said quietly. Why not? Sonia asked, his tone reasonable. You know for what we fight. You know the good we do for others. Your cause runs a close parallel to ours, to protect those who cannot protect themselves, to pit yourself against the forces of violence and death when they arise. I'm not really into the whole God thing, I said. And I am an agnostic, Sonya responded. I snorted. Hell's bells! Tell me you aren't still clinging to that. You carry a holy blade and hang out with angels. The blade has power, true. The beings allied with that power are somewhat angelic. But I have met many strange and mighty things since I took up the sword. If one called them aliens instead of angels... It would only mean that I was working in concert with powerful beings. Not necessarily the literal forces of heaven or a literal creator, Sonya grinned. A philosophical fine point, true, but I am not prepared to abandon it. What we do is worthy, without ever bringing questions of faith, religion, or God into the discussion. Can't argue with that, I admitted. So, tell me, Sonya said, why have you not considered taking up the sword? I thought about it for a second and said, Because it isn't for me. And Shiro said I would know who to give it to. Sonya shrugged and nodded his head in acquiescence. Reason enough, he sighed. We could use Fedelakius's power in this conflict. I wish Shiro were with us now. Good man, I agreed quietly. He was a king, you know. I thought he just liked the king's music. No, no, I said. Shiro himself. He was a direct descendant of the last king of Okinawa. Several generations back, but his family was royalty. Sonya shrugged his broad shoulders. There have been many kings over the centuries, my friend, and many years for their bloodlines to spread through the populace. My own family can trace its roots back to Salahuddin. I felt my eyebrows rise. Salahuddin? You mean Saladin, king of Syria and Egypt during the Crusades? Sonya nodded. The same. 
He paused in mid-strop and looked up at me, his eyes widening. I know you're agnostic, I said. But do you believe in coincidence? Not nearly so much as I once did, Sonya replied. That can't be a coincidence. Both of you descended from royalty. I chewed on my lip. Could that have something to do with who can take up one of the swords? I am a soldier and an amateur philosopher, Sonya said. You are the wizard. Could such a thing be significant? I waggled a hand in midair. Yes and no. I mean, there are a lot of factors that tie magic to matters of inheritance, genetic or otherwise. A lot of the old rites were intimately bound up with political rulers. The king and his land are one, Sonya intoned solemnly. Well, yeah. Sonya nodded. Michael showed me that movie. Merlin was the only good thing about that movie. That and Captain Picard kicking ass in plate mail with a big axe. I waved my hand. The point is that in many cultures, the king or sultan or whatever held a position of duty and authority that was as much spiritual as physical. Certain energies could have been connected to that, giving the old kings a form of metaphysical significance. Perhaps something similar to the power of the swords? Sonya asked. I shrugged. Maybe. By the time I was born, the planet was running a little low on monarchs. It isn't something I've looked at before. Sonya smiled. Well... Now you need only find a prince or princess willing to lay down his or her life over matters of principle. Do you know any? Not so much, I said. But I got a feeling we're onto something. I glanced at the clock on the wall. It's getting later. I'll be back here in about two hours, or I'll call. Da, Sonia said. We will watch over your criminals for you. Thanks, I said, and went back out to the workshop. Hendricks had slumped to the floor and was sleeping. Guard was actually snoring. Thomas had been pacing restlessly when I entered. Well, he asked. Gotta get to Max and meet Murphy, I said. Let's roll. Thomas nodded and headed for the door. I reached into the trash can by the door, took out an empty motor oil can, and tossed it into the least cluttered corner of the workshop. It bounced off something in midair, and Molly let out a soft yelp, appearing there a moment later, rubbing a hand to her hip. Where'd she come from? Thomas demanded crossly. What did I miss? Molly demanded, her tone faintly offended. I had all the senses covered. Even Thomas didn't know I was there. You didn't miss anything, I said. I just know how you think, Grasshopper. If I can't make you stay where it's safe, I might as well keep you where I can see you. Maybe you'll even be useful. You're with us. Molly's eyes gleamed. Excellent, she said, and hurried over to join me. Chapter 16 I was more than an hour late, and Murphy was not amused. Your nose looks worse than it did yesterday, she said when I sat down at the table. I think the black eyes have grown, too. Gosh, you're cute when you're angry, I responded. Her eyes narrowed dangerously. It makes your little button nose all pink and your eyes get bloodshot and even bluer. Did you have any last words, Dresden, or should I just choke you now? Mac, I called, raising a hand. Too pale. She fixed me with a steady look and said, Don't think you can buy your way out of this with good beer. I don't, I said, rising. I'm buying my way out of this with a really, really good beer. I walked over to the bar as Mac set two bottles of his micro-brewed liquid Nirvana down and took off the caps with a deft twist of his hand, disdaining a bottle opener. 
I winked at him and picked up both bottles and sauntered back over to Murphy. I gave her her bottle, took mine, and we drank. She paused after the first taste and blinked at the bottle before drinking again more deeply. This beer, she pronounced after that, just saved your life. Max, a master beeromancer, I replied. I'd never tell him, but at the time I wished he'd serve his brew cold. I'd have loved to hold a frosty bottle against my aching head for a moment. you think the pain from the damn broken nose would fade eventually, but it just kept on stubbornly burning. We had settled down at a table along one wall of the pub. There are thirteen tables in the room and thirteen wooden pillars, each extensively carved with scenes mostly out of old-world fairy tales. The bar is crooked and has thirteen stools, and thirteen ceiling fans were lazily overhead. The setup of the entire place is designed to diffuse and refract random magical energies, the kind that often gather around practitioners of magic when they're grumpy or out of sorts. It offers a measure of protection from accumulated negative energies, enough to make sure that annoying or depressing vibes, for lack of a more precise term, don't adversely affect the moods and attitudes of the pub's clientele. It doesn't keep out any of the supernatural riffraff. That's what the sign by the door is for. Mac had the place legally recognized as neutral ground among the members of the Unseelie Accords, and members of any of the Accorded Nations had a responsibility to avoid conflict in such a place, or at least to take it outside. Still, neutral ground is safe only until someone thinks they can get away with violating the Accords. It's best to be cautious there. On the other hand, Murphy said more quietly, maybe you're too pathetic to beat to death right now. My nose, you mean. Compared to the way my hand felt, it's nothing, I said. Still, can't be much fun. Well, no. She watched me through her next sip and then said, you're about to play the wizard card and tell me to butt out. Not exactly, I said. She gave me her cop eyes, all professionally detached neutrality, and nodded once. So talk. Remember the guys from the airport a few years back? Yeah, killed the old Okinawan guy in the chapel. He died real bad. I smiled faintly. I think he'd probably argue the point, if he could. She shrugged and said, tone quietly flat. It was a mess. The guys behind it are back. They've abducted Marcone. Murphy frowned, her eyes distant for a moment, calculating. They're grabbing his business? Or forcing him onto their team, I said. I'm not sure yet. We're working on it. We? You remember Michael? I asked. Charity's husband? Yeah. I remember that at the airport we found a couple of men with no tongues and fake identification. They'd been killed with long blades. Swords, if you can believe that in this day and age. It was messy, Harry. She put her hands flat on the table and leaned toward me. I don't like messy. I'm all kinds of sorry about that, Murph, I said. It's possible that a grain or two of sarcasm was showing in my reply. I'll be sure to ask them to put on the kid gloves. If I survive asking the question, I'll let you know what they say. Murphy regarded me calmly. They're back then. I nodded. Only this time they brought more friends to the party. She nodded. Where are they? No, Murph. Where are they, Harry? Murph asked, her voice hard. If they're that dangerous, I'm not waiting for them to choose their ground, so that we have to rush into a hostile situation in response to them. We'll go after them right now, 
before they have a chance to hurt anyone else. It'd be a slaughter, Murphy. Maybe, she said, maybe not. You'd be surprised what kind of resources the department has gotten its hands on, what with the whole war on terror. Right. And you're going to tell your bosses what? That the same terrorists who attacked the airport and murdered a woman in the marina are in the city planning another operation. That the only way to ensure the safety of its citizens is to preemptively assault them. Then show up with SWAT, SI, every cop in town, anyone we can get from the Bureau, and all the military backup available on short notice. I sat back in my chair at that, startled at Murphy's tone, and at the possibilities. Hell, the kind of firepower she was talking about might give even the Denarians pause. And given the current climate, terrorist plot was all but synonymous with respond with overwhelming force. Oh, sure, most modern weaponry was far less effective on supernatural targets than anyone without knowledge of them would expect. But even reduced to the effectiveness of bee stings, enough bee stings can be just as deadly as a knife in the heart. Humanity at large, enjoys a dichotomous role in supernatural politics. On the one hand, they are sneered at and held in contempt for being patently unable to come to grips with reality, to the point where the supernatural world hardly needed to bother to hide from them. Given half a chance, the average human being would rationalize the most bizarre of encounters down to unusual but explainable events. They are referred to as herd animals by a lot of the things that prey on them, and often toyed with and tormented. On the other hand, no one wants to get them stirred up, either. Humanity, when frightened and angry, is a force even the supernatural world does not wish to reckon with. The torches and pitchforks are just as deadly in their numbers and their simple rage as they ever were. And it was my opinion that most of the supernatural crowd had very little appreciation for just how destructive and dangerous mankind had grown in the past century. Which is why I found myself sorely tempted to let the Denarians get a big old face full of angry cop. Five or six rifles like guards might not kill Mantis Girl, but if you followed them up with thirty or forty pairs of stompy combat boots for all the little bugs, little Miss Clamp Hands could go down for the count. Of course, all that was predicated on the idea that the humans involved a. Knew what they were up against, and B. Took it seriously and worked together tightly enough to get the job done. Murphy and the guys in SI might have a pretty good grasp of the situation, but the others wouldn't. They'd be expecting a soldier movie, but they'd be getting something out of a horror flick instead. I didn't for one second believe that Murphy or Stallings or anyone else in Chicago could make everyone involved listen to them, once they started talking about demons and monsters. I rubbed at my head again, thinking of Sonia. Maybe we could try to explain it in more palatable terms. Instead of shape-shifting demons, we could tell them that the terrorists were in possession, <laughs> get it, of experimental genetically engineered biometric armored suits. Maybe that would give them the framework they needed to get the job done. And maybe it wouldn't. Maybe they'd run into something out of a nightmare and start screaming in fear. Coordination and control would go right out the window, especially if the Denarians had anyone with enough magical juice to start blowing out technology. Then would come the panic and slaughter and terror. It's an idea, I said to Murphy. Maybe even a workable idea, but I don't think its time has come.
At least not yet. Her eyes flashed very blue. And you're the one who decides. I took another sip of beer and set the bottle down again deliberately. Apparently. Says who? Murphy demanded. I leaned back in my chair. In the first place, I said quietly, even if you brought in all that firepower, the best you could hope for is a hideously bloody, costly victory. In the second place, there's a chance I can resolve this whole thing through council channels. Or at least make sure that when the fur starts flying, we're not in the middle of a bloody town. But you— And in the third place, I continued, I don't know where they are. Murphy narrowed her eyes, and then some of the tension abruptly left her features. You're telling me the truth. Usually do, I said. I could probably track them down given a day or so, but it might not come to that. She studied my face for a moment. But you don't think that talk will stop them from whatever they're doing here? Not a chance in hell. But hopefully I'll talk them out of the woodwork to someplace a little more out of the way. What if someone gets hurt while you're scheming? She asked. Those encounters people were having last night are getting attention. No one's been hurt so far, but that could change. I'm not prepared to tolerate that. Those were something else, I said tiredly. Something I don't think will be a threat to the public. I told her about Summer's hitters. She drank the rest of the beer in a single tip, then sighed. Nothing's ever simple with you. I shrugged, modestly. Here's the problem, Harry, she said quietly. Last time these maniacs were around, there were bodies. And there were reports. Several witnesses gave a fairly good description of you. And nothing came of it, I said. Nothing came of it because I was in charge of the investigation, Murphy corrected me, her tone slightly sharpening. The case was never closed, and if similar events bring it up again, there's no way I can protect you. Stallings wouldn't. John would probably try, Murphy said. But Rudolph's been ladder-climbing over in Eternal Affairs, and if he gets an opening, he'll start screaming about it, and the case will get kicked up the line and out of S.I.'s control. I frowned at that turning my bottle around slowly in my fingers. Well, I said, that could complicate things. Murphy rolled her eyes. You think? Damn it, Harry. A long time ago, I agreed with you that there were some things that it was better the department didn't get involved in. I promised not to go blowing whistles and raising alarms every time things got spooky. She leaned forward slightly, her eyes intent. But I'm a cop, Harry. Before everything else... My job is to defend and protect the people of this city. And what do you think I'm doing? The best you know how, she said, without heat. I know your heart is in the right place, but you can be as sincere as hell and still be wrong. She paused to let that sink in. And if you're wrong, it could cost lives, lives I'm sworn to protect. I said nothing. You asked me to respect your limits, and I have, she said quietly. I expect you to return the favor. If for one second I think that letting you handle this is going to cost innocent lives, I'm not going to stand quietly in the wings. I'm going in and bringing everything I can get my hands on with me. And if I do that, I expect your complete support. And you're the one who gets to decide when that is, I demanded. She faced me without flinching, not a millimeter. Apparently. I leaned back in my seat and sipped beer with my eyes closed. Murphy didn't know everything that was at stake here. 
more than anyone else on the force, sure, but she was operating under only partial knowledge. If she made the wrong call, she could really screw things up beyond all ability to conceive. She probably had the same exact thought about me, and on more than one occasion. I'd asked Murphy for a lot when I'd asked her to trust me. How could I not return the favor and still call myself her friend? Simple. I couldn't. Hell, if she decided to go in, she'd do it with or without me. In that circumstance, my presence could mean the difference between a bloody victory and a disaster, and... And I suddenly felt a lot more empathy for Michael's confusion. I opened my eyes again and said quietly, You decide to bring CPD in, you'll have my cooperation, but you have got to believe me. This isn't the time for that kind of solution. She ran her thumb over a scar in the wooden table. What if that building had been full of people, Harry? Families. These denarians could have killed hundreds. Give me time, I said. She put her hands on the table's edge and rose, facing me with those same neutral eyes again. As she started to speak, I got a twisty feeling in the pit of my stomach. I wish I could, she said. But... The door to the pub slammed open hard enough to strain its hinges and leave marks against the old wooden wall. A thing came through the door. It was hard for me to tell what it was at first. Imagine a big man trying to squeeze into a doghouse. He has to crouch down and go in sideways, one shoulder at a time, moving very carefully to avoid harming himself on the doorframe. That's what this huge, gray-furred thing looked like, but with horns and cloven hooves. The enormous gruff several feet taller than any ogre or troll I'd ever seen, squeezed all the way through the door and then rose to a crouch, his head, shoulders, and the top part of his back pressed against the ceiling. Hunched awkwardly, he slowly scanned the room, his golden eyes gleaming around their rectangular pupils. Each knuckle of his closed fists was the size of a freaking cantaloupe, and a heavy, pungent animal scent filled the air. Thanks to the snow, the pub wasn't crowded, just a few regulars, plus Murphy and me. But even so, this wasn't something you saw every day, and the room went totally still. The gruff's gaze settled on me. Then he duck-walked toward my table. Mac raced for the switch that turned off the fans, but the first couple of spinning blades the gruff passed struck sharply against his curling horns and shattered. He did not so much as blink. He stopped beside my table and surveyed Murphy, then turned his huge, heavy gaze to me. Wizard, he rumbled in a voice so deep that I could feel it better than I could hear it. I have come hence to speak to thee about my younger brothers. The gruff's huge eyes narrowed and its knuckles creaked like shipping hawsers as its fists tightened. And the harms thou hast wrought upon them. Chapter 17 I picked up my staff and rose to face the enormous gruff. Murphy watched me with very, very wide eyes. This is neutral ground, I said quietly. Aye, the gruff agreed. The accords alone keep thy neck unbroken, thy skull uncracked. Or your enormous ass uncooked, I replied, staring up and setting my jaw. Don't start thinking it would be easy, Tiny. Mayhap, and mayhap not, the gruff rumbled. Tis a question answered only by the field. 
I breathed as shallowly as I could. The huge gruff didn't smell bad, precisely, but he sure as hell smelled a lot. Speak. We find ourselves at odds, friend of winter, the gruff rumbled. Friend of summer, too, I said. They gave me jewelry and everything. Aye, the huge gruff said. You have done good service to my court, if not to my queen. I am surprised, then, at your use of the bane, Pontu of my younger kin. The bane? Murphy said quietly. Iron, I clarified. I turned back to the gruff. They were trying to kill me. I wanted to survive. No friend of either court would so employ the bane, wizard, the gruff growled. Did you not know this? It is more than a mere weapon, and the pain it causes more than simple discomfort. It is a poison, body and spirit, that you have used upon us. I glared at the big idiot. They were trying to kill me, I repeated. Only more slowly, you know, so it would be all insulting. I wanted to survive. The gruff narrowed its eyes. Then you intend to continue as you have begun? I intend to survive, I replied. I didn't ask for this fight. I didn't begin it. Thou art fated to die in any case, mortal, soon or late. Why not face it with honor and make thy passing more peaceful thereby? Peaceful? I asked, barely containing a laugh. If I go down fighting, tiny, I plan for it to be about as unpeaceful as things get. I jabbed a finger at him. I've got nothing against you and your brothers, tiny, except that you keep trying to freaking kill me. Back off, and it won't have to get any uglier than it already has. The gruff growled. It sounded like a dump truck grinding its gears. That I will not do. I will serve my queen. Then don't expect anything but more of the same from me, I replied. You would behave this way in the service of winter? the gruff demanded, incredulous. You, who struck the heart of Arctis Tor? What hold has the Dark Queen upon you, mortal? Sorry, Tiny, but you aren't nearly as special as you think you are. This is pretty much the way I behave every time someone tries to whack me. I gestured at him with my staff. So if you came here to try to talk me into lying down and dying, you can leave the way you came in. And if you're the one coming after me next, you'd better have more brains than your brothers did, or I'm going to leave you as a great big pile of cold cuts and spare ribs. The gruff growled again and gave me a stiff nod. Then come out and let us settle this. Uh, uh-oh. Showing bravado to the bad guys, or the not-so-bad guys, as the case may be, is a given, a part of the territory. But I'd never taken on anything with the sheer mass of Tiny the Gruff and I really didn't think I'd care to try my hand against him without one hell of a lot of preparation first. I also had to remember that big didn't necessarily equal stupid, not given the circles he apparently moved in. In fact, most of the higher reaches of the summer court knew a formidable amount of counter-magic. If Tiny here had half the ability I'd seen demonstrated in the past, I would be in real trouble in a straight fight. All he had to do was stand outside and wait. Mac's place had only the one door. Worse, Thomas and Molly were waiting outside in Thomas's barge, and they would be sure to join in. I wasn't sure what could happen at that point. Leaving totally aside the fact that we'd be brawling in the middle of Chicago in broad daylight, 
I had to think that the gruff might have backup waiting nearby to intervene if anyone outside the business of the courts of winter and summer tried to interfere. Molly was of limited capability in a fight, and Thomas tended to believe that the best way to approach any given combat was with a maximum of power, speed, and aggressive ferocity. Things could get really messy, really fast. I was trying to think of a way of getting out of this without getting anyone killed when Murphy put her gun on the table and said in a very clear, loud, challenging tone, I don't think so. The gruff turned to stare at her in surprise. So did Mac. So did everyone else there. Heck, so did I. Murphy stood straight up and turned to face the enormous gruff with her feet spread. I will not let this challenge to my authority pass. The gruff tilted its head to one side. Its horns dug furrows in the wooden ceiling. Mac winced. Lady, it rumbled. Do you know who I am? Murphy asked. A lady knight, a shield-bearer of this mortal domain, the gruff replied. An officer of the law, or so I believe it is called. That's right, she said calmly. I make no challenge to your authority, Dame Murphy, she said. Dame Murphy, rumbled the gruff. But you do, Murphy said. You have threatened one I am sworn to protect. The gruff blinked, a considerable gesture on his scale, and glanced at me. This wizard? Yes, Murphy said. He's a citizen of Chicago, and I am sworn to protect and defend him against those who would harm him. Dame Murphy, the gruff said stiffly. This matter is not one of mortal concern. The hell it isn't, Murphy said. This man lives in Chicago. He pays taxes to the city. He is beholden to its laws, she glanced aside at me, and her mouth quirked wryly. If he is to suffer the headaches of citizenry, as he must, then it is fair and lawful that he should enjoy the protections offered to every citizen. He is therefore under my protection, and any quarrel you have with him, you also have with me. The gruff stared at her for a moment, eyes narrowed in thought. Art thou quite certain of thy position, Dame Murphy? Quite certain, she replied. Even knowing that the duty solemnly charged unto me and my kin might require us to kill thee? Master Gruff, Murphy replied, laying a hand on her gun for the first time. Consider for a moment what a steel-jacketed round would feel like as it entered your flesh. The Gruff flicked its ears in surprise. A number of napkins were blown from the surface of a nearby table. Thou wouldst aim such weapons of the bane at a lawful champion of the Seely Court? In your case, Master Gruff, Murphy said, I would hardly need to aim. Then she picked up the gun and aimed it at the Gruff's eyes. I started to panic. Then I saw where I thought Murphy was going with this one, and I had to work to keep myself from letting out a cheer. The Gruff's knuckles popped again. This, it growled, is neutral ground. Chicago, she replied, has never signed any accords. I will fulfill my duty. Attack me here, the gruff said, and I will crush you. Crush me here, Murphy said, and you will have broken the accords while acting on behalf of your queen. Was that your intention in coming here? The gruff ground its teeth, a sound like creaking millstones. My quarrel is not with you. If you attempt to take the life of a citizen of Chicago, whom I am sworn to protect, you have made it my quarrel, Master Gruff. 
Does your queen wish to declare a war upon the mortal authorities of Chicago? Would she wish you to decide such a thing? The gruff stared at her, evidently pondering. Lady has a point, Tiny, I drawled. There's nothing to be gained here but trouble, and nothing to be lost but a little time. Walk away. You'll find me again soon enough. The gruff stared at Murphy and then at me. If I'd been less intrepid and fearless, I would have held my breath, hoping I'd avoided a fight. As it was, I held my breath mostly to cut down on the smell. Finally, the gruff bowed its head toward Murphy, with more scraping of ceilings and wincing of bartenders. Courage, he rumbled, should be honored. Though thou art less a man than I thought, wizard, hiding behind a mortal, however valiant she may be. I let out a long breath as silently as I could and said, Gosh, somehow I'll try to live with myself. It will not o'erburden you long. This I promise. The gruff nodded once to Murphy, then turned and scuttled out the way he'd squeezed in. He even shut the door behind him. Murphy let out her breath and put her gun away in its shoulder holster. It took her two or three tries. I sank into my chair on weak legs. You, I said to Murphy, are so hot right now. She gave me a weak smile. Oh, now you notice. She glanced at the door. Is he really gone? Yeah, I said. I figure he is. The summer court aren't exactly sweetness and light, but they do have a concept of honor, and if any fairy gives his word, he's good for it. Mac did something I'd rarely seen him do. He got three black bottles out from beneath the bar and brought them over to the table. He twisted the tops off and put one down in front of me and another in front of Murphy, then kept the third for himself. I took up the bottle and sniffed at it. I wasn't familiar with the brew, but it had a rich, earthy aroma that made my mouth water. Without a word, Mac held up his bottle in a salute to Murphy. I joined him. Murphy shook her head tiredly and returned the salute. We drank together, and my tongue decided that any other brew it ever had would probably be a bitter disappointment from this day forward. Too many flavors to count blended together into something I couldn't describe if I had a week to talk about it. I'd never had anything like it. It was God's beer. Mac drained the bottle in a single pull with his eyes closed. When he lowered it, he looked at Murphy and said, Bravely done. Murphy's face was flushed with relief and with a reaction to her beer that was at least as favorable as mine. I doubt Mac could have seen it, but I'd known Murph long enough to see that she started blushing too. Mac went back to the bar, leaving Murphy and me to finish our bottled ambrosia. Okay, Murphy said in a weak voice. Where were we? You were about to tell me how you thought I was wrong and that the Chicago PD needed to intervene? Oh, Murph said. Right. She stared after the departed gruff for a moment. You said that that thing was from the nicer of the two groups causing us grief? Yep, I said. We've gone up against the supernatural three times, she said quietly. It's ended badly twice. We meaning the cops, of course. I nodded. One of those occasions had killed her partner, Ron Carmichael. He hadn't been an angel or anything, but he had been a good man and a solid cop. All right, she said quietly. I'm willing to hold off for now, on one condition. Name it. I'm in, from here on out. You obviously need someone to protect you from the big bad billy goats. I snorted. Yeah, obviously. 
She held up the last of her beer. I held up mine. We clinked them, finished them, and went back out into the winter cold together.